Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I'm Joe. I'm an alcoholic. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Had a nice drive up here from Santa Monica. Um, My sobriety date is August 17th, 1982, and I'm very grateful for that date. Um, For a long time I was told and I had an, an idea that gratitude was just an emotion and that I could go home and make the right list or think about it long enough and I would go home and I would just get angrier and angrier and then I would try to love somebody and I loved them and I would think about it and some people would tell me I could go home and make the right list I'd be able to love them I would just get angrier I found out gratitude's an action not an emotion. And I express my gratitude for Alcoholics Anonymous by responding to what I'm asked to do. I'm not a circuit speaker anymore. I was. And like everything else I've ever used in my life, it almost killed me. Um, (laughs) I've never enjoyed anything in my life that I didn't take to the gates of insanity and death. Um, And... It's a horrible thing to become somebody in an an anonymous program. Um, (laughs) And I did, in my own mind at least. And um, I remember at my home group once in Santa Monica, a guy came all the way from the valley or something like two hours, and he asked a couple people, where's Joe Hawk? And they pointed me out, and he came over, and he said, I came all the way from the valley just to meet you. I said, why? He said, well, I heard you're a multimillionaire recluse who stays in his apartment and only comes down to his home group once in a while to impair direct revelations from Bill and Bob. (laughs) (laughs) I said, you're not far off, but it's a little bit of a stretch. Um, Since then, I found you have to take the criticism as well as the praise. And... um, um, Even the stuff I've been criticized for are gifts. I look for teachers in a lot of different ways nowadays, like resentment. Fear is a great teacher. People you don't like are great teachers. Because they're not going to change. But I can change my mind. Geographically, in these 22 years... I was uh, I got sober in Denver, Colorado, and I was there for five years. And then I was moved. I didn't choose to, but I was moved through this process out, outlined in this big book to even kind of against my will. I was pretty comfortable in Denver. My sponsor was down the street. Some of you know him, Don, Don P., and uh, some of you know Bob Olson. And um, I didn't want to leave Denver. And at uh, five years of sobriety, I came out to, to, to L.A. to make some amends. 
And one of those amends was um, uh, an ex-fiance, um, or what I like to call uh, God's will, number one. And, um, <laughs> and you're absolutely convinced, aren't you, that it's God's will. And um, I still think it was, but not what I thought it was for. Uh, and... Um, Part of my amends was she, I asked her, I made the mistake of following directions, which is a horrible thing to do in AA, unless you want to get free. And I asked her what I could do to make it right. And she said, be in LA twice a month and we'll go to therapy. Not only did I not want to be in LA twice a month, I didn't really want to go to therapy either. And I said, okay. And uh, uh, the next day, an apartment on the beach in Santa Monica was put right in my lap by someone that didn't even know why I was there. She just thought I was visiting. And she said, check out this apartment. I said, why do you think I'd want an apartment in Santa Monica? She said, I don't know. I always listen to people who say, I don't know why I'm telling you this. but." And uh, I ended up staying 10 years. I'm alcoholic. Uh, and then I was pretty comfortable once again. And at uh, 15 years of sobriety, um, I was moved once again, not by choice, and it was not what I would have picked. But it was a lot. Mo- it was a lot more amazing than anything I could have come up with. You know, I think if you're trying to live a spiritual way of life, whether it's you know in a marriage or in a job, but If you can look back at the last several years and say to yourself, I never would have dreamed, you know, if you would have told me five years ago, if you would have told me at 14 years that in about a year I was going to go to India for five years and stay sober and start a drug and alcohol treatment program for the Tibetan government for the first time in their history, they they have access to Alcoholics Anonymous. I would have said, you're crazy. Nobody would want somebody like me to do. I always sell myself short. And I always sell this program short. And I'm sure maybe as Bob Olson talked about and maybe Don, I'm a recovered alcoholic. I don't suffer from the false modesty that some people do after a long period of time. And I don't, I suffer from what the founders of our program suffered from. And if you know, if you know that um, the first 164 pages have never been changed, and those people in those 164 pages claimed that you could recover, not that I'm cured, I have a daily reprieve, not contingent on what I do, but I used to think it was, and uh, it's contingent on the grace of God continuing to be in my life and a conscious contact. Mm. You know, no one, no one that wrote in that book had more than five years. Bill got sober, what, 34, 35? The book came out in 39. And uh, on the first page of the first forward to the first edition, they said that they were over 100 men and women who had recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And that to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. I doubted that and take it for granted. But how long does it take till you can begin to claim some spiritual progress that you that you can't take the credit for? 
that's another realization of grace. I mean, if you had cancer 22 years ago and it's been in remission for the last 22 years and you don't suffer from the effects of that cancer anymore, you might not be cured because you could go into remission, but you could sure claim to be recovered. I don't take the credit for that state of being, but i got to tell you, I haven't had the obsession to drink or a physical craving for a long time. I have a much deeper thing, though. It's a spiritual malady. Some people I've met in AA have a one-part disease. They have a physical craving, but they just don't drink no matter what, and they never get that physical craving ever again. That's one of the, I'm not going to comment on the message in Fresno because I don't know the message in Fresno, but in Los Angeles, one of the main messages is we just don't drink or use no matter what. Now, if I could just not drink no matter what, I wouldn't be here tonight. But I have a twofold disease because I have the mind of an alcoholic that continues to take me back to a drink. I have a lot of experience to prove that. And that's been treated through the 12 steps. But then I started to find out I have a much deeper disease. I have a threefold disease. You see, the people with twofold disease, they just don't drink no matter what and they work on themselves because they can. And they can surrender. They can bring about their own surrender. My God, if I could have surrendered, I think you'll be able to tell from my story I would have surrendered a lot sooner than I did. I didn't surrender August 17, 1982. I was surrendered by something much more powerful than myself. And I think it was a magical combination, not just booze. A lot of people surrender to booze and we never get to see them. Sometimes in AA, where I live, we're shielded from alcoholism. And we don't get to see the deaths that some of you old-timers used to get to see. They're kept from us. And I forget sometimes most people die from alcoholism. There's a myth that AA, you, that people get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and stay sober. You can, but it's a small minority nowadays. Most alcoholics die from alcoholism. Now, we're all going to die, but I believe somewhere along the line you're given a choice. You can either die from alcoholism or you can die with alcoholism, free. I think a lot of you know you don't have to drink again to die from alcoholism. And that's not because of a physical craving or a mental obsession necessarily. That's because of a part of my disease that was there before I ever took a drink. My big book says that I'm not only bodily and mentally ill, that I'm spiritually sick. And that when the spiritual malady is treated, I'll begin to, over, I'll begin to straighten out mentally and physically. And that that's what I needed to treat. I needed to treat that stuff that was there before I ever took a drink. Um, uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, tomorrow I get to talk about the steps and hopefully there'll be a lot of participation and we can have more of an interactive. Maybe some folks will even have an experience and maybe even I can because that's what I'll pray for tomorrow morning. For an open mind and a new experience with the 12 steps. You see, there's a big difference for me between exposure to spiritual principles and experiencing spiritual principles. Exposure to it is not necessarily experience. A lot of us know that from our own lives. Sat in churches, went to seminars, heard great lectures, 
great speakers. And you walk out of a wonderful sermon with a friend who's not an alcoholic. And he says, I never knew that before, that when I do this, this, and this, this is what happens. I'm going to go home and I'm going to try that. And he goes home and he does it. And you go home and you try it for about a week and it's just horrible. You just can't keep it going. Because we suffer from a disease that's rooted in lack of power. Whether you're talking about once I take a drink or now that I've stopped, I don't have any power in that situation. Once I start, I I get this craving for more that I can't control. And once I stop, I get this mind that I can't stop. And it has to have more. It has to have more of what treats something much deeper than just my own mind. I uh, I grew up in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan, which is halfway between Detroit and Chicago. And that's about what I was like. <laughs> halfway between Detroit and Chicago. <laughs> there was a band that... that um, was from Battle Creek, Junior Walker and the All-Stars, and um, I took. Dr- I wanted to learn how to play drums, and Junior Walker's drummer was my teacher, and uh, and I saw these people, and I looked at them, and I looked at my life and my family, and they had something that I wasn't experiencing in my family, and I wanted that. I wanted to be black, and uh, didn't work. And, uh, <laughs> And I had a dream. I had a dream one day that I would I would play drums for Junior Walker and the All-Stars in the El Grotto Lounge in Battle Creek, Michigan. And I would be high on heroin. And that dream came true. And I was still empty. Every dream I ever got before I connected to my own spirit fell through. Because the dream comes and your spirit's still empty. No dream can fill that place. And... I didn't have some of the excuses that I heard when I came to AA for why I was alcoholic. You know, you hear a lot about the yets. You know, I haven't done that yet. I didn't have a lot of yets, but how come we, and I can't be the only one that had this story. How come we never hear about the if-onlys? And I had my little if-only story when I got to you. If only Daddy hadn't been 60 years old when I was born. If only I hadn't grown up in Battle Creek, Michigan. And then I would hear people say they were alcoholic because they were abused, and I wasn't. So I thought, well, maybe if I had been abused, I wouldn't have turned out the way I did. (laughs) And I heard people say they were alcoholic because Mommy and Daddy were. My Mom and Dad weren't. So I thought maybe if they would have been, I would have learned my lesson, and I wouldn't have done that stuff. And I had my little if-only story. And I got here when I was 30 years old. And one day somebody told my little if-only story, and he turned out just as sick as I did. You know, a lot of people think the search in AA is to find truth. I think I've found more lies than I have truth, and it's just through a process of elimination (laughs) that you get to something that closely resembles the truth. A lot of people think AA is a program that you can learn. Thank God you can't learn AA because I would have graduated a long time ago, gotten a diploma, and I would have had an ashram in India where you'd be coming to visit me rather than me coming to visit you. Uh, And I didn't know this for a long time until someone asked the right question. I also thought looking in the big book or talking to his sponsors about finding the right answer. 
And I found out it's not. It's about finding the right question and not answering it right away. You pose me a question. Why do I think I'm alcoholic? If I tell you what I know right away that makes me alcoholic, I've stopped any experience I can possibly have with that question. But we're so programmed from when we were, since we were young that whoever raises their hand the quickest is the best to answer the question right away. But the questions that were posed to me, they said, weren't even meant to be answered. They were meant to be considered and experienced at a gut level. So now, you know, I'm certainly glad that I'm not a member of the part of AA that says you do one through nine once. I'm very glad not to be, not to have settled for that. Because I gotta tell you, if I was still operating in the world at 22 years of sobriety based on an inventory that I wrote 21 and a half years ago, I'd be one of the most wonderful people you ever met. <laughs> because I would use the rationalization that my mind has tried many, many times in AA. Well, I'm not sticking guns in people's faces anymore. I'm not going to jail. Haven't been to jail since I got here. You know, I'm not like that anymore. But what am I up to now that's going to kill me? What about this stuff now? See, I think because it feels more subtle, that subtle means less dangerous. But see, whatever's blocking me from God now is just as dangerous as the stuff that was blocking me from God then, because I know better. (laughs) And that's my problem. This thing. I think I know now. And it's a lot harder to work one through nine at 21 years than it was at 21 months. You know, the stakes are a little higher. I've got some stuff now in my life that I really love. I know people that have been doing the work in this book for 30, 40 years, and some of them say that doing the work in the big book on a regular basis is like taking your life and throwing it up in the air and seeing where it lands. One of my heroes was the manager of the Denver Central Office. She managed that office for 30 years. She's now 45 years sober. And she used to say that to me. And then I watched her one time at about 20, 25 years sober lose a husband of 13 years who left in the middle of the night, just like that, and left her a note that her power and clarity intimidated him. And there she was. And I watched how she went through it. She didn't go through it without pain. You know, you can do that. There's medication for that. If you don't want to feel. But she was feeling the pain, but she did it with dignity and grace and recovering. We went to the state convention together that weekend. And I watched how she went through it. And I asked her to tell me about 10 and 11. And she asked me some really interesting questions, but I'm jumping ahead of myself. Um, I don't know. In the middle of a family where I really couldn't put my finger on why I felt, you know, because... I'm the guy that thinks how it works says that I'm supposed to talk about what it was like (laughs) and what happened and what it's like now. It's not what the book says. I'm supposed to tell you what I was like and what happened and what I'm like now. I used to be a speaker that would tell you what I was like, what I was like, what I was like, what I was like, because nothing had happened. (laughs) Something's got to happen for what it was like to change. There will be no what it's like now. What it's like now is like what it was like then. I'm just not drinking, right? (laughs) 
What it was like was I didn't have some of the excuses that other people had when I looked around. There was a family with wealth, opportunity. I was spoiled. I had a strong father and a loving mother. No alcoholism. But I started to, you know, that's around the time they keep saying to you, you have so much potential. <laughs> God, I would hate when they would say that. Right? And then and then at age 12, I found a solution to this problem I was having. And the problem I was having was I didn't feel like I fit. You ever met a real alcoholic that didn't feel that way when before they ever took a drink? I mean, why did Dr. Silkworth say that a part of my disease separates me and differentiates me like a distinct entity? And the first time I read that, I thought about daydreams I had in my parents' backyard before I ever took a drink, like 9, 10, 11 years old. And I would have these daydreams that I still remember. And the daydream was a little spaceship was going to land in the backyard and a little green man was going to get out and he was going to say, Son, you weren't born here on this planet. We brought you here as a teeny baby, as a test to see if you could fit. And you failed. And we're taking you home. But that spaceship never landed. And a question started to develop in my mind as everybody else, my older brothers, everybody else was saying, you have so much potential. And you're laying there in bed at night and you're thinking, where is it? Where is this potential? And then you take a drink at age 12. I started with Chevis Regal from my dad's liquor cabinet because it was there. <laughs> like, why did you climb Mount Everest? Because it was there, right? <laughs> why did I drink Chevis Regal? That's what was there, right? And then I, I like to say I slowly worked my way down, you know. <laughs> After you puke on Chevis Regal, where else is there to go? I mean, you, got, you know. You change the stuff that's not brown. That's all I knew. I didn't like the brown stuff. I liked the clear stuff. Right? But something happened. And you listen to a real alky. And they may not describe this the first time they drank. But if you can get them to when alcohol started working, when alcohol starts to do for you what you can't do for yourself, that's not an esoteric statement. That you can find a power greater than yourself that can do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'll tell you how practical it was. Two weeks before my first drink, I go to the, the junior, the junior high school dance, whatever grade I was in. And there's a little girl across the room I wanted to dance with. I couldn't do it. I could not do it. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. That's the difference between a resolution and a decision. Because <laughs> two weeks later, I went outside and slammed down some Boone's Farm Apple Wine. Remember Boone's Farm Apple Wine? <laughs> With some guys. And went back in that gym, and I asked that girl to dance, and I danced. Because i got to tell you, when you live halfway between Detroit and Chicago, you got to dance, because if you don't dance, you ain't doing nothing else. <laughs> and I walked back in that gym, and it was it was real. And it was practical. It wasn't no esoteric. Esoteric stuff doesn't work for alcoholics. Same as this program. Some of it, if you're new, some of it sounds like out there. You know, you hear the ninth step and you're in step one. And you think it's still going to be the same you. They might be talking about this spiritual stuff and you're going to be transformed. But isn't it really going to be me at my best trying to make those amends? No.
Thank God it's not. Right. Mm. So I, I described when alcohol started working for me to my sponsor, and he says, it sounds like you're describing a spiritual awakening. <laughs> I mean, you hear a real alky talk about when booze started to do it. Might not have been right away, but at some point it starts to do something. And I gotta tell you, I am not one of these alcoholics that my worst day sober is better than my best day drunk. Or whatever that is. I don't even know how to say it right. <laughs> I had some great times drinking. <laughs> and I've had some dark times sober. <laughs> I had a ball. I had a ball. People that say that whatever that slogan is, however it goes, I wonder how they drank. It's like the guy that told me getting off cigarettes was going to be getting lot like getting off heroin. I said, what kind of heroin were you doing? <laughs> it's not even the same universe. <laughs> or the guy that said alcoholism and drug addiction are the same. <clears throat> that kills a lot of people in this program. Because you never get to a truthful first step. And we used to go through all these debates, and I used to have this nauseating story about put a hundred people in a cabin and have them drink every... It's as simple as this. Anybody in this room with time that's alcoholic knows people that could take or leave drugs that are alkies. And everyone in this room knows addicts that could take or leave alcohol. They're not the same. They are not the same. They're rooted in the same disease... But I gotta tell you, I had to find my truth because I did a lot of drugs. So I found booze at age 12. By age 14, 15, they didn't know what to do with me. Battle Creek was too small. And they sent me away to, to Boston. And that was heaven. First time I saw a street in Boston that was like a mile long, just lined with drug dealers, I, I said to my friend, is this heaven? Right? And bars that I could go into? and fake ID, and going to New York, and then Woodstock. And then because I'm a chameleon, I become a hippie. I was a hippie with a bad attitude. I was like, <laughs> and within one year, I was a criminal. The summer of love didn't last that long. Because <laughs> after six years of a lot of fun, by age 19, they put me in the Michigan State Penitentiary. My third felony... Daddy bought me out of the first two. And the first two were serious. The first one was sales of marijuana when sales of marijuana was the same as heroin, 20 to life. And Daddy bought me out of it. And I thought I was cool because I got a deferent from the draft and didn't have to go to Vietnam. And by the time I was convicted, I got convicted of a misdemeanor and kept the 4F from the draft. <clears throat> that mistake was made because they sent me to a military school in seventh grade for the summer, and I saw these military guys when I was in seventh grade, and I said, no, mm, mm, mm. I don't have anything against the military. If it wasn't for military, pacifists wouldn't be doing very well. <laughs> my troubles are of my own making. That's just the way I turned out. I don't know. <laughs> Thank God AA doesn't make any sense. Everything that ever made sense to me failed. And isn't it interesting? The only thing in my life that doesn't make sense to this day has worked. Everything that made sense failed. Why? Because it makes sense <laughs> to this. And this is what got me here. And I remember saying to my sponsor, I'm terribly afraid of my own mind. And he would say, you have good reason to be. Right? <laughs> 
So I look back now, and I don't see it the way I did 21 years ago after my first inventory. Because if I would have told you my story 21 years ago based on my first inventory, my problems would have been of a lot of other people's making. My big one, and we all got our big one that we hold on to to keep to keep from being responsible for what's going on in here. you got to keep the problem out here. You know, I believe recovery begins when the problem's no longer outside of you and when there's nobody left to blame. And as long as there's somebody to blame and the problem's outside of you, recovery will not begin. And that's how it was for me. But my big one was my father was 60 when I was born, and by the time I was 10, he was 70. And he didn't teach me how to play baseball, and he didn't teach me how to fish. And, uh, you know, in therapy, all those years after, it used to cause me a great deal of pain. Now, here's how recovery is different. In recovery, since I've woken up a little bit, my father's age when I was born gives me a tremendous amount of hope for the next nine years of my life. <laughs> for you new people, that's because I would like to be doing when I'm 60 years old what he was doing when he's 60 years old. You have to explain that in different parts of the country. <clears throat> that was my big thing. I didn't have a lot to put my finger on for why I turned out the way I did. And then I had six years of trouble from 19 to about 24. After my third, my second felony was an armed robbery. It was just kid stuff when I was 18. And the guy that was going to testify against me was persuaded in a loving, kind way not to do that. And he decided not to do that. And I walked out of the courtroom. <laughs> Imagine having to go back to that guy and make amends. I did. I did. I don't have a sponsor that edits my amends list. <clears throat> I was at a place in New York a couple of weeks ago, and they, this one guy said that his sponsor took off every relationship he was ever in with a female off his amends list. Told him he couldn't do that. My sponsor told me those relationships were some of the biggest things in my life and that I could get free, but I better let her know why I was there when I called. Don't let anybody amend, re, uh, edit your amends list. Each one is a piece of freedom they're taking away from you. In Denver, even, they told me I couldn't make amends to someone who was dead. Not my sponsor, but some of these other people. My two most powerful amends have been at graves <clears throat> to the two closest people in my life. So I had six years of fun, six years of trouble, and then I got out of the penitentiary, and I barely made it through parole. Parole is harder than time because you have all the rope in the world to hang yourself. And I don't need a lot of rope to hang myself. It was a short noose in Battle Creek, Michigan, let me tell you. <clears throat> and I made it through parole, and I got my dream that I came out of the penitentiary with. My dream when I came out of the penitentiary, I went to the penitentiary for, uh, it sounds better if I say what I was convicted. I was convicted of attempted uttering and publishing. If I say it that way, you might think I was a famous author who wrote something that wasn't quite right. But no, I wasn't. The original charge was forgery, uh, <laughs> but they lowered it to attempted uttering and publishing, and I would tell guys that I was an author, and uh, they'd say, what do you write? And I'd say, checks, because I wrote uh, $55,000 worth of $136 payroll checks in five days for a guy who wanted to help me out. I'm still leery of that phrase nowadays, even when I hear it in AA, because this was a brother that wanted to help me out. And he didn't help me out. He helped me in <laughs> to the penitentiary. 
And uh, I told that to Scary Frank once in Denver that that uh, <laughs> guys that scare they scare Bob Olson and Don Pritz this guy. And um, I said to him that uh, alcohol took me to the Michigan State Penitentiary. And he looked at me like I was an idiot, which I was. And he said, "What did they convict you of?" I said, "Forgery." He said, "Then forgery took you to the penitentiary. Alcohol got you out." And they, they, um, I, I was lucky. I got sent to a camp. It was like summer camp with black guys. It was cool. Nobody wanted to get in any trouble because they'd send you back behind the walls. And I drank every day in the penitentiary. I never understand people who say they go to jail, they can't drink. Mm. Where there's a will, there's a way. Or where there's no will, there's a way, depending on how you look at it. It's like that commercial with the grape juice and the little kid says, when you got to have a drink, you just got to have a drink. We made, we, I, was, <laughs> I was the guy they all thought was crazy because they'd make spud juice in the penitentiary and it's supposed to blow up once and then go back down and then blow up again. And you're not supposed to drink it when it blows up the first time because it'll make you blind. And I would drink it and they'd all look at me like I was crazy and they'd say, you'll go blind. I'd say, that's why I'm drinking. It doesn't scare me. Right? Got to have a drink. And they let me out when I was 21. So I spent my formative years in the Michigan State Penitentiary from that kind of a family. My grandfather was vice president of Post Serial. It had absolutely no effect on my life. <laughs> Alcoholism's a little stronger than what class you come from, what color you are. I heard a guy once, he did a retreat for our group, and on, after the whole weekend, on Sunday morning, 30 of us sitting in a circle, and he looks around the circle and he goes, AA is not for women. And the whole room was like, and he said, AA is not for black people. And everybody was like, he said, AA is not for gay people. And everybody was like, he said, AA is for alcoholics. And you remember, alcoholism doesn't care. But now I say thank God for alcoholism, and I say thank God for every drop I ever drank. Number one, if the kid that didn't find something at age 12 hadn't found something at age 12, I probably would have blown my head off if left untreated. That condition, feeling that way, and making those kind of decisions. I made a decision the first time I went into that place. You know that place. And it was the night when my dad had his first heart attack. And I could hear the commotion, and I could hear the pain, I could hear the ambulance, I could, and I couldn't move. And you go into that place, and then you come out of that place, and you say, I'm not going to ever go in there again. And once in a while with alcohol and the right combination of drugs, you could go into that place, but it wasn't real. And then I had six years of trouble, like from 24 to 30. My dream when I got out of the penitentiary was to deal blackjack in Las Vegas, Nevada, and have it going on. And it was a little unrealistic since you can't deal blackjack in Las Vegas with a felony, but where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> and um, in a pretty crazy, I won't bore you with the whole story, but I had one more report to go on parole, which means I had 30 more days. I just squeaked through. I had to transfer back to my mother's home. She lied for me. It's a cunning disease, Al-Anonism. They do everything alcoholics do without alcohol. Lie, cheat, steal, right? blame it on you, just like we do. 
I almost married one once. She came to our group in, a, in Santa Monica with seven years of sobriety and thought she was alcoholic and that she was feeling a little off. Picked this, unfortunately, picked the strongest woman in the group to go through the steps with and found out she was an alcoholic and finished amends and became somebody I didn't really want to be with. <laughs> As I'm going around the country talking about the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I lost somebody to the 12 steps that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. We're good friends today, and she came back to the center a little bit, but her getting well was about getting strong. I fell in love with a pa- peaceful um, woman. Uh, I'll also say to you, I made it through the penitentiary, celibate. <clears throat> I don't need to explain that to those I don't need to explain that to. But um, She uh, was peaceful and loved alcoholics and loved Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know she loved alcoholics just a little too much, but uh, <laughs> she finished amends and got free and found out from daddy to every boyfriend she ever had she was a full-blown Al-Anon and became strong and assertive and wasn't really crazy about her dependence anymore, which is AA, and got free. And at the end of it, I didn't really want to be with her. <laughs> That's funny. That was God's will number three. And... Um, uh, <laughs> So, through a series of uh, intuitive experiences, I got out of the penitentiary and ended up in Las Vegas, Nevada, into the arms of a man who was like my, I, was, I loved more than my father. I had known him since I was 17. He had four of us put one of these stars on our hands when we were 17, and they're all dead. That's another reason I'm here today. That's a more personal reason. They died and I didn't. Why is that? Well, I think God loved them a little more than he loves me. I'm still paying my ticket, and they got to get free. (laughs) I'm not one of these that believes that those in this room are the chosen ones. Chosen by God to be his messengers on earth. No, I think more like Chuck did, and that we're we're the ones that haven't quite paid our ticket yet. We're still paying our ticket. Yeah. So... There I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, dealing blackjack at the Dunes Hotel after working downtown and after dealer school and had the penthouse and the cars and the clothes and the women. And then this man that was like my father that got me all those things, got me into that industry, he uh, died in my arms of a drug overdose of drugs that I paid for with my money. And I lived with that from the time I was 24 until the time I was 33, three years in this program. And you have to think back to how would you feel if you felt you killed the closest, the, the person in your life you loved more than anybody. And you can't live with that. And he died, and a part of me died, and within six months I'd lost everything, and I got on a plane in kind of a chase scene thing to the airport, and um, <laughs> I went to Key West because I heard it was the furthest southernmost place in the continental U.S., and it's a great place to go if you couldn't get a visa. I couldn't get a visa to leave the country. Went to Key West before it was really a uh, tourist spot. This would have been 1974 or 5. And uh, it was more like Colombians and Cubans and people on the run. And the police were more crooked than the drug dealers. And I was just in heaven. I never had any trouble. I did whatever I wanted. You couldn't get in trouble in Key West. <laughs> you could do everything you wanted to do and not get in trouble. For me, that's heaven. And um, it's in this last six years of drinking that I find my truth about why I'm not a real drug addict. 
because I made up my mind one day that I didn't like the way cocaine made me feel, and I never did it again. Walked away from it on my own power. And I share that with a real addict, and their eyes glaze over because they tried that a million times. And given a sufficiently strong reason, I stopped. I had a couple bouts before that with heroin, and I woke up one day and I said, not that I don't like the way it makes me feel, we like cocaine. I said, I don't like where this stuff takes me, gets me in trouble. Never did it again the rest of my life. So by the textbook, by our textbook, I'm a hard drug user who's a real alcoholic. Now, do I have the delusion that finding that out means I can use drugs and not go back to what I have no choice over? Now, that's a little confusing because most people in some places will tell you that the drug you have absolutely no choice over is your drug of choice. It's very deceiving. The only time I had a choice over drugs was when it was yours, right? <laughs> and I got to tell you, a lot of people have come to our group in Santa Monica because in L.A. you get people with a lot of different problems because it's a city filled with people with a lot of different problems. <laughs> and I was used to Denver where the fellowships are pretty clear. And uh, I'm not saying you can't be both. I'm saying find someone that will give you the dignity to find out your own truth and not push it on you. There's groups in L.A. where the whole thing is, is to find a new person and bring them to your group. There was a time in this program when our success rate was a little better than it is now where you were taken to recovery before you were brought to the group because they cared more about the group than they did themselves looking good by bringing somebody. Our big book says that our success rate was 75% when, you, when, the, when people were taken to recovery before they were brought to the fellowship. You didn't come to a meeting until you were in the eighth step. That's not what we do now. We do it the other way around. We bring them to the fellowship and tell them things like, wait till you feel better to work the steps. I think it's the other way around. You should probably bring them to your meeting and say, you're probably not going to feel much better until you work the steps. All right? <laughs> New York, some places, they say we work a step a year. Cool. Imagine Bill, Dr. Bob, if he had called Bill Wilson rather than the other way around, and Dr. Bob called Bill Wilson in his first year of sobriety and said, you'll have to wait 11 years, 11 years until I get to step 12. <laughs> step a year, I wouldn't have made it. I made it six months, I was ready to kill myself. After having a great time for six months, boom, there it is. You know what that is. <clears throat> And isn't it funny, when my parents used to tell me I had so much potential, I had a question in my mind that, a lot, that I, I lived with in this program from time to time and when I was new. And you all know what that question is. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I love this person more than anybody I've ever loved in my life. I say I'm not going to break her heart, and I end up over here, and I've broken her heart. I didn't want to. You didn't choose to. Guilt and remorse aren't for alcoholics. How can you have guilt and remorse over something you had no choice about? Guilt and remorse are for people that could have done something better. My mom, I was six years sober before my mom said that she understood why I did the, what I did the day of my dad's funeral. The day of my dad's funeral, I was 21 years old. I was in the same hospital that he was in. He was in the intensive care unit. I was in the psych ward after those check things, after my writing career was over, and um, <laughs> he's in the intensive care unit and I'm in the psych ward. And he doesn't know that. I was in a family where they kept stuff from each other. 
I'm sure at the country club I was the son that was usually at camp or away at school. <laughs> oh, he's at camp, right? I'm in the penitentiary. That's about whatever looks good in that, in that whole lifestyle. <clears throat> and, um, I'm in the psych ward. My dad's in the intensive care unit. They take me to see him two days before he passed away. We had a nice talk. Two days later, he passed away. They took me to his funeral. And I was taken to his funeral by a guard because I was still basically in jail. And uh, my mother said something to me she never said to me in the eight years I'd been drinking. She said, please don't show up at your, drunk at your dad's funeral. And with all the love and everything I had to muster, I said, I won't. And I meant it. And I didn't have that little plan in the back of my mind. And I asked him, could I go across the street to say hello to a friend? And they agreed. And I went across the street to say hello to a friend. And he asked me, did I want to have a beer just to calm down? And I said, I'll have two just to take the edge off. And somewhere between the second one and the 20th one, I lost the power of choice. I didn't have any control. And I showed up so drunk at my dad's funeral, they tied me to a tree by my ankle with a chain at my own father's funeral. And I didn't want to do that. And I didn't choose to do that. And that's why I say to you that I'm glad my drinking took me beyond choice. And I'm so glad I didn't come here with one. Because a lot of people come here and they still have one. But my sponsor pointed out to me that, that if the day if the day comes in sobriety that I think I have a choice whether I drink again or not, that's the insanity of alcoholism they describe in our book. Everybody in those chapters, there is a solution, more about alcoholism, whether things were sunny, not a cloud on the horizon, or the guy that was mad, or the guy that was working for a company he once owned, or the guy that was 35 years sober and out came the carpet slippers. Every one of them fell victim to the same belief that somehow they had a choice. The idea that I have a choice today is as insane as the idea I had a choice when I got here. Because I believe this. In a fit spiritual condition, there's about as much choice to drink as there was to not drink when I got here. And the reason I say I'm glad I, I drank past choice was I've watched people in this program who believe they have a choice suffer, suffer, suffer. Because then there's a choice about the steps. And then all of a sudden how it works says that the steps are suggested. How it works doesn't say the 12 steps are suggested. It says this is a suggested 12-step program. Some people make it sound like AA is over here and the steps are over here and never the twain shall meet and you'll just be fine hanging out in the fellowship and just not drinking. But i got to tell you, I'm a guy that just not drinking and going to meetings did not treat my alcoholism. It brought it to the surface because I was around these guys in Denver that helped bring it to the surface. They didn't just... Bob Olson ain't a hugger, right? He ain't a warm and fuzzy kind of guy. And the guy that scares him, Frank McKibben, wasn't warm and fuzzy with me. Because they knew I was an alcoholic when I got here. And they didn't punch, they didn't hold their punches. Because they, here's what I found where I got sober. They loved me more. They cared more about whether I lived or died than how I might feel about what they had to say. Because I gotta tell you, that's not easy. And that's not easy if you want to be popular. And that's not easy when you're trying to be a circuit speaker. <clears throat> I don't care about being popular anymore. I care about being effective. And effective isn't always popular. <laughs> Things are so... I heard this joke the other day, so I had to add my own little bit to it. And the joke is you really know when things are upside down in the world when the uh, most famous rapper is white, the most famous golfer is black, 
The French accuse us of being arrogant. <laughs> Germany doesn't want to go to war. The tallest basketball player is Chinese. And the message of Alcoholics Anonymous is no longer popular in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's when you know it's upside down. And I don't know about up here, but down where I live, except in a few groups, the message of Alcoholics Anonymous is not popular in Alcoholics Anonymous anymore. Then you have to ask the next logical question, what's the message? Well, i got to say this. <clears throat> My sponsor told me not to, but I'm going to. <laughs> he lives in Denver. I live in Los Angeles. I'm not going to say he won't hear this because I've gotten in trouble for that before, but it used to be very simple. A lot of people in this room got sober on the third edition of the big book. And the third edition of the big book, if some dummy asked you, where is the message? You could take him to the paper cover, if you still had a paper cover. If you were like me, you threw the paper cover away and covered your cover because you were more ashamed of being sober than you were of being drunk. <laughs> Everyone in town knows all this crazy stuff you do. You get sober and you don't want anyone to know. <laughs> I don't want to break my anonymity, right? I think anonymity is at the level of press, radio, TV, and film to protect us from me. Right? I always get it confused like personalities before principles. Certainly doesn't mean I should put principles before my own personality. Right? I heard the traditions read one time and they got to, to tradition 12 and the person said, animosity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. And I thought it really is kind of, isn't it? It's the only way AA grew, or we'd all be in one group, right? Imagine one group per town. Ooh. Ooh. You'd have to get free. <laughs> so, I don't know. I had six years in, in Key West, and that was more like I was trying to die. And you know, it's really hard to wake up one day and realize, especially for those of us that tried suicide, and I always love to get a drug addict who says, I never tried to commit suicide. I'm not like those people, failing to realize every shot, every fix could have been death, and you knew that. I'm not going to talk about drugs, but in the dope world, it's really strange that somebody ODs, and that's where everybody goes to get the dope. <clears throat> but they're not suicidal. And I had a head full of knowledge and no power to do anything with it. And that's a horrible place to be in an AA. To know more than you have the ability to follow through on. To have more affairs than you do principles. <clears throat> Which is the first thing my sponsor told me about step 12. you got to have more principles than you do affairs to practice them, right? And I had all this knowledge about myself because I'd, I'd been in eight treatment centers. I had a master's degree in psychology. It took me seven colleges to get two degrees, but <laughs> I'm flexible. <laughs> I like to move around, see the country. Seven colleges later. Here I am in Key West and it doesn't go away. And I'm not doing drugs anymore. I walked away from drugs. It was me and booze. And um, tried to leave Key West five times. I'd get to Miami. I'd walk into a bar. I'd spend my money. I'd go back to Key West. And the game I was playing at the time was I would call home 
to Battle Creek, Michigan, and I'd say, I'm coming home. They'd say, no, you're not. How much do you want? I thought for a long time I was paid to stay away, but that's when I wanted to be a victim. What I was was blackmailing my family. (laughs) It's a little different than being paid to stay away. And that wasn't in my first inventory. And I couldn't tell you that today. (laughs) Therein lies another reason I'm glad I write a business which takes no regular inventory, usually goes broke. Next time you're broke, take an inventory. (laughs) It could be physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. So, after trying to leave Key West five times, I had to trick myself into leaving. That's a strange thing when you're able to trick yourself. And I came up with a plan to make it so I'd have to leave Key West. And the plan was, rip off the right person and you'll have to go, and you'll have to go quickly. And I'm not stupid. I might be alcoholic, but I'm not stupid. I ripped off the right guy, and I had to go. (laughs) Quickly. Now, if I would have known that I was going to go back to him many, many years later and make amends, I still would have done it because I didn't have any choice. And there's no guilt or remorse in that. I didn't have any choice. It's like the the nine questions in the sex inventory. And the ninth question says, what should you have done instead? It doesn't say, what could you have done instead? What I could have done instead was nothing different than what I did. What I should have done instead was like somebody with some power would have done. But I suffer from a disease that's rooted in lack of power. Lack of power is my problem, not lack of self-esteem. If that's not evident by now, I'll just share a little longer, and you'll know that low self-esteem is not my problem. But a lot of us know, a lot of us know what it's like to feel low self-esteem. But you know why you got low self-esteem? Because of some self-esteem that's so high, you could never live up to it, and you gotta feel like a piece of you-know-what. Low self-esteem is a big con job sold to us by people in the field. They ought to be talking to you about having just a little too much self-esteem. And that's why you got low self-esteem. Because you're the greatest boyfriend in the world. And when she leaves, the greatest boyfriend in the world can't be left. So I tricked myself into leaving and I had to leave quickly and I went and ran to the last friend I had left in the world, and he was in Denver, Colorado, and I'd known him since I was seven. And I got there, and he said, "There, um, you're welcome to stay with my fiancé and I, but there's one thing. She doesn't like me to party, and you can't drink. And I didn't want to drink. And I said, great. Two weeks later, she threw us both out. <laughs> and my best friend since I was seven left me on a street corner, 30 years old in Denver, Colorado, more scared than when they put me in the Michigan State Penitentiary. Why was I scared? I have no idea. I wasn't doing anything illegal. See, I was really proud because I got out of the penitentiary, made up my mind I'll never be arrested, I'll never go to jail, I'll never be in a cop car, and I'll never go to the penitentiary ever again, and I never have. Except in the effect that alcohol has on me. I can be able, friendly, intelligent. I can be a psychopath. I can be diagnosed bipolar. Give me the right day, I'll show you any symptoms. The thing about bipolar manic depression is it's so similar to untreated alcoholism, you don't know what you treat. And I'd say do the first nine steps and then see if you're still manic depressive. Or stay on medication the rest of your sobriety and you'll have a jolly time because you won't feel anything at all. Or, (laughs) but my book says there's only two choices. 
Or they don't even call them choices. My book says there's two alternatives. Die an alcoholic death or live on a spiritual basis. Don't be mad at me. I'm just trying to carry the message from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't be mad at me. So I had to leave. There I am in Denver. He drops me on this corner. I do what I know to do. I go to treatment. Because I still had a great Blue Cross Blue Shield card. It was good for 30 days every year, every 12 months. That's unheard of nowadays, but some of you used to go on summer vacation. I used to go to treatment once a year for 30 days. <laughs> but this time I was only able to stay two days because I had to have a drink and I still wasn't done. Nothing worse than trying to get done in AA. Ooh. I remember a guy at York Street in Denver. He was always new and everybody at the club knew him. And he was in the meeting one day and there was a lady from another club who came to chair the noon meeting. I got sober in meetings with like 20 people around a table with a topic. And this lady opens the meeting in the general way. You wouldn't have thought anything. Anybody here in their first 30 days, John raises his hand. Everybody claps. She says to him, keep coming back. Nothing abnormal there, you wouldn't think. Ten minutes later, John raises his hand. He said, I need to say something. She says, what? She says, he says, I'd like to ask you people not to clap and pay so much attention when I'm new because I get more attention when I'm new than when I stay around for a while and quit telling me to keep coming back. That's my problem. I think I can. Mm. And your mind goes, whoop. That saying keep coming back to somebody could perpetuate a reservation in their own mind that will kill people. Keep coming back. You got another chance. Might as well just say that, huh? You don't ever have to drink again. Those of you in this room that are new, if you're done. See, we're not here to get people done. You got sponsors, 20, 30, 40 years sober, they'll encourage you to drink. And then you got the ones that'll try to stop an alcoholic from drinking. Now you can ask any Alanon in this room what it's like to try to get an alcoholic to stop drinking. You're either, I think Lois said it in our book. Either you're either in the grace of God or you're not. Don't worry about it. Right? I didn't read the chapter to the wives for a long time, and I was in Dallas a couple years ago working for a friend of mine. In this book study I was going to, they were reading the chapter to the wives. Now, why not read the chapter to the wives? Well, I've never had a wife. Why read the chapter to the wives? That's like thinking you're a big-time believer, so you shouldn't read We Agnostic. Nothing worse than working with a big-time believer because they, they believe what they believe, and they believe what they believe is true. And they got to go back through all that to get to where an agnostic starts. <laughs> I'd much rather work with an atheist than a, than a big-time believer in AA. Right. So, I had to leave treatment after that two days because I had to have a drink. They put the pajama law into effect in that treatment center because of me, and I was proud of that. And only in A would somebody be proud of something like that. The doctor, I saw him not too long ago, Dr. Larry, he's 40 years sober now, and he said, I still hold the record of anybody he's ever seen how long in detox. I was 15 days in detox just from alcohol. And I was proud of that. (coughs) It's like I walked into a meeting in a foreign country one time, and there's nothing on the wall. People are not introducing themselves. The meeting had already started. I'm hardly ever late. And I was even sure if I was in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
But somebody said, I'm the most selfish person in the room. And someone else said, no, I am. They spent the rest of the meeting deciding who was the most selfish. And I thought, only in AA would that be a debate. They don't debate that at JC's or the, you know, the... <clears throat> only an alcoholic would find virtue in being the sickest person in the room. And when you're new, they love to reinforce that. You're the most important person in the room, and you're sitting there, and your your life is just a mess. You've failed at everything, and you go, finally, I've arrived somewhere. They've, uh, they've realized my true importance. <laughs> and then they start telling you things that are really confusing, because old-timers know that they either need to increase your ego until it blows up, or that it's already smashed and you're ready. So they'll tell you things like, oh, you get up to take a cake. Inevitably, someone in the back of the room will say, how did you do it? And by the time you're at, by the time you get from your seat to the podium, you've gone from the grace of God to a wonderful achievement. <laughs> I was told the only way to miss miracles in your life is take the credit. Turn miracles into accomplishments and you'll never have any more miracles, but you'll be a wonderful person. And you get up there and you go, how did I do it? Well, let me tell you how I did it. <laughs> Or when they ask you, are you willing to go to any length? You know what any length is for an alcoholic like me? It's not in, it's not in what I'm going to be able to do. Any length for an alcoholic like me is to say, I don't know. I don't know. That's any length. And that took a lot of years and a lot of drinking and a lot of torture to just admit, there's nothing I can do. And then they go, ah. Because, see, I think when they ask you, are you willing to go to any length, they just want to hear your list of reservations of what you think you can do to keep yourself sober. And if there's anything you can do to keep yourself sober, then you're not powerless. I'm powerless over alcohol because there's nothing I can do to keep myself sober. Our group makes fun of people in L.A. that say we just don't drink no matter what. People that have their own little list. Call somebody. What good is that going to do if an obsession hits? How about this one? Remember your last drunk. I bet there's some men and women in this room that <coughs> can't remember the last six months of their drinking. <laughs> My book says you're not going to be able to remember the, the pain and the misery of a week or a month ago, let alone 22 years ago. This isn't from experience, but there's a lot of women in this room that know the pain of their last childbirth wasn't a contraceptive to keep them from getting pregnant. Same thing. I can't remember with enough force. I can't remember with enough force what it was like when I got to amends the last time and why I should finish them now. Why? Because of, of a phenomena that deals with the third part of my disease. Dr. Silkworth knew about the craving. Carl Jung, the father of modern-day psychology, knew about the mind. But who was it that knew about the spiritual malady? A man whose literature is no longer part of AA. A man whose literature you have to order it from other places now. And that was Dr. Bob's friend, Dr. Harry Tebow, who wrote about the dry drunk syndrome, who wrote about having had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, how the ego can rebuild, and why it's necessary to rework and rework and rework the first nine steps on a regular basis because of this phenomena that I don't hear old timers talking about anymore. Because a lot of them have elevated themselves, and I'm glad to be a member of a home group where they don't allow me to elevate myself to such a position that I couldn't share that kind of stuff 17 years sober, or 19 years sober, or 21 years sober. 
that it feels like I'm up against another wall. I can't move my life any further. I'm having trouble with personal relationships. I can't control my emotional nature. I'm experiencing misery and depression. Making a living isn't satisfactory to my own spirit anymore. And I can't seem to be a real help to other people. Working with others is flat. And everything that was really exciting six months ago feels like I'm just like anesthetized. But thank God for those that have come up against that. Thank God for those that are willing to talk about reaching a time after time after time. For me, it's about every two years I do the work. It's not the same inventory. A lot of old-timers will say to me, you mean you're writing the same inventory that you did 22 years ago? No. I'm writing inventory about the stuff that I miss when I fall asleep from the last time I finished amends until now. Because I ain't perfect at 10 and 11. And 10 and 11 for me is not just a repeat of 1 through 9. And 10 and 11 for me are not maintenance steps. Who wants to maintain a state of consciousness that's wonderful that you reach when you're done with every amends you're consciously aware of? My, the 10th and 11th step for me are about growing past that in understanding and effectiveness. <clears throat> So I left this treatment center after two days, and I spent about eight weeks up and down this street, East Colfax Avenue in Denver. And I don't know why I thought I had to move every two or three days. I guess it was alcoholic paranoia. And I would move. And I woke up August 17th in a room, and there was what scared me was there was no reason I could put my finger on. Usually it's a screaming girlfriend or a hotel guy or a parole officer. This day there was no one, no reason I could put my finger on and for the first time in 18 years I couldn't drink. I never felt comfortable in, in these 22 years of sobriety saying I quit drinking August 17th, 1982. But when I read Bill's description, I was removed from alcohol for the last time. That's the way it feels to me in my heart, that I was separated from alcohol. Because I woke up in this hotel room and I couldn't drink. There was about this much left in a bottle of vodka, which was rare. And I couldn't drink. I called my mother to tell some lies, to get some money, and out of my mouth came, I can't lie to you anymore. And I went back to the treatment center I had been at eight weeks earlier. And the director said they'd found out about me because they were concerned when I left. And they knew how many times I'd been to treatment. And they knew I was a therapist and that I had worked in treatment. And that if I wanted to stay, it had to be on their terms and, 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 and their way. And I was in a state that a lot of you have been in. I was willing to do anything. And I didn't create that willingness. A magical combination of booze and God created that willingness. And it was a gift. And both of them are a gift. And I said, okay. And they said, well, these are the terms. You can't go to group. Because in a week, you'll either run it or turn it into a game. <laughs> You cannot talk to anybody during business hours from the time you get up until dinner except your therapist and it's Father Felix and he's a monk in a monastery at night and a therapist in the field during the day and he knows everything about God and nothing about therapy and you know everything about therapy and nothing about God and he and I were perfect. <clears throat> he told me when I got out 45 days later, I was 15 days in detox and 30 days in treatment. And he told me when I got out, he said, Joe, you can barely speak to one person. You want to go find out about how to talk to people? Go be a volunteer for the National Council and work with kids. And that's where I learned to talk with people. Because kids, a lot of you know better than I do, you can't lie. You can't. 
And I started going to meetings. And they said, 90 meetings in 90 days. If one's good a day, I go to three. That's my philosophy. If one feels good, three is better. And I got a sponsor totally different than what I wanted. Because I heard Don P. in my first meeting in treatment in a room like this on a Friday night in the basement of the treatment center, and it scared me. You know why it scared me? Because I heard a man who was like me. He felt like I did as a kid. What's wrong with me? He'd been to the penitentiary. He'd been on drugs. He got to AA. didn't know what he was. Alcoholic, addict, both. He described how he felt. And it was me. But you know what scared me? I saw that he wasn't like me anymore. And you know what I thought? He had changed himself. And it took me six months to hit bottom with the second half of step one. You see, I thought the, blank, the dash in the first step meant fill in the blank. And this was my first step. Yes, I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol, and that's why my life is so unmanageable. So now that I'm not drinking anymore, everything should be just fine. And what I needed to see was that drunk or sober, I'm an alcoholic and I can't manage my own life. Sober. Because alcoholism is what you're left with after the body's cleaned out. This stuff that starts to come to the surface that you made a decision about never looking at again when you were young. The idea of going in. When I heard the great reality is deep down within, I knew they were talking about I was going to have to go into that place that I had decided never to go into again. But thank God when I got to that step, I didn't feel I was going into that place alone. Isn't it interesting? The last place I ever wanted to go was the only place that I was going to be able to find God. And isn't it interesting? In the middle of the garbage is the consciousness of the presence of God. So it took me six months to ask Don. And, of course, I picked a sponsor because you got to get a sponsor before you got out of treatment. I picked a guy totally opposite from Don. Harry was great, though. He taught me how to pick up women in treatment centers and took me to meetings and got me involved in the fellowship, dances. We reviewed the first three steps in two hours. He said, you alcoholic? I said, yep. He said, is your life unmanageable? I said, yep. He didn't ask me why. He said, you believe in God? I said, sure. He didn't ask me what kind of God that was going to strike me down as soon as I was a bad AA member or didn't do something right that my sponsor said. He said, let's do this prayer. I said, from where? He said, this book. I didn't have a clue. We read some stupid prayer from some stupid book. And he gave me a mimeograph sheet on how to write inventory. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, it was a four-column inventory. You really can't do a four-column inventory without some power. You try to do four-column inventory in your head, you just end up with a big mess. I bet people in this room have had the experience where something comes off the end of your pen that didn't come from your mind. I heard a guy the other day put it more simple, because I've heard sponsors that actually say, hey, glad to meet you, glad you're new, go home, start inventory. I heard, <laughs> that's deadly. To send someone into inventory without the foundation in one, two, and three? You know, this guy the other day put it more simple than anybody I'd ever heard. He said, four comes forth. <laughs> I thought, man, that's too simple for a guy like me. You know, I would say to Don when I finally asked him at six months when I was dying inside with everything better out here, that's when you start to get ready. You got the dream out here and you're still empty in here because the unmanageability of my life ain't out here. The unmanageability of my life is being shut off from something that other people are connected to, which is the human spirit. My spirit's not sick. Our group made the mistake of interpreting spiritual malady that the human spirit was sick and an alcoholic. How could the spirit be sick? But I'll tell you, being shut off from it is a really horrible malady. 
not having anywhere other to go than the three dimensions you've lived in your whole life, body, mind, and emotions. There ain't nowhere else to go. That's a horrible way to live. Shut off from power. Shut off from spirit. Shut off from the only thing that's going to be a substitute for the effects of alcohol. And even greater. So I would say to Don things like, I feel inferior and insecure. His eyes would light up the only like a sponsor's eyes can. And they always had that stupid giggle. Right? Nothing more fun than when you're a sponsor, though, and you can use all that stuff that pissed you off that your sponsor did with you, right? I'd say, I'm inferior, and I feel inferior and insecure. He looked up at me and said, you want to know why you feel inferior and insecure? I said, yeah, I've been looking for the answer to that for like forever in therapy. He said, the reason you feel inferior and insecure is because you're inferior and insecure. <laughs> My God, that's too simple. I want it to be Freudian. I want it to be heavy. I want someone to blame. And there was nobody left to blame, and the problem wasn't out here, and I was ready for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I'll get to talk about tomorrow. Um, since then, my life has been... I had five years in Denver, ten amazing years in Santa Monica, living on the beach, fell in love with working with others, watched a home group grow up from 12 people who went through the work together, then they didn't know what to do, so they started a group on 10, 11, and 12. My home group for four years, 17 years ago, you couldn't share unless you were done with the men's because it was on 10, 11, and 12, and they didn't want to hear theory. They wanted to hear experience. Nothing worse than talking about something you don't have anything but opinion with. And I don't want to hear anybody's opinion about finishing a men's who hasn't because that would all, that's all it would be. I want to meet people that have done everything they can to find every amends they're aware of. And your whole life takes off. And you enter the world of the Spirit. And after ten years in L.A., God said, wow, you get to go to India. You get to study with the Dalai Lama and start a drug and alcohol treatment program for the Tibetan government. And I had five unbelievable years. And like rotation, as soon as the three parts of that drug and alcohol program were up and running, God said, you got to go. And I got to come back to America two years ago. Just in time, because five months after I got back, my mother passed away. My oldest friend in AA died five days later. Now I'm in the middle of watching another dream come true. A dream that I, if I would have planned it myself, I would have sold myself short. I'm watching a retreat center come together up north from here that I'm going to get to be a part of, that I'm going to buy and invite friends and AA groups to come. And I'm going to get to have a non-denominational residential retreat center. It's been a dream of mine for a long time. It was my sponsor's dream a long time ago. He didn't get to do it. And he's uh, might not be around a lot longer. I might not be around a lot longer. You might not be around a lot longer. But you do have a choice. Once you're in the grace of God, you do have a choice. And that is whether you want to die from alcoholism or whether you want to die with alcoholism. And I'll tell you one story and I'll shut up. My life was like this bird that lived in Michigan. And I like this story because it's about a bird. My name, my name is Hawk. And it's about this bird. It's about this bird that lives up in Michigan and one year he's not going to do what the flock does. He ain't flying to Florida. <clears throat> he's going to stay in Michigan. And he's damn near ready to freeze up. Just before he dies, he gets the slight idea it might be good to take off and head south. And he gets up in the, in the sky, and, it, and it's too late, and he freezes up, and he, die, he does a nosedive into a cow pasture. And he's laying there freezing to death, and a cow comes by and poops all over him. 
and it feels so warm, and it feels so cozy. You know what's coming, don't you? It's warm, and it's cozy, and he yells out a song in joy because his life has been saved by the cow that pooped on him, and a fox hears the cry and comes over and pulls him out of the pile of poop and cleans him off in the snow and eats him. And you know the moral of the story? Not everybody that poops on you is your enemy. Not everybody that pulls you out of a pile of poop is your friend. And if you're sitting in a warm pile of poop and it feels really good, keep your damn mouth shut. <laughs> Thanks for letting me see. Right to it. Um, I would love if we could, you know, just start on the title page and go through each page together. And uh, with our time constraints, it's a little hard. I'm, I'm not going to bore you with my drunkalog, but I will say this. I drank enough alcohol. I drank enough alcohol and I caused enough harm and I destroyed myself enough to where I was pretty much ready to do this work when I got here. It took me six months to hit bottom with the second half of step one, which we'll get to. Um, I had no doubts from the day I got here until today that where alcohol is concerned, I don't have any control. That's never a bad thing to review because more can be revealed or it can be seen at a deeper level. I am not an alcoholic who was successful doing one through nine once and trying to live the rest of my life in 10, 11, and 12. It's not just because I come from that school. I could have bailed on this work a long time ago because I moved from where I got sober when I was five years uh, sober. It just seems that about every so often, and now it's at a point where I do it intuitively, I suffer from a phenomenon that isn't talked about a lot. And that's whether you want to call it the dry drunk syndrome or the reconstruction of the ego. And the doctor you want to reference to find out about that is Dr. Harry Tebow. Uh, I do come from a lineage where they knew him. My great-grand sponsors, uh, Paul Martin in Chicago, who's, uh, I think, coming up on 60 years sober and was brought in by Dr. Bob. Um, he sponsors a man named Gary Brown, who lives in Indianapolis now, um, who is my sponsor's sponsor. And uh, Gary, Gary also got sober in Denver. And my sponsor is a man named Don Pritz uh, in Denver. Um, I'm proud to come from that lineage, but there's great responsibility, and I think this is the same responsibility for all of us. But if one looks at it as a regular kind of responsibility that just might help a little bit, and it's not about life and death, then the responsibility becomes something much different. Um, at the root of all this, it's, it's about life and death for me. And the sad thing is I can't do anything about either one. I failed at both. We're not just failures at living, we're failures at dying. We're not, the, we're not, we, we're the ones that are still here. Um, if anyone in this room was a failure at dying, we wouldn't be here this morning. Um, and to see that you're a failure at both because of lack of power, not just because you're a bad person. We're not bad people. We have a disease that centers in lack of power. Um, I wanted to talk about things I've watched over the years just for a minute that I think precede step one. Because some of us had long periods of time before we were exposed to the first step in this book. Me, I made it six months I was ready to kill myself. And I'd had a great six months in AA. 
I was going to meetings. I was making friends. I loved the fellowship. Um, I didn't know what I was yet, so I was going to NA. I was going to AA. There was no CA in Colorado then. Um, I got sober August 17, 1982, and I think it was the perfect place for me. I think most anywhere else um, or some of the other messages that a lot of us have been exposed to would not have worked for me in that place I reached at six months. And it was a different kind of place because everything out here was better. So what I'd like to talk about, one of the things is uh, that I've seen over the years is I think if there if there is a step one, there must be a step zero. And I like the analogy because it's a zero. I believe that step zero is that period of time from your last drink until you give yourself to the recovery process outlined in this book. It could be a four-year period. It could be a year. It could be nine months. I've seen people 26 years before they were driven to a place where they had no other alternative. And I like the idea of the zeros because, for me, step zero is that period of time from your last drink until you give yourself or you surrender to this process where you're going around and around and around and might not even be awake to it, eliminating any other alternatives but the two to be ready to do what's in here. There's always a third alternative. Well, I could die an alcoholic death, or I could live on a spiritual basis, or I could get the right girlfriend. <laughs> and as long as there's a third alternative, who in the world, who in the world would give themselves to this process if they had any idea what it was going to entail if there was a third alternative? Then you go through a couple girlfriends and it's die an alcoholic death, live on a spiritual basis, or get the right job, you know, or the right amount of money. Or, you know, and it's just an endless circle. It's just a big zero, eliminating alternative after alternative. If you make it through step zero, which is the roughest step, it's much rougher than step nine. <laughs> uh, it's a horrible step. And I don't think you can move from step zero to step one if there's any choice or alternative left. The chapter to the wives, which I'd kind of like to use as a reference, in that chapter they're described four types of alcoholics. For me, the judgment and the debate and what I used to say isn't necessary anymore. The book does it really well. I had just not looked at that chapter for a long time. You know, you don't have a wife, you don't read the chapter to the wives. That's the kind of alcoholic mind I have, you know. You've been around for a while, you can't believe you could ever be an agnostic again, so why read the chapter to the agnostic with 15 years of sobriety? Because <laughs> now you're a big-time believer. Yeah. What I didn't know is that there could be a lot of beneficial stuff in the chapter to the wives, the employer, the family afterward, a vision for you, and... There can be agnosticism after however many years of sobriety I've had. Pieces of agnosticism that are blocking me from a deeper experience with the presence of God. Um, so step zero, I think we've all been there. I don't think anybody came here day one. I, mean, I know they used to. There might be a couple exceptions in the room if you were lucky enough like to be 12-stepped and on day one you were in the work, but it's not the typical story. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was, because it's going to be involved here today, if, if I'm giving you permission to ask me anything that you would like to ask, 
and you give me permission to ask anything I would like to ask, then something takes place in the room that we might not be clear about or be able to feel in the room if those agreements aren't made. And I believe this is also where the work starts. You meet a guy, he's expressed some interest, you might begin to give him some sort of a prayer and some sort of an assignment, but if there isn't this spiritual consent, I like to call it spiritual consent, where you have given him permission. I told this to a lady once who had been in, in a group in Los Angeles for 17 or 18 years. I just simply said very casually, you know, if we're going to start this work, you can ask me anything you want. She started crying. I said, what's wrong? She said, in 17 years, no one has ever allowed me to do that. And then vice versa. I'm going to ask you, because i got some questions here in a minute. There, there, some places there are important questions. Here I think we're probably going to just look at a few uh, about current myth, myth in Alcoholics Anonymous. Myths that keep one, kept me in ignorance. Um, so we have this consent. Is there anybody in the room today that doesn't want to join in that consent? that I may ask whatever I'd like and that you may ask whatever you like. Anybody that doesn't want to participate in that? Great. Um, another thing I wanted to mention is I believe there's a different morality in Alcoholics Anonymous than the morality that you and I are used to. The kind of morality I'm used to is good and bad. Right and wrong. This is right, this is wrong. And all that does, and it, it, it can continue in AA, all it does is justify and solidify my judgments. I would like to present to you an idea that there is another type of morality that I never knew about beyond good and bad and right and wrong. And that is simply, is it working for you? That takes all the judgment out of it. You meet a guy, you say a few things, you have a little conversation, and if he says, hey, everything's great, not much you can do. <laughs> you see, I think when the chapter working with others says, if he cannot or will not accept what you have to offer, let it go because you might even spoil a later chance. I think that just means if he doesn't want or, or need what you and I have to offer in kind of a negative way. You know, just like denial or resistance. I also don't know that, I also know that that includes people who are, are, could be delusion, it could be true, are in such a great place, I don't really need to do this work right now. My life is really great, so don't think that consideration isn't just for, it's for people on both ends of the, uh, the disease. You know, I've met guys in such delusion, they just said everything's really fabulous, my life's going really great, I'm loving AA. A week later you hear they go home and they blow their head off because for some reason they haven't reached that place where they're going to give you the same thing you're going to give them. I believe there's a, uh, and sometimes I've taken it for granted that there isn't a commitment for the, I don't like to use the term, but for the sponsor as much as the sponsee. It's a big commitment, unless you're just collecting numbers, so you can say how many people you're working with. It's a big commitment for both parties. I mean, my God, we're going to go to hell together. It's not my favorite thing to do is to always be in step one with somebody, because I go there with them. You can't, how can you not if it's coming from your heart? And then you do it, and you go there, and you're willing to go there, into that place, you know, to show them there's something on the other side. 
Um, so we have this consent. We're going to look at a different kind of morality today. Let's get free of the judgment we have for people who don't do the work or aren't into it the way we think they should. God bless them. You know how I got free of this? And that used to be a big judgment for me. We were talking about it yesterday, how many times I've had to write inventory about people that aren't doing what I want them to in Alcoholics Anonymous, especially those people that aren't doing the work the way I think they should. The way I got free of that was the, the last time I had to write about it. It could come up. It'll come up again. It will come up again. But the, I've been free from it for quite a while from one piece of inventory, and I wrote, I resent those people that don't need to do the work. Went through the third column, saw these beliefs that are all screwed up, got into the fourth column, and what I saw was, is because I'd like to be a person that doesn't have to do the work. <laughs> it's really jealousy. It wasn't even resentment, you know, until you get on the other side of amends, and then you're really, really, really grateful that you're a person desperate enough to need the program, the whole program. And when I say the program, keep in mind I'm not talking about fellow, just fellowship, because I think there's people in this room, myself included, that dr not drinking and going to meetings didn't treat their alcoholism. But you're looking around the fellowship, and there's people who appear, I don't know if they're telling the truth or not, some of them must be telling the truth, that just not drinking and joining the fellowship was all they ever needed. You know, And for me, there's nothing worse than feeling out of place in the last place you had to go by people that don't really need it. And we get distracted by their experience. Rather than going crazy on questions about them, bring the question to yourself. Do I need to do this work? Do I have a choice in the matter? Do I have any other alternatives but to die an alcoholic death or live on a spiritual basis? Knowing that dying an alcoholic death doesn't always mean you have to go back to the bar. You can die an alcoholic death right here in Alcoholics Anonymous. We've certainly seen that. Um, let's, so we can get past our own judgments today with prayer and new ideas that the morality we're going to look at in relation to this work is, is it working? Is it working for you? Because I'll tell you, I wouldn't be here today if every time I've given myself to this process, revolutionary changes didn't went on. I wouldn't be here. And I wouldn't be here talking about some great revolutionary experience from 22 years ago. I'm here because I was amazed by this work the last time I started it and where it brought me to where I am now than I've ever been. And that's happened every time. I would love to say to you I've done the work perfect every time. I haven't. That's when you see the grace. Look for the grace in your mistakes. Look for the grace that you're still sober when you balk. Look for the grace in the middle of your amends list, not in your great accomplishments. But... Um, the first time I started the work, I didn't get through amends. I got through about 250 amends and rested on my laurels, and my whole life was changed, and I was hired to do a job. Nobody would have had me around their children a year and a half earlier. Yeah, there was a major change. It's promised in our book that halfway through the ninth step, you'll be amazed. And I was amazed. My family was amazed. First time my mother heard me speak, halfway through amends in Battle Creek, Michigan, in my hometown, she looked at me and said, you're not even the same person. But I stopped. I didn't, I, was, I didn't have a strong enough first step to get through nine. And that's going to be a major point today. If the first step isn't stronger in nine than it was in one, and, and one through eight has taken you further away from one, it'll die out. Because you'll lose your motivation. You'll, you won't remember. 
that you're making amends because you're powerless over alcohol and that your life's on the line. And they try to remind you. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning to go to any length for victory over alcohol. It's a subtle foe, the insanity. They try to tell, warn us at different points. I hit the wall quickly after that attempt at step nine. And what I saw was that I hadn't really completed eight. I had not become willing to make amends to them all. And I hadn't completed eight because I wasn't really clear on seven. And I wasn't really humble enough in six. And blah de blah de blah because by nine and a half, I wasn't really still convinced that I was powerless over alcohol. You can go forward through the steps, but I'll tell you, if you're not moving on, they will take you backwards. And wherever you are now that you're balking, if it's four, if you're stuck in an inventory now, you're struggling with uh, 10 and 11, you don't want to do upon awakening, you don't want to do the evening review, you're not really excited about working with others, it's not because of the step you're on. It's because of the linchpin. It's because of the connecting point that I'm powerless over alcohol. And I can't keep myself sober. That fades because of the phenomena that Harry Thibault told us about. The ego is a marvelous organ. <laughs> it rebuilds, reconstructs itself. It's like one of those animals that you cut the tail off and it grows back. So I wanted to talk about that morality and I wanted to talk about the first assignment that I would give somebody if you and I just met. And this would pretty much be if I just met you, you've been doing the work for 30 years, you've been through it umpteen times, or if we just met and you're brand new in the program, or if we just met and you've been around for a while but you haven't done any work. This would be most anybody that I meet. The first thing I like to do, you know, whatever, however the connection comes about, we talk a little bit, blah, 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 I heard you share, blah, blah, blah. And we would talk about if you're going to agree, because I believe after spiritual consent comes agreement. You see, we hear about some principles sometime, and I don't really like when somebody already takes the short version of the steps and puts one word on it. Step one, honesty. Are you kidding me? You're going to start someone in step one and tell them they have the power to be honest. They can't even tell the difference between the true and the false. And you're going to say, the principle for step one is honesty. <laughs> the principle for step one <laughs> is insanity. You can't differentiate the true from the false. Your best thinking got you here. But I think there's a, there's a principle in step one that's not talked about a lot. Admission. The power of admission. Remember how some of you, and you've all heard these experiences that people have had, just raising their hand for the first time and saying, my name's Joe and I'm an alcoholic. Some people have had tremendous experience just that day one, when the first time they said that. So I believe, and we could look at it, I, we don't have the time today, but you can look in relation to every single step involves the principle of admission, but especially in this first step. And the guy that took me through the first time said, don't just look at admission. I think of admission as me telling you what I think is the truth, you know, admitting. Also look at the idea that it also means to let in. What does it say on your theater ticket when you go in the movies? Admit one. That's really what we want to do in step one, right? And, and we don't need to admit something to let God in. If you're an alcoholic and you're sober and you're starting the work, 
you're in the grace of God whether you know it or not or whether you like it or not. <laughs> Unless you're keeping yourself sober. And good, that's where it begins. That's where the first step begins. But here's the assignment that I usually give somebody. Because if they're going to agree to do this work, shouldn't they have an idea of what that's going to entail? What, you and I meet and you're so, supposed to just submit yourself to some process you hear these goofballs talking about and weird, the process, I'm in the work, ooh, what's that? You know, they should have an idea whether they've been around 20 years or 50 years or five days. Uh, you don't know what the work's going to entail this time just because you've asked me. If you're asking me to do the work thinking it's going to be the same as the last guy you did it with or that the experience is going to be the same as the last time, where are you going to go? Just rehash old information? Or do you really want to have a new experience and an open mind? whether it's day one or you've been around for a long time. So the assignment is let them have an idea of what it's, they're going to be asked to do. So simply ask them to read from the title page to page 164. Don't worry, oh, am I giving them the right thing that's going to keep them sober? Do I have the right plan for them? Then you're in delusion. See, you know, I've known, and I killed a guy. That I, I, I didn't kill a guy. I, I, blew his, I blew a guy's mind in, in, in New York that I've been sponsoring for years when he's going on about these people he works with who just can't, or they just don't seem to. And I said, Larry, you've got a really clear first step for yourself, but are you, do you have a first step for the people you're working with? See, we can forget for them just as well as we can forget ourselves and start, you know, thinking there's something they can do. Maybe there's absolutely nothing I can do to stay sober, but there must be something this poor new person can do. So you want to give them the, just the right thing? <coughs> it's pretty simple. Either God has removed the obsession, or he hasn't. Don't worry. <coughs> Read the first 164 pages, and... Don't answer these four questions. Nothing worse than telling another alcoholic, and don't answer these questions, because the inclination is to answer them right away. But I will tell you this. Here's another thing. Just like the morality thing, let's get past the morality of he's right, he's wrong, he's trying to tell me this is the only way. I'm not telling you what I'm sharing with you today is the only way, but I can only share with you what's been shared with me and the experience I've had. It's not Joe Hawk's way of working the steps. People will come up to me and say, oh, I love your unique new way of working the steps. I don't have a way of working the steps. We start on the title page and we go through the first 164 pages and you take your life and you throw it up in the air because you don't know how it's going to go. But the, the new person or the person that's been around or whoever it is that's asking me, they should have an idea of what we're agreeing to. Read the first 164 pages and look at these four questions or five questions sometimes each time you sit down to read. But don't answer them right away. And if you can learn or if you can experience at right at the beginning the difference between answering a question and considering a question, it'll make all the difference in the next several assignments. Now, what do you mean by that? Okay, the first question is, is this work what I want to do? How can you answer that if you're just reading every day and you don't even know what it, what it is you're going to agree to? Do I want to do this work? Answer the questions when you've experienced them at a gut level, and then you're just putting down the answer that's already come to you. Don't look to do the answers up here. These questions in this assignment and the first three steps, these questions are not meant to be answered. They're meant to be experienced. 
They're meant to be experienced. It's like contemplation or a Zen koan or Christian contemplation. The question is not meant to be answered. You take the line, the word, the phrase, the question, you bring it to your heart and you let it because, see, my big book says that I need to fully concede to my innermost self that I'm alcoholic. Not, it doesn't say you need to figure out in your mind until you really understand that you're alcoholic. And that's the difference between the short form of step one and how much every, most everyone in this room knows that, that there is to step one in depth. See, this book has the short version of step one and the long version of step one and the short version of Tradition 1, and the long version of Tradition 1. The, the short version is in how it works. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, fill in the blank, and that our lives had become unmanageable. That's what I thought the dash was. Um, but the long form takes 43, plus the doctor's opinion, plus a few pages in We Agnostic. We're talking almost 60 pages out of 88. The first 11 steps are on 88 pages. 60 of those pages are devoted to one step. That tells me step one is pretty important. We're going to use everything from the doctor's opinion to three or four pages in We Agnostic. That's a lot of material to look at step one. That's the long form. You go through that and you can fully concede. You read it off the wall, all you're going to be able to do is conclude. I'd like you to experience the difference between concluding and experiencing, or knowledge and experience, or more information. No one in this room needs any more information. Most of you don't even need any more information about this book. And some of you are dying because you think you know about the information in this book, and I've been there. Carlos Castaneda wrote about it, The Trap of Knowledge. So the umpteenth time, 21 years sober, been doing the work since I was six months dry, can I get past what I think I know? So start the assignment, read 1 through 164, look at these four or five questions, and start a prayer in your own words, in your own way, from your own heart. Dear God, please set aside what I think I know so I can have an open mind and a new experience. It's simply a prayer that was given to me. Don, Don doesn't like it that we've ritualized it or that it's in a workbook called the set-aside prayer. It should be in your own way. It should be in your own words. And it should be from your heart. It shouldn't be memorized or written down. Each time you sit down or any time during the day during these first three steps, use a prayer. Just ask for an open mind and a new experience if you want to get past what you think you know. Some of my friends take that prayer and they change it into, Dear God, Please help me set aside everything I think I know. That's not what I'm going to ask, because if I'm the judge and the jury to set aside what I think I know, I'm going to end up back where I started the prayer. I'm going to ask God, let me have an open mind and a new experience, but I'm not the one that's going to create that. I'm asking God for an open mind and a new experience. Question one, is this work what I want to do? My friend Don Coyas, the Native American guy, he says to me, that for any alcoholic, whether new, old, or in between, when you answer that question, is this work what you want to do, it involves the ego to whatever degree it's rebuilt in the process, and it'll think it has something to do with deciding, and it'll go along with you much easier than if you don't decide, is this work what I want to do? So is this work what I want to do? 
Am I willing to go to any length to do this work? You're reading any length in 1 through 164. Because I'm not going to ask anybody I work with to do something that I haven't or that's, in, that's not in this book. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, the, the next question, why do you want to do this work? That's important to know from the very beginning because what if you spend six months and then they say to you, all I wanted was my husband back and you've gone through all this time. It's good to know from the very beginning, why do you want to do this work? And I think if it doesn't have something to do with life and death, you might want to reconsider working with that person. Or if it doesn't have something to do with life and death, at least by the time they're done with step one. But find out why. And then I always ask, why me? Because with the lunatics I get, by the time they leave my house the first time, I'm saying that to myself anyway. <laughs> why me? And then some people, if you think it will be helpful, I ask them another question, and that is, um, what areas of your life are you being dishonest with your, yourself or others? And just see how honest they can get at that time. And then you can make fun of what they shared with you when they're finally done with inventory because it won't bear any resemblance to what they thought they were being dishonest about when they started. But it's a, it's a good exercise. So uh, is this work what you want to do? Um, willing to go to any length, which is what they're reading in 1 through 164. Um, why do you want to do this work? And uh, are there any areas in your life where you're being dishonest with yourself or others? Don't answer the questions. Don't answer the questions. We're so conditioned, you know, from early childhood, whoever gets their hand up first to answer is the best. This, and I'll present you with this idea. Any one of these questions, because see, all the first three steps are considerations. And then a prayer at the end. Um, I'll present you with this idea. If you answer the question, you've stopped any more experience you can have with it. Answers stop the experience from going any deeper. Because once you know, you know, and that's it. It's not going to go any deeper. So don't answer the question. Get in the habit of considering the question and get in the habit of trying to learn the difference between coming up with an answer or letting an answer come to you through experience. You can have a first-step experience no matter how long you're sober because it's just the truth about where am I with alcohol. So I give them that assignment, and they start to read, and uh, I'll ask them to focus on the four types in, in the chapter to the wives and begin to ask themselves, but a lot of other places too, am I a real alcoholic? Do they have confusion about drug addiction, alcoholism, both? Is there a difference? It's really a debate we probably don't have enough time for today, but... Um, there are differences between drug addiction and alcoholism. And you can answer that simply by saying this. Everyone in this room knows alkies who can take or leave drugs. If they're all the same, then wouldn't every alcoholic be an addict? And wouldn't every addict be an alcoholic? And they're only different in respect to being clear on your own truth in the first step. We can talk about the spiritual maladies, step 2 through 12, but you're not going to have that common bond that one alcoholic needs with another. One of the mistakes they made in the forward to the fourth edition <coughs> on the inside cover, I mean on the inside pages, was that they, I think they're changing it now and I haven't seen the latest one, but you know in the fourth edition that I got in, in 2000, 
They said that a meeting online in front of a computer screen was the same as your home group around the corner. Or for me, the basis of Alcoholics Anonymous is one alcoholic sitting with another looking in each other's eyes. I'm not going to tell the truth if I go online in front of a computer screen. My name's Joe. I'm a 52-year-old fat guy who smokes cigarettes and uh, I don't drink anymore. No. They should have said that it's good to get in touch with us or if you're homebound or if you're in another country. Online can be very <coughs> helpful. But to say that it's the same sitting in front of a computer that's the day that I'm going to blow my head off when it's the same sitting in front of a computer screen as it is looking in your eyes. That's the day the world ends. Because <laughs> it ain't the same as my home group. Um, so, another thing is, what's the difference between being in the grace of God and going for a conscious contact night and day? I started to work with a guy who hadn't done much in 23 years, but he'd been sober. And he had a good life. And now he was hitting a wall. And he was losing it all. And he wanted to do the work. And he starts this prayer. Set aside what I think I know. Please, God. Let me have an open mind and a new experience. And he calls me about three weeks later and he said, I have a real problem. I said, what? I actually said, I know you do, but what do you think it is? And, and he said, uh, for 23 years I've been in the grace of God. Undeniably, right? He's alcoholic. If you're sober, you're in the grace of God, unless you're keeping yourself sober. He said, I've seen it in every area of my life. I've felt it. I've sat with it. I've realized it. Why do I need to do this work if I'm in the grace of God? Great question. I said, I don't know. I was ready to blow my head off after six months. You better pray about it. He calls me back about three weeks later and he says, I know why. Can I come over? I said, yeah. He said, he came over and he said, I know why I need to do the work. I said, why? He said, because I would like to have a conscious contact with that which has been giving me this grace for 26 years. He finished all his amends about a year and a half later from his whole life and his whole sobriety. And he said, the difference between being in the grace of God and a conscious contact with that which has given you this grace is like night and day. And that's why I do the work. You see, we don't do the work to stay sober. We do the work because we are sober. And if you can use the 12 steps to stay sober, then there's something you can do to keep yourself sober and you don't have a first step. We do the work to get a conscious contact with something that's already keeping us sober. And it changes your whole perception. It changes the... Remember those the times when you were new and you, had to, you, were, you were busy? Hundred commitments, seventeen thousand meetings, calling people every day, because that was your relapse prevention list. And if you can prevent your next relapse, then how can you be powerless over alcohol? If relapse prevention works for you, go out there, live your life. Just don't drink no matter what. Work on your character defects, bring about your own surrenders, and smash your ego. Because those things always seem to go together in that line of thinking, don't they? Don't they? I've never seen a guy who can just not drink no matter what who can't smash his own ego. <laughs> I should say I've never seen a guy who just can't drink no matter what who, who has been able to smash his own ego. But they think they can. You see, there are some people that think they just don't drink no matter what, and today they have a choice, but all it is is grace. God don't need the credit to, 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 to give you grace. 
It's an undeserved gift. It's also given in the same way. God doesn't love people like Dave for what he is. God loves people like Dave for what God is. God doesn't love people like me for what I am. God loves people like me for what it is. That's grace. But would you like to have a conscious contact with that? It's kind of like if you had a distant uncle lives in New York and you're in California, but he's saved your life a hundred times and he sends you everything you need every month, my mind would say, I'm moving to New York. I want to get close to that guy. I want to move in his house. So there's a difference between grace and a conscious contact. Don't confuse you're going to use the work to keep yourself sober. Don't confuse you're going to use the 12 steps to manage your life the way you'd like it to go. It's just the opposite. You do the 12 steps to let go of your will run on your life or your life run on your will. It's not a do-it-yourself fix-it program to get what you want. God will take you to stuff way beyond anything you want when you start the work. And I think it's also an interesting little joke to play on yourself to make a list of your assets and your liabilities when you start the work because you're going to get to step seven and you're going to say, damn, the stuff I thought was really good, it was killing me. And the stuff I thought was really bad has saved my ass. Right? You don't know the difference by the time you get to step seven. That's when you know it's worked. That's why it says the good and the bad. I don't know the difference. And isn't it funny, my list is always, here's the things that are good because they make me comfortable, and here's the things that are bad because they make me uncomfortable. And you end up with a spiritual life after several years in this program with a philosophy that goes like this. If it makes me uncomfortable, it's bad. If it makes me comfortable, it's good. And all you've got turned it into is another drug. Because while all, most of us in this room know there's a lot of stuff in this process that doesn't feel good. Alcoholism doesn't care about how you feel, nor does recovery. Nor does God, really. Because when you need it, he'll bring you some stuff that doesn't really feel good. Amends don't always feel good. Writing four-column inventory doesn't always feel good. Continuing to do just what feels good is, is the, the, the pattern of addiction that I brought to this program that needs to be broken. Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping comfort? The forward to the third edition, the paper cover. I used to throw my paper cover away and I'd cover my book with leather or something because I was ashamed of being sober more than I was being drunk. But the book that I got sober on in, in 1982, which was, which was uh, published in 1976, used to say that the basic text, page 1 through 164, is the AA message. And you used to be able to take people to the paper cover when they would ask, you know, nothing like having a newcomer and he goes to his first area assembly or his first service conference and he comes back and he goes, these people were talking about carrying the message, but they're not sure what the message is because everybody in the room had a different opinion about what's the message. Bill Wilson describes service as anything that makes carrying the message possible. Don't dare ask at a service conference, then if Bill's definition of service is anything that we do to help carry the message, don't dare ask at a service conference, then what's the message? It's like dropping a bomb in the middle of the room. But you used to be able to take people to the paper cover and say, the AA message is page 1 through 164 of this book. This is the program, the program of the steps. And the steps aren't suggested. The program of 12 steps is suggested. A lot of people misread that, too. And they'll say to you, you know, how it works says the steps are just suggested. 
No. It says this this 12-step program is suggested. But this this inside cover of, of the third edition used to say the basic text, page 1 through 164, remains unchanged. This is the AA message, just as it was introduced in 1939. The paper cover to the fourth edition says the basic text, page 1 through 164, which had been the foundation of recovery for so many alcoholics, remains and still remains unchanged. Now page 1 through 164 is something that had been. They turned it into a history book. Had been the foundation. And I've heard some literature since then where they're referring to this book as a foundation text. It's a basic step. This is a basic text which contains the message in the first 164 pages. That's a big stretch from had been the foundation for many. It's almost like they're saying those poor, those poor alcoholics that had to do what's in this book. It's almost condescending. And they had to change this too because of people that care about this message. They've changed it a little bit, but they haven't changed it back to page 1 through 164 is the message. There are some important statistics, and I'm not great on statistics, but you can find them in the forewords, and you'll find that at one time 200,000 books went out, and we had 100,000 members. One recovery for every two books. And now look at the number of books that have been printed and the number of members worldwide, not even in the vicinity. There's other statistics in the forewords that say 50% got sober right away, 25% later. They had a 75% success rate, and that's not even close nowadays. We're lucky if it's 15%. Why? Because when the success rate was 75%, they brought you to the base of the triangle before they brought you to the fellowship. They didn't have a lot of meetings to take you to every night. They brought you to recovery before they brought you to the fellowship. There were some groups in the, in the beginning where you had to be in the eighth step. You had met with somebody. You'd gotten on your knees. You had done some sort of an inventory. And you had an amends list before you came to their group. Because they cared more about the group than they did themselves. That's what the first tradition is all about. We take it for granted now. And then bitch and moan because the message gets watered down by the people we brought to the group that we didn't share the message with. Hmm. They used to ask two questions. Every 12-step call I heard Bill and Bob went on that I've read, they would ask, do you want to quit drinking for good and all? They didn't say, are you willing to quit drinking one day at a time? That slogan, one day at a time, isn't about drinking. It's about, are you ready to quit drinking for good and all and live life one day at a time? We live life one day at a time. I don't ever want to drink again. Now, can I do anything about that? That's where we start. Can I make up my mind? I'm just never going to drink again. Can I just not drink no matter what? No, but do I want to quit? Do I want, would I like to quit drinking for good and all and live my life one day at a time? And that's what those guys would ask. It's also sad that because of irresponsibility and not wanting to get involved in controversy, the irresponsibility of not, of not re-upping the uh, copyright, that we lost the circle and triangle somewhere during the third edition uh, because the copyright ran out and the trinket salesmen that were making money off it uh, kept it. And we didn't want to get involved in controversy to fight that because i got to tell you, the day that I went to Don, 
Don's house, six months sober, ready to die because the unmanageability caught up with me, the internal condition, the unmanageability of my life, which is internal, with everything better out here after six months in AA, caught up to me and I went to his house. I found out from the circle in the triangle I wasn't even in AA because he talked to me about a three-part program, unity, recovery, and service. He talked to me about where you find unity, right here in the fellowship, and that they have 12 traditions. It's sad in Los Angeles when I hear in the, in the written formats of meetings, the, the traditions are to the group what the steps are to the individual. That tells a selfish guy like me, don't worry about the tradition, that's for those people. The steps are for me because I'm selfish, and it's a selfish program. This is not a selfish program. This is a selfless program for really selfish people. Right? My sponsor told me there's as many principles in the 12 traditions that you can practice as an individual whenever you're dealing with more than one person, which is what we're supposed to start to do <laughs> in business, in family, and in, in, in the fellowship, wherever, as there are in the 12 steps. But you need to do the 12 steps to get the power to practice the principles. What do you think they mean at the end of the 12 step? And practice these principles in all our affairs. They don't just mean the ones they've just covered. They mean those. The steps are principles. Zillions of principles in the 12 steps. But they also give you some more principles after the steps. In the 12 traditions. As in the 12 concepts. So it's a three-part program with 36 spiritual principles and a part of the program for each part of my disease. We've heard it before. Bring the body, the mind will follow. That's the sad thing. That's not a great statement of hope. I wish you could bring the body and the mind would just go away. To this day, I still see signs that say self-storage, and I really wish that I could. It's not a great promise. Bring the body and the mind will follow. You bring your body to the fellowship, the mind will follow and it will need to be treated. It will scream out to be treated. It will follow you wherever you go for all the days of your life. And that mind either gets treated or it doesn't. And you bring the mind to the recovery process. And you bring your awakened spirit out into the world and back into the program in a circle to be of service. I see a three-part program for a three-part disease with 36 spiritual principles that you can use as an individual once you get some power to practice them. And that's the promise of the 12th step. You will be able to practice these principles in all your affairs. The circle and the triangle saved my life because that's the day I saw after six months thinking I was in AA. In AA, I was in one-third of a three-part program expecting the results of the other two parts, and all I was was a member of the fellowship. And that not drinking and going to meetings brought me to my knees. <laughs> not drinking and going to meetings didn't treat my alcoholism. I believe alcoholism is what you're left with after the booze and the drugs are out of your system. It's what starts to come to the surface after 60 days or 90 days or however long this period of step zero lasts. It'll come to the surface. So the circle and the triangle were extremely valuable. The table of contents were important. Let whoever's taking you through the work show you that the first part of the book is great general information about our program. And that step one's going to start at the doctor's opinion. And we're going to look at the craving up to page 23. And we're going to look at the obsession up to page 43. And we're going to look at the spiritual malady on 44, 45, and 52. We're going to look at step two in the chapter to the agnostic. 
We're going to look at three through four. We're going to look at step two in We Agnostic. We're going to look at steps three and four in how it works, five through 11 in into action, and step 12 in the rest of the chapters. Working with others is the first part of step one, 12 and practicing these principles in, the, in, the, in those other chapters. It's good to know that. A lot of people don't know. It's pretty simple once you get to step three. It says now we're at step three. So doesn't it make sense when it says, now you're at step three, that everything up to where it says now we're at step three is steps one and two? It's very simple. And then they give you a paragraph that explains that. The description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and your own adventures, drunk or sober, have made clear these three pertinent ideas. Everything up to the ABCs is steps one and two. It was good to know that because a lot of people didn't know that. Where do you find steps one and two? I don't know. We start at the third step in our group. We assume they're alcoholic because they're here. Ooh, that's deadly, huh? If you're here, you've taken the first three steps. Ooh. And the first three steps are I can't, he can, so I think I'll let him. What could be more arrogant than to say I'm going to let God mm, that which brought you into the world, that's what gives you the next breath. You're going to let God if you can let God into your life, you've got more power than he does because he's already there. You're going to let down your delusions. A lot of important stuff in those things. If you want to do a funny thing, we did at this book study in Dallas. Look at some of the words that stick out to you in the little descriptions of the stories that are new. You'll find that the fourth edition is reflective of the current state, whatever that current state might be. They use some really interesting words in those little blurbs. And it's also good to read to somebody that doesn't know that, that the main purpose of this book is to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered. You'll see, you'll see some great statistics in the growth of the fellowship, and then and the forward to the third, the forward to the fourth, and then you'll start step one. And at some point, like when you get through there, you should sit with them and ask them the answer that has come to them to those questions, and then you as the sponsor need to decide just as much as they do. Okay. Let's take a break for 15 minutes. Thanks. Okay. Let's go ahead. I wanted to share just a couple of these. Um, <clears throat> these are questions designed to explore some current myths in Alcoholics Anonymous. Answer these questions at the beginning of the work, like before the doctor's opinion, and again before during, doing the third step to see change in beliefs. These are some of the common myths. The first one is, do you believe the steps are meant to be worked once and live your life in 10, 11, and 12? I think most of us have seen the futility of that. And I would challenge anybody to show me a piece of AA literature from the founders that said the first nine principles were meant to be practiced once. I haven't yet to see that. I think that was one of the main messages from Harry Tebolt. My, my great-grand sponsor, Paul Martin, knew him well. And his thing was that the ego will rebuild, and you give yourself. This is really a, day, a debate, you know, one through nine once. 
or one through nine regularly. It's a debate that goes all the way back to our founders. Bill Wilson fell victim to the belief that he had had such a spiritual awakening, and it was probably more profound than most of us in this room. Uh, I mean, you don't just wake up one night with a blinding light in your room and sit down and write a chapter like how it works or the experience he had when he got sober. Um, but he fell victim to the belief that that would be enough, and he had several, many years of depression, where Dr. Bob was from the school influenced by Harry Tebow, where they believed in reworking and reworking and reworking the first nine steps. So I ask people about that and see what their ideas change when they see what the textbook says. Another one is... Um, mm, do you believe alcoholism and drug addiction are the same? Um, do you believe that you can recover from alcoholism or that you'll always be recovering? My friend in Denver, Frank, always says those that are recovering usually aren't. <laughs> A question about do you believe what the main purpose of this book is to show other alcoholics precisely how we've recovered? Another one that we hear all the time, if an obsession to drink occurred, do you believe that you could think the drink through or remember the pain of your last drunk could keep you from drinking again. Um, here's a big one that you hear all the time. Question, do you believe that where drinking alcohol is concerned that you have a choice today? I believe this. I believe in an unfit spiritual condition, I had no choice but to drink. Now, in a fit spiritual condition on the other end of the work, there's no choice to drink. There's several, a couple comments in the end of a couple of these chapters in the first step where people make statements like, he couldn't drink even if he would. What does that mean? Or in the 10th and 11th step promises, which we don't hear talked about a lot, uh, they promise that the problem will be removed. You'll be in a position of neutrality. My God, in a fit spiritual condition, how could you drink? The day that I think now, after all these years, the day I think I have a choice, that's the insanity of alcoholism. And I never heard, I'm jumping ahead a moment here, but I never heard the insanity put any better than this. I never took the first drink drunk. That's the insanity of alcoholism. I always thought it was the crazy stuff we do under the influence. Here's a big question. Do you believe the only requirement for membership, a desire to stop drinking, is the only requirement for sobriety? Can your desire to not drink, which qualifies you to as a member, can that desire keep you sober? Is the only requirement for membership to the fellowship, a desire to stop drinking, the only requirement for you to stay sober today? Do you have any other, are there any other alternatives for you but to die an alcoholic death or live on a spiritual basis? Do you believe you're suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience can conquer? Maybe you're suffering from an illness that some other thing can conquer it. And you're slowly, slowly, slowly working toward the realization of the ABCs. Here's another misconception. How many times do you hear this? I took the third step and turned my will and my life over to the care of God. If the third step was turning your will and your life over to the care of God, why would there be three steps? You'd be done. The third step is deciding to. The third step's not turning your will and your life over. We made a decision. 
It's a good decision. But it's like three frogs sitting on a log. All three decide to jump off. How many are left? I said none. They said three. <laughs> all they did was decide, right? So there's there's some questions, and I'm sure I'm sure as a sponsor, as someone that would be working with somebody, you have some of your own myths that you believed, that you're concerned about, that are current in AA nowadays. Ask them some of those beliefs at the beginning of the work, and ask them the, the same questions again when the, before they start inventory, and see how the thinking and how the mind has changed. Um, so. We're going to, uh, so they've had an assignment. They've read the first 164 pages. They've considered these four or five questions. They've sat with the questions. They've let the answers come. They've come back to your house. They've done the reading. They have an idea of what's going to be expected. They answer the questions, and then you decide. I had a lady one time. She came over. She was 11 years sober. She had hit a wall. She was a success, successful lawyer, had a pretty great life. Uh, she said she wanted to do the work. We did that initial assignment. The answers were great. We're ready to proceed. She goes to leave my, my apartment. She gets to the door. My intuition says, ask her to come back and sit down and ask her about what else she does in her life but her job and AA meetings. Strange intuition. I asked her to come back and sit down. I said, what else do you do besides your law practice and um, AA? She said, well, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I have individual therapy. Tuesday and Thursday, I have group therapy. Friday, I do my journaling class. On Saturday, ACA, and I'm on medication. I said, well, let me ask you this. Would, would you be willing to put all those other groups and all those other therapy things aside until you finish amends and consider, at some point, medically supervised, because I'm not a doctor, to get off medication? She said, absolutely not. I said, medication or those other things that you do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? She said, those things. I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Those things are taking you in one direction, how to manage your life, how to get everything in order, how to work on yourself, and this path is going to take you in the opposite direction. How to quit running your life. You know, you can't fix yourself. And she wasn't willing. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And you have to make that decision sometime or you'll both pay you'll both pay a price. But also remember there's a price for whatever you decide. A lot of us know the price involved in not doing the work in this book. But there's a price for doing the work in this book. Self-sacrifice, confession of shortcomings, it gives you some promises that aren't necessarily attractive. Um, there is a price for getting free. Isn't there times that some of you wish you didn't know what you know? That you were just ignorant again and you didn't see what you see about yourself or other anything else? Waking up isn't always the greatest thing. You know. It's a wonderful thing, but if your if your objective is comfort, I would settle for delusion if I were you. <laughs> Delusion's a lot more comfortable than waking up. <laughs> and I'm a loose cannon. I could just say anything. And anything. Okay. So, we're going to look at the first step in three parts. Body, mind, and spirit. Take the first half of step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. 
If drugs are involved, put the admitted we are powerless over alcohol and or drugs. If you're looking at drugs. If you don't have a drug history, don't do that. But it's important that if you do have a drug history that we look at both so you can find your own truth. Am I alcoholic? Am I addict? Am I both? Is there a difference? I mean, doesn't it make sense if everybody in this room lived with that same question that I lived with, that the first step answer that question? And that question that you're all very familiar with is, what's wrong with me? We're going to look at what's wrong with me physically once I start to put alcohol in my body. We're going to look at what's wrong with me mentally when there's no alcohol in my body whatsoever. And we're going to look at what's wrong with me spiritually except when it gets a treatment. <laughs> the only thing that ever... I mean, isn't it funny that alcohol treats alcoholism? Alcohol treats alcoholism. Alcohol treated my spiritual malady. Nothing else in my life ever treated the spiritual malady, but you got to know what the spiritual malady is before you can ask yourself, did alcohol treat it or not? If alcohol was the problem then all of us would have straightened out a long time ago by just eliminating alcohol from our body. Alcoholism is the stuff you're left with after your body and your is cleaned out. When the mind catches up to you. When that stuff that you've been suppressing for all these years with booze and drugs isn't suppressing it anymore and it starts to come to the surface. But it's important to start with what's wrong with me once I've put alcohol and or drugs into my system. We're going to use from the doctor's opinion to the top two lines on page 23 in there is a solution. You will find that after the top of 23, they're not going to talk much more about the physical craving. And it's also interesting, being a good textbook, if you know where that section ends, being a good textbook, they're going to end the section with a summary question that summarizes the only thing you need to be convinced of to go past page 23. Remember those good textbooks? They do addition. They give example, example, example. At the end, there's a test. Same with the three parts to step one. So, and I think it's much more valuable than me just sharing my experience of what it was like to go through the doctor's opinion all these years or for us to read the doctor's opinion. It's much more important I give you the tools that were shared with me on how to use the doctor's opinion so you can have your own experience. And the greatest tools, and you know, this is a culmination of a lot of years and a lot of people all over this country that I've met from Joe and Charlie to my sponsor to all, a lot of people that you guys have met. And the best thing that I've ever heard that you can share with someone on how do you use the doctor's opinion is to turn every statement you can into a question. Keep it in mind, it's the, it's the opinion of a non-alcoholic doctor. It's good to know where he came from. It's good to know that he's not one of us. It should not be page one. They did not make a mistake changing that, I don't think. It was page one in the, in the, in the first edition. But I think it's been Roman numerals because it's an outsider's opinion about our program. But from Bill's story to 164, it's another alcoholic's and thousands of alcoholic's experience. But this is a doctor whose theory, his opinion, stands up till today with all that's been revered, neurotransmitters, chemical en enzyme reactions in the body, neurotransmitters in the brain, with as much as been revealed this theory still holds up in its simplicity, that the, that the craving for alcohol is similar to an allergy. 
Some of you in this room, maybe you eat strawberries. Every time you eat strawberries, you get a rash. He says it's similar to that, but instead of a rash, we put alcohol in our system rather than strawberries, and we get a physical craving for more alcohol beyond our mental control. He admits he didn't know much about the mind. He makes reference to the solution, but he was really an expert on the chemical reaction in the body of an alcoholic once the alcohol goes in his system. But I still, to this day, because of my background of therapy and, and too much knowledge, I don't like working with the word craving. My mind goes off over here. I simply use the question, do I lose control over the amount once I start to drink? After ingestion of alcohol, do I lose control over how much I'm going to drink? Some of you, not every time. Some of you are periodic. The great question for a periodic is, if there were times when the craving didn't happen, and there were times the craving did happen, were you the one in control over when it would and when it wouldn't happen? And it was just by chance. They weren't controlling when the craving happened and when it didn't, when they would lose control and when they didn't. Most periodics get drunk at the wrong time and are sober when they shouldn't be. <laughs> but I look... But the only question is, do you have enough experience with alcohol to abundantly confirm that once you put it in your system, something happens where you lose control? But I will give you an example where if you know a couple words, it changes the whole meaning of the paragraph. Let's look at the paragraph. Well, here's some of the questions that you... So you start to read the doctor's opinion. You're looking for questions that pop out to you. Um, bottom of the first page, XXV. Am I the type that other methods failed completely? Question. So you're marking. And you're marking in a way where they stand out. So you, when you do what comes next, you can look at each page and you can see the questions that you mark. They're highlighted. Because I'm going to show you another. This is the mechanical work. This is the assignment. This is the stuff that feels like homework but only setting you up to do the prayerful work. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Another question on the next page. Uh, do, this is a must. Do I believe my body is quite as abnormal as my mind? Okay. Uh, a couple more pages. Can I differentiate the true from the false? Did I drink for the effect produced by alcohol? I thought I was one type, normal in every respect. I found out I was all those types at any given moment. I can be a psychopath. I can be a manic depressive. I can be a type that's normal except in the effect alcohol has. But here's a paragraph where he does say something that's really important, but I don't know what he means until somebody shared with me. And that is, I don't know, in my book it's XXVII. But it's the paragraph that starts off, the doctor writes, and it has his letter. And the letter starts out, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. Ah, alcoholic addiction. Mm. But the next paragraph says, treating alcoholic and drug addiction. Is he making a distinction? Do you believe they're the same? You've got to start to ask yourself if you have a drug history. But the paragraph I wanted to talk about for a moment is this. And let me read the paragraph. It starts off, we doctors. What is he saying here? We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology 
is of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. To this day, that paragraph doesn't make any sense to me. I don't even know what I just read. But if somebody explains to me that moral psychology is the doctor's way of saying spiritual experience, and that when he uses we, he's talking about doctors, and that when he uses the term powers of good, he's talking about God. Now let's read the paragraph. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of a spiritual experience is of urgent importance to alcoholics, but the application of a spiritual experience presented difficulties beyond a doctor's conception. What with a doctor's ultra-modern standards, a doctor's scientific approach to everything, we doctors are perhaps not well equipped to apply the power of God that lies outside a doctor's synthetic knowledge. Now I understand what he's saying. He knows what we needed, which is a spiritual experience, and he knew that he couldn't apply it to you. He couldn't make it happen for you. The same admission that Dr. Carl Jung came to about our minds. He wanted to help, and he wanted to help Roland or whoever it was that met Dr. Carl Jung, and he said he couldn't, because he couldn't bring about a spiritual awakening, and they knew that that's what we needed. So. Go through the doctor's opinion, mark and highlight so they stand out to you pertinent questions that you find from statements. Bill's story. The greatest things I've ever heard to use Bill's story, because see, I read Bill's story. I don't know about you, but I say, I don't relate to Bill Wilson. I've never been married. I've never been to war, and I'm not a stockbroker. But when, when an old-timer said to me, why don't you look for the similarities rather than the differences, that was not only a principle I could use for Bill's story, that was a principle I could use in the meetings. Look for the similarities. And, he, and they asked me, we're going to take Bill's story in two parts. Oh, I should back up for a moment, because I said, write out the first half of the first step. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol. We're going to cut that in half. We're going to take the first half of step one and look at two parts to powerless. Physically, once I start to drink, and mentally, once I stop drinking. So we're taking we admit we're taking the admission of powerlessness over alcohol and or drugs, and we're going to look at two parts: two parts to powerlessness, one part to unmanageability. So the first half of step one we're taking in two parts. The first part is why am I powerless over alcohol once I put it in my body? Bill's story we're going to look at in two parts, drunk and sober. Take the first eight pages of Bill's story, which is his drunk log, and mark everything you can relate to in three different areas. How he thought, how he felt, how he drank. I've seen women mark three-fourths of Bill's drunk log when they were given the principle to look for the similarities in how he felt, how he thought, how he drank rather than the differences. You will see, because we're really focusing on the physical craving, but you will see laid out in his drunk log the progression of the physical craving. Then you might want to do it again when we're looking at the mental obsession, and you'll see the progression of his, of your mental obsession. 
Then we're going to look at it again, the first eight pages, to find the truth about his spiritual malady and the progression of the unmanageability. But basically, we're using the first eight pages of Bill's story to get in touch with our own drunkalog, the progression of our own disease. Then what can you do with 9 to 16 in Bill's story? 9 to 16 in Bill's story, you can reaffirm the assignment that they already did because in 9 to 16, you're going to get a great outline of what you're asked to do in the rest of the work. That might be a time to talk about did you come up against anything in the first 164 pages that you're not willing to do? So what I have people do after they've marked what they can relate to in Bill's drunk log, I have them mark what they're not willing to do that Bill did to recover. Now that can be a great tool for the sponsor as well as the sponsee. So 9 to 16, mark anything that you feel resistant to or unwilling to do. And be honest, because you're just starting the work. But I'll give you a clue for the sponsors. Don't take somebody past the first step until all the resistance in 9 to 16 is gone. Use what they mark in 9 to 16 as a barometer as to when they're done with step 1 and let what they marked in 9 to 16 show you when they're done with step 1. Because I'll tell you what, when somebody's had a deep experience with step 1, whatever they marked in 9 to 16, that resistance will be gone. One of the lines that always gets me, no matter to whatever degree my ego has rebuilt and it's time to do the work again, is the admission he makes that in and of himself that he is nothing and that without God he's lost. I always feel a little resistant to that when my ego is rebuilt. But you'll find your own stuff and be honest. It doesn't mean you can't go on. It means you've gotten in touch with what you might feel resistant to or unwilling to do in the rest of this process and see if the... what. See if what you mark, maybe you could mark it in pencil. And as you move deeper and deeper and deeper into step one, continue erasing the resistance you marked in 9 to 16 until the resistance is gone. That's when you're done with step one. It's your, it's your decision as a sponsor as to whether you would take somebody any further if they were absolutely unwilling to do. Now, don't confuse with willing to do with able to do. Don't confuse their unwillingness with their lack of power. Am I willing to do what's in the first 164 pages? Yes. Do I have the power to do everything in the first 164 pages before I'm done with step one? No. So don't confuse lack of power with unwillingness. I do not have the power at step one to finish amends or to do the disciplines in 10, 11, and 12. But am I willing? Am I willing to do or am I not? Mark the resistance in 9 to 16. Then you get to there is a solution, and we're going to use from, the, from 17. We're going to use from 17 to the top of 23. Continue to turn statements into questions. Mark the questions until you get to the top two lines on 23. And here's the question. Here's how I would turn that top two lines into a question. The top two lines say, the experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Confirm what? So here's how I turn it into a question. Does my experience abundantly confirm that once I put alcohol into my system, something happens which makes it virtually impossible for me to stop? Which are the previous sentences. That's the only thing that the person you're working with or yourself that's the only thing you need to be convinced of 
before going any further. So what if they're not convinced that once they put alcohol in their system? What if they're still grappling between drugs and alcohol? Keep going back. Do it again. Do it again. But now that you've done the mechanics, now that you've seen how to use the doctor's opinion, marking questions, now that you've seen how to use the first eight pages of Bill's story, marking what you can relate to, now that you've seen how to use 9 to 16 to show you your own resistance, now that you've learned how to use 17 to 23, now that you've done the homework, which I like to call the mechanics, you've done the mechanics, now you go back through those chapters slowly in prayer and do the prayerful reviews. Now, what does that mean? That means I would go back to the doctor's opinion, I would look at the first page, and I would sit with the first question I marked. And you will start to find that there's a flow between here and the top of 23, and it, you'll get in that flow. The first question, I don't know. The, the most valuable thing that's been shared with me about questions is you should look at them as coins. A question is like a coin. There's two sides to every question. The best example would be the most important one. Am I convinced that, that once I put alcohol in my system, something happens? Maybe I'm not convinced. Maybe my experience doesn't abundantly confirm that. Maybe I only got the craving once, ever. Maybe that doesn't really happen. And the questions that are the easiest for some of you that have been around, don't look at answering the question. Look at the other side of the coin. And does my experience abundantly confirm? Oh, yeah, sure. And I just answered it away. Well, maybe now... See, and there's considerations after being around for a while you wouldn't share with the new guy. The new guy has done well enough to see that his drinking experience abundantly confirms that when he puts the stuff in his body, he gets a craving for more. So what would be a consideration for somebody with time? Maybe now the craving wouldn't happen. Maybe I've learned enough. Maybe the craving was just based on emotional states. Maybe I was an emotional drinker. Now I'm 22 years sober. I have tools to deal with my emotions, to turn out of resentment, to get free of fear. And if I was just an emotional drinker, maybe now that my emotions have straightened out, I could drink like a normal person. I wouldn't get the craving. You see, there's going to be lurking. My home group is so anal. We had a meeting once on lurking notions, and they, and they, and they actually talked about lurking notions like little fuzzy balls that hide in the fuzzy little monsters that hide in the corner of your room and that each year and each time you start to work the lurking notions would be different colors and different shapes and different <laughs> parts of the house because that's true. There's considerations now after 22 years that weren't valuable at, at, at six months. Maybe you, weren't a, maybe you weren't an emotional drinker. Maybe you were a circumstantial drinker. Things are bad, you drink. You drink. You get the craving. But now things are pretty good in your life. Maybe now you could drink like a normal person. So, and I'm going to make an analogy to this to another important question later in the work. But I would like you to look at the first step and, uh, when you're looking at the craving and the obsession and ask yourself, did circumstance or emotional state have anything to do with the physical craving or the mental obsession? You know, I drank when the team lost. Well, I drank when the team won. I drank when she left. Well, I also drink when she stays. Sometimes I don't know which to celebrate, staying or leaving. You know? 
I drink when things are bad and I don't have any money. I also drink when I got a lot of money. Maybe, maybe my drinking, see, and I say maybe because I'm still considering. You're not answering. You're sitting with it. You're letting the first step create a tension. A tension that's going to follow you through the work. You lose that tension. You poop. You poop out. You balk. I start to feel this tension by looking at what it was like. But see, some of us in this room also have what happened. And we also have what it's like now. So if you've been around for a while, don't just look at the first step, what it was like when you were drinking. Remember what happened. And remember what it's like now. What's my relationship to this craving now? Because it's not a reservation about the craving from 22 years ago that's going to take me out. It's a reservation about the craving now, 22 years sober. Maybe that craving wouldn't happen. Sit with those reservations. You face those reservations in prayer. And I use, this, I use the set-aside prayer until I get to the third step. Every day I'm saying it. When I sit down to work on an assignment, I'm saying it. When I'm looking at questions, I'm saying it. Let me have an open mind and a new experience with these questions. So prayerfully, I look at the first page of the doctor's opinion and I see the questions I marked and I sit with them and I let one question move me on to the next. Let the experience move you on to the next. And that's when you'll start to experience the first step is in the prayerful work. The mechanics are nice to get the questions marked, but the questions need to be considered. Do I really believe this? Do I believe this after all these years? That might have been true when I was drinking, but what about now? You see, my truth, I've got to be really honest with you. I've ingested alcohol several times in 22 years. Does it matter my motive? I was at a party once. Reach for a glass of my water. I don't, I don't smell water. I don't sip water. It was hot. I drank half a glass just like that. It was vodka. Went in the bathroom, said a prayer. I was safe and protected. I didn't turn into a werewolf. I think some of us have probably ingested alcohol and been safe and protected. You didn't even know it. Food, medicine. So I can't say to you that I'm absolutely convinced that if I ingest alcohol into my body that I'll get a physical craving. But I I believe God's there. Do I believe I could do that? Now, there's the question that will take me further. Do I believe I could do that every day for 60 or 90, take the Marty Mann test? A lot of people think Marty Mann, who was the first AA uh, woman to stay sober in AA, who founded the National Council on Alcoholism, in her primer on alcoholism, she gave the Marty Mann test. But a lot of people interpret the Marty Mann test as two drinks a day for 30 days. It wasn't. It was two drinks a day, same time, same amount, same same drink, every day for six months. Do I believe I could do that now? Whether you're new or you're old or you're in between. I've known people that had to go find out. They had to take the test. I know people that have taken the test and gotten free of AA. Am I willing to go to any lengths? But I believe... God has more power to reveal truth about drinking than drinking does. Because I had 18 years of drinking and it didn't convince me. And I got six months in this process the first time and it's shown me more than 18 years of drinking. 
So my bet is that God has more power to show me the truth about the craving than more alcohol. And I ask, show me. And the truth is, most of my 18 years of drinking, I put booze in my system. I get a craving for more. But my truth in sobriety is, is that I've ingested alcohol several times in 22 years, whether it was by accident or not, and I've been safe and protected by the grace of God. I believe God's been there for the mental obsession, spiritual malady, and that I've been safe and protected even when alcohol's gone in my system. Do I take that into a luxury? Do I make that into a luxury that I could drink safely? No. But it's a consideration. So I looked at what it was like. What happened is that something came between me and booze 22 years ago. And I haven't lost control over alcohol even when it's accidentally gone into my system. See? There's incremental truth, you know. There's truth that's just not. That's delusion. There's truth that changes. But there's also truth that's only true until the next thing's true. Like, I was powerless over alcohol until I came to believe in a power greater than myself, and I came to believe in a power greater than myself, and a conception wasn't enough until I made a decision, and that decision was enough. You know, like three is true until four changes it. <laughs> There's that kind of truth, too. So, what it was like was I get a physical craving when alcohol goes in my body. What happened is something came between me and booze 22 years ago. And what it's like now is I'm in a state of neutrality, safe and protected. I haven't even sworn off. The problem has been removed. The problem has been removed to the point where when I've accidentally ingested alcohol, I don't turn into a werewolf or break out into a physical craving. But I'm not going to take that for granted. But I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. See, I'm sharing experience with you today, not just from the first time through the work. The considerations will change the longer you're sober. And you've got to, in the first three steps, explore some of these reservations that are coming to the surface, or you will explore them alone. Or you won't be able to say them in a group because you've elevated yourself to such a position you could never admit that I'm 17 years sober and I'm wondering about this or this or this. Do it in the process with someone you trust. In prayer, you're safe and protected. So I go back through the doctor's opinion. I go back through my drunk log in prayer, remembering, going back, looking. I remind myself, am I still resistant to the things in 9 to 16? Has some of the resistance already changed? Maybe I erase some of it. And then I look at the questions from 17 to 23. And I get to the top of 23. And I might sit with that consideration for two or three days. As long as it takes. Until I can say this. Yes. My experience abundantly confirms that once I put alcohol into my system, something happens where I lose control over the amount. And, this is my truth today, whatever that might be, and do I believe there's levels of peace and freedom in existence beyond that that I can't even imagine with freedom from alcohol? See, if there's any area of your life where you think this is it, then what you're saying is there is no more God. Any area you think, well, this is about all I'm going to get in this area. And this is about all the freedom I'm going to get in that area. Or this is as deep as I could ever see the first step. 
all you're doing is expressing your agnosticism. So you get to the top of 23, whether you're new, old, or in between, and your experience should abundantly confirm one, just one thing. It's just one piece of step one. This is why I'm powerless over alcohol physically. Once it goes into my body, I get this craving. Yes, I'm convinced. Now we're going to move into the mind. But it's still the first half of step one. This is why I'm powerless over alcohol and or drugs mentally with none in my system at all. If the first part was the physical craving, this is the mental obsession. And you're going to go from 23 to the bottom of 43 and turn every statement you can into a question. And isn't it interesting? <coughs> this section ends with a summary question also. So you mark the questions. You mark the questions so you can see them. Highlight the questions that stand out to you. Most alcoholics have lost the power of choice. Do I believe that? Ooh, that's a little different than what they say in the meeting. This says most of... Oh, they, it is true what they say. Ah, oh, the book is right. The fact is, most alcoholics... doesn't say all alcoholics have lost the power of choice. So am I an alcoholic that lost the power of choice or not? And I would say if you're working with somebody and you get to this page and they're absolutely convinced they have a choice this day and every day from now on, don't go any further. Just choose not to drink the rest of your life. 24. Highlighted paragraph. Very important stuff. Has your so-called willpower become non-existent? Are you unable at certain times to bring into your consciousness with enough force? The memory and the suffering of humiliation of a week or a month ago, are you without defense against the first drink? So what does that do to think it through? What does that do to remember the pain of your last drink? What does that do with today I have a choice? If you're an alcoholic who doesn't have a choice, you better stay away from people that do because you'll start to believe that you do. Find the people. You see, I don't see type 4s hanging out with type 1s in AA. I, don't, I see this room filled with type 4s who don't have any other alternatives. I don't see a room full of people who had a choice today. If, I, if you had a choice today about being here or not, which I mean doing this work or not, why would you want to do this work if you had a choice? I've seen people try to go through the work who have a choice. Horrible process. It's a horrible process for... See, I think this process is for the choiceless, not just the powerless. So it says, most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice. They don't have a choice once they start because of the physical craving. They don't have a choice once they stop because of the mental obsession. But we're going to follow that idea all the way through the work. See, the first step doesn't end at step one. But at this point, we're looking at what takes place in my mind before I even pick up a drink, at my very best. So what I like to do is go back to those periods of sobriety. Or, I'm sorry, I like to go back to those periods where I wasn't drinking. I never had 30 days in 18 years, but I have several periods close to 30 days. And I look, what happened? Did I want that to happen? 
Did I want to pick up a drink 28 days out of the Michigan State Penitentiary, having just walked out of my parole officer's office? He told me the conditions of my parole. You can't drink, you can't take drugs, you can't go to bars, you can't hang out with dope fiends, and you can't leave Calhoun County. That's like telling a guy like me, go home and take a deep breath and don't ever exhale again. Don't breathe. Because that's all I do. I drink, I take drugs, I hang out with ex-felons, and I leave Calhoun County to go to Detroit or, or Chicago. I said, oh, sure, no problem. And for 28 days, I was able to not drink, not take drugs, hang out with ex-felons, or leave the county. On the 28th day, on my second report, he reminds me of the conditions. Funny thing is, I was feeling better, looking better. Here's the one that would scare me. Your father and I are trusting you again. The parole officer says, and your family believes in you again. And you just want to scream because you know you're going to break their heart. You know it's only a matter of time. And they reminded me if I broke my parole, I'd get 14 years behind the walls. And I walked out of his office, had an idea I needed a pack of cigarettes, no thought of walking into a bar, picked up a drink, called an ex-felon, and drove out of the county. <laughs> and I didn't choose to do that. The day of my dad's funeral, my mother begged me not to drink. I said I wouldn't. I really meant it. I had no little sneaky voice in the back of my mind. And I said I won't. And I had two beers. And somewhere between the second one and the 20th one, I lost the power of choice. And I showed up so drunk at my dad's funeral, they tied me to a tree by my ankle with a chain because I was brought by a guard. I didn't choose to do that. So if you're looking at the craving or the obsession, don't go back to the times when you got drunk and you wanted to. Guy said to me once, I'm alcoholic because every time I drank, I got drunk. I said, did you want to get drunk every time you drank? He said, yeah. I said, then you're not alcoholic because it went the way you wanted every single time. You're supposed to look at the times where you wanted it to go this way, but it went this way. Some of you remember not being able to get drunk and drinking through the drunk back to sober. Some of you remember being with the right guys and you're supposed to drink a lot because you're with those guys and you have a few and your tolerance is all messed up and you're flat on your face after a few and you wanted to have a whole lot. Don't look at the times where your drinking went the way you wanted it to when you're looking at the craving. And when you're looking at the obsession, don't go back to those times where you wanted to quit and stayed stopped. Go back to the times where you wanted to quit and you couldn't stay stopped. That's powerless. Powerless mentally is when you want to not drink and you can't not drink. And mark those questions. And then come back to them in prayer. Do I have any more than two alternatives? Am I without defense against the first drink? Or is there a relapse prevention plan that can work for me? You see, how can you prevent your next relapse if you're powerless over alcohol? These, cha this, these chapters from 23 to 43 describe people who could not prevent their next relapse. And once again, we're going to take circumstance or emotional state out of it. Take a look at each of the stories in There is a Solution and more about alcoholism. One guy's feeling great, not a cloud on the horizon. One guy's mad because he's working for a company he used to own. Another guy has an insane idea. He can mix whiskey with his milk. And another guy doesn't think at all. 
I am absolutely convinced just looking at you all, there are people in this room who found themselves in front of the fifth or sixth drink and didn't even know how they got there after a period of sobriety with no thought. Thinking it through is not going to work on that day. A hundred quarters in your pocket, you're not going to put one on the phone and call somebody that's going to be able to stop you. Why? Because no human power can relieve your alcoholism. And we got these sponsors and these groups filled with mechanism that are supposed to stop you if you get the obsession to drink. I went to one group like this in a small town, and a member walked up to me and gave me the 13th point, the 13 points to prevent a relapse that their group uses. Not one of them had anything to do with doing anything in here to find a relationship with God. It had to do with what you could do to keep yourself from drinking. But how can I be powerless over alcohol if I can keep myself from drinking? So you look at the questions again in prayer that you've marked from 23 to 43. And isn't it interesting? At the bottom of 43 is the only thing that you need to be convinced of to go any further. It's the test. Last paragraph, 43. Do I believe that at a certain time there will be no effective mental defense against the first drink? Do I believe me or any other human being is going to be able to provide that defense? Must my defense come from a higher power? See, and the great thing the new person has to, needs to see is that that defense is already being provided by a higher power and they don't need to go anywhere to find it. If they're alcoholic and they're sober, that defense is already there. We think that God is so, it feels like it's so far away. We feel so distant from it. But I'm already in the grace of God because I'm sober. I read a great line the other day in the Koran. This is September 11th. It said, God's closer than your juggler mate. The provider of the next emotion. The provider of each thought. The provider of the next breath. And we seem, it feels like it's so far away. But if you're alcoholic and you can't keep yourself sober, but you're sober, that defense is already there. It's already found you. It's already found you. Now we just need to have the things cleared away that block us from finding it deeper and deeper and deeper. So am I convinced of the bottom of 43? If not, go back. So up to this point, we only have two points. Why am I powerless over alcohol physically once it goes into my body? Doctor's opinion to 23. Am I convinced, does my experience abundantly convince that once I put alcohol in my system, something happens where I lose control over the amount? And then point number two, am I powerless over alcohol mentally with none in my body at all? Can I keep myself stopped once I stop? No one in this room has problems stopping. You, the body can only take so much over a given period. But can you stay stopped? Staying stopped is my problem. And the insanity of alcoholism is picking up the first drink. There's men and women in this room that never left the house, never got in trouble, never went to jail, never went to the penitentiary, never went to treatment, that are full-blown alkies. Because of those two points. It's not 30 questions. I don't do well in the 30. Do you lose time from work due to drinking? No. 
That's all they want is a yes and no, right? No. But they don't ask me, do you have a job? <laughs> Does alcohol interfere in your marriage? No. I'm not married. <laughs> There's only two questions. Do you lose control when you start and do you lose control when you stop? Take all the drama. See, and this, this consideration that I was given works for those with a lot of drama and those with very little drama. Take the drama or lack of drama right off the top of your drinking. You're not alcoholic because of where it took you. Guy at 1311 York Street looked like you a little bit, scary Frank, sat with me one night at, for coffee, and he said, why do you think you're alcoholic? What? God forbid you should ask anybody that in AA nowadays. And I went to the penitentiary. He said, well, that lady over there never went to the penitentiary. She, she's alcoholic. What does that mean? She's not. You are. Well, I went to 10 treatment centers. Well, that guy over there never went to treatment. He's an alky. What does that mean? He's not. He said, take all the drama and skim it right off the top and just look at two questions. Look at, can I control it once I start? And can I keep myself stopped? That's it. Now we get to the dash, which is not fill in the blank. I thought it went like this. Yes, I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol, and that's why my life is so unmanageable. So now that I'm not drinking anymore, everything should just be hunky-dory. I didn't know that they meant drunk or sober. My life is unmanageable. So it took me six months. It wasn't six months to hit bottom with the first half of step one. I was already convinced. It took me six months to hit bottom with the second half of step one. one. With everything better and feeling good and having a ball, little girlfriend, little income, place to stay, loving the fellowship, loving the meetings, I woke up around six months sober and I saw this, this unmanageability is inside of me. And thank God every day. You should thank God every day the unmanageability is inside of you. If it's outside of you, you'll spend the rest of your life fixing the world and nothing will happen in here. What, is it, what did they mean, these old timers? How come we don't hear that anymore? Here's an inside job. And we sit in the meetings focused on the outside manifestations of an inside spiritual condition. And as long as that spiritual condition doesn't stay the same, it doesn't matter if the faces change. You'll be with a hundred hers, and it'll always be her. And on one day she does A, B, C, and D. The next day she does basically the same thing. One day you're fine. The next day you're screaming your head off. She didn't change. What changed? The unmanageability of my life is an internal condition. <clears throat> and we're going to use 44, 45, a little bit, and mainly the middle paragraph on 52 to look at the second half of step one which is the spiritual malady, which is the unmanageability, which is untreated alcoholism. Take those three terms and ask you, are there any difference between the three? Unmanageability, untreated alcoholism, and a spiritual malady. They're all three the same. A lot of people tell you it's a twofold disease. My hat's off to them. If they got a twofold disease and the mental obsession's been removed, God bless them, let them get on with their lives and fix themselves. I don't have a twofold disease. I am not powerless over alcohol because of the physical craving, and my life is unmanageable because of the mental obsession. I haven't had the mental obsession for over 20 years. 
I'm powerless over alcohol because of a physical craving coupled with a mental obsession that make me powerless. And my life is unmanageable because of a spiritual malady, which means not that my spirit is sick. It means that shut off from it is a hell of a malady. I have something within me that's 100% pure. And I'm being shut off from it is a horrible way to live. That's why my life is unmanageable. And if you want to know where the book says that, it says that just before the third step. We're not only bodily and mentally ill, we are spiritually sick, and when the spiritual malady is treated, we straighten out mentally and physically. That doesn't mean we become smart. (laughs) That means we don't get the craving anymore because we don't get the obsession anymore. We have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Does that mean that smoking cigarettes and being overweight means that I haven't straightened out physically? No. It means I'm lazy and I need to quit smoking cigarettes, but I don't get the mental obsession anymore. you got to know what they mean bodily and mentally. We've just spent 53 pages looking at physical and mental sickness. I'm physically, I'm, I'm sick physically because my body reacts different to alcohol and it creates acetone which makes a craving for more booze. And I have a lot of other physical stuff. And I have cirrhosis, you know. The fact that I'm on my two feet standing upright, I'm not an animal anymore. I've, I live like a pretty much regular person on a spiritual path is a hell of a step up from being an animal who had to drink every day. We forget that sometimes. Oh, the relationship isn't perfect. I don't have $10 million in the bank. I don't have everything that I've ever wanted. No, you don't wake up with that. Remember, remember what it was like to wake up to that every day. What your mind would do. What your spirit was like. What your emotions were like. What personal relationships were like. So, being a good textbook on page 44... They're going to remind you of what you need to be convinced of in the first paragraph. In the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism. They hope they've made clear between the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. And if they haven't, here's the two points. When you honestly want to, you find you can't quit entirely, which means stay stopped because of your mind. And when drinking, you have little control over the amount because of the physical craving in your body. You're probably alcoholic, but the, and I and I and I and I had this from one of the original members of AA, Gene Cooper. He was a member of the Red Brigade of the Oxford Movement and came to AA when it was three or four years old from the Oxford Group. And he said this book. And he's written by alcoholics for alcoholics. And in certain places, they will put ways called traps for people that are looking for a way out. And in this, not a way out that they meant, that they a way out of what we're doing. And in this paragraph, there are several of those traps. If, or, probably. And if you've been working all this time with somebody, whether they're new, old, or in between, and they're not clear about one or the other, the obsession or the craving, they will come to this paragraph and they will say to you, see, it doesn't say you got to have both. It says, if when you honestly want to, you find you can't quit entirely, which is the obsession, stay stopped. Or, when drinking, you have little control over the amount, which is the physical craving. See, it doesn't say you have to have both. You only have to have one or the other. The other. Or. Here's the problem. If every time you drink, you get a physical craving, but you don't get a mental obsession, 
just make up your mind and don't ever drink again. Or you get the mental obsession on a regular basis, but you don't get the physical craving. Then the next time you get an obsession, just drink the way you want. you got to have both to be powerless. And that's the first half of step one. And I wish we were a little further along, but we're, we'll take a break now and see where we get before lunch. And keep in mind, keep in mind to this page, up to this paragraph. But now they're going to start to present some other ideas that take you into the second half of step one. Up to this page, 40, 44, up to this paragraph where they just reviewed the only two points you need to be convinced of, all you've looked at is the first half of step one, up to the dash. Okay, we'll come back at 11.30. Come up to page 43. We've talked about the mechanical work with each of those chapters, doctor's opinion, turning statements into questions, first half of Bill's story, marking what you can relate to from your drunkologue, 9 to 16, seeing what you're resistant to or unwilling to do in the rest of the work, marking that resistance, seeing how it changes, seeing how you become less resistant. 17 to 23, we've looked at the rest of the physical craving to be convinced that once I put alcohol in my system, something happens, which makes it impossible for me to control how much I'm going to drink. We've looked from 23 to 43 at the mental obsession. What takes me back to the first drink? Can I keep myself stopped? We had a great review at the top of 23 about the craving. We had a great review at the bottom of 43 about the obsession. On 44, they reminded me of those two points again. When I honestly want to, I can't stay stopped. And when drinking, I have little control over the amount. You need to have both to be powerless. And then they raise a new question. If those two things are true, do I believe I'm suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer? Last sentence in the first paragraph on 44. You see, I've worked with people that are absolutely convinced about the craving, absolutely convinced about the obsession, but they think there's something other than a spiritual experience that will conquer their alcoholism. And they go back into step zero, and they stop, and they start eliminating other options than they're, because they're not convinced that they suffer from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Maybe you have a disease that something else can conquer it. So this is a major point. And I also have to tell you how I came to my truth about drugs and alcohol. I believe that you can have the physical craving for drugs. I believe you can have the mental obsession for drugs, but you're not a real addict. Here's what I mean by that. I did all these pages with Don up to this point. I saw that there are many drugs I've had a physical craving for. A normal person could smoke crack and get a craving for more crack. You can't do cocaine without getting a craving for more. Any non-alcoholic you can think of. I always go back to my mother, even though she passed away two years ago, God rest her soul. I always go back to the person that I knew personally was absolutely not alcoholic. She could have a drink and a half. She was one of these people that mystify you because they say things like, I better stop now because I'm starting to feel it. Huh? 
I'm the guy who in a restaurant with 2,000 people in a huge room bigger than this, I see the one person that leaves half a drink. The fact that they're drinking doesn't bother me. The fact that anyone in the world would leave half a drink just baffles me. Right? So what I'm saying is that I started the work the first time. I don't know what I am. I'm still wondering what's wrong with me. Am I addict? Am I alcoholic? Am I both? Are they the same? I did the work up to this point, and I saw the physical craving and the mental obsession for both. And I'm happy. I like NA. I like AA at the time. I would be happy to have found out I'm both. So what? It gives you two reasons to do the work. You're screwed either way. You're a double loser, right? You're not going to have these reservations that an alcoholic might have 20 years later. Maybe he can do some drugs and get away with it. An addict alcoholic is in a great position because they're screwed either way they go. Right? So I was content thinking, I'm going to find out my truth is going to be that I'm both. He said, now, just because we've seen the physical craving and the mental obsession, which your mother would get for some drugs, she doesn't get it with alcohol, and just because I had seen the craving and the obsession for both drugs and alcohol didn't mean I was a real addict. And he said, now what we have to do is go back to page 20. And I think now, after somebody has seen the craving and the obsession, this is the page where you'll find your truth. Because it talks about the moderate drinker, the hard drinker, which AA is filled with, the moderate drinker, the hard drinker, and the real alcoholic. Okay? Moderate isn't even something that's in my vocabulary. I do not need to look at moderate anything. If, it's, if I do it, I don't do it. I don't do anything moderately in my life. If I do it, I do it. If I don't, I don't. So moderate wasn't really a consideration. But it does say the moderate drinker has little trouble giving up liquor entirely, staying stopped, if he has a good reason. They can take it or leave it. That's not me with drugs or alcohol. That's probably not anybody in this room unless you're just a member of Al-Anon. And it still could be true. But that would be, could you be a moderate Al-Anon who can give it up entirely thinking about the other? <laughs> that disease I don't know, so I'm not going to speculate on their disease. I do know that we're their drug. But that's another story we'll get to later. But what about the hard drinker? And I believe these three terms, moderate, hard, and real, are as appropriate to the drug user as the drinker. So I'm looking at these three types in relationship to drugs and alcohol, and here's where I find my truth. The, the hard drinker or the hard drugger can have a habit, can be impaired physically and mentally, might even die before his time, but given a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, warning of a doctor, it could be making up your own mind. It could be a judge. It could be a wife. This person can stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and may even need medical attention. But what about the real alcohol? What about the real addict? They may start off as a moderate user or a moderate drinker. And here's an interesting point. The, the real alcoholic may or may not even become a continuous hard drinker. The real alcoholic might not even become as bad as the guy we just read about. Haven't you heard of people with worse drunkologues than yours that just don't drink, that choose not to, that were able to stop, but they had a bad habit. They got a hell of a drunkolog, 
They got horrible war stories, and it might even kill them. But when they were given a sufficiently strong reason, they could stop. So this guy, the real alcoholic, may start off as a moderate, may or may not even become a hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose control over his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. And given a sufficiently strong reason, he can't stop. And they're back to the same two points that we just looked at on 44. Same two points. So here's where I found my truth. By this book, by this process, I am a hard drug user who's a real alcoholic. Now, if you're an alcoholic and you find out you're not a drug addict, that's not me giving you permission or leading you to believe you cannot take drugs and not end up back on booze. Because you'll be powerless over where drugs take you, but you won't be powerless over drugs the way a real addict is, and vice versa. A real addict might be absolutely powerless over where booze takes him, but it takes him back to his drug of no choice. And they filter us full of this stuff that say, the drug we really have no choice over is our drug of choice. <laughs> They'll tell an alcoholic that his drug, because it was his favorite. It wasn't even his favorite. I knew men and women that hated booze, hated the taste, but they're alcoholic and they have to drink. And it's not their choice. Don't refer to what you are as using your drug of choice. It's your drug of no choice. So what's my truth with alcohol? I mean with drugs when I went back with these three terms, moderate, hard, and real. Heroin, I had a couple bouts. I had a habit. It gradually impaired me physically and mentally. I know what it's like to have a habit. It could have even killed me, any one of those shots. But I woke up one day and I made up my mind, I don't like where heroin takes me. I never did it again the rest of my life, and I couldn't quit drinking. I'm a hard drug user, given a sufficiently strong reason, can stop. Cocaine, I had a couple bouts. I know about shooting cocaine. I didn't understand smoking it, because I believe if you can take this much and you've got to do all this rigmarole, but you can take this much and put it in a spoon and shoot it in your arm and get a big bang, why do all that other stuff? And I can tell you about shooting cocaine. I can tell you about the craving. I can tell you about the mental obsession when I'm in the addiction. But I woke up one day and I made up my mind, I don't like the way this stuff makes me feel. And I never did cocaine ever again. Do I believe I can use drugs and not go back to my drug of no choice? No. I'm powerless over drugs because I'm a hard drug user and they, and they always take me back to my drug of no choice, which is booze. I'm a real alcoholic. Maybe you'll find you're both. Maybe you'll think you're a real addict and find out you're a real alcoholic instead. Maybe you'll find out you're both. Maybe you'll think you're a real alcoholic and find out you're just a real addict. But find someone that will give you the grace and the dignity through this process to find your own truth. Our job is not to convince people which program they belong in. Our job is to help them find their own truth and let them get free. They might find out they're neither and call you six months later and thank you for helping them get free of AA. I've done that too. <clears throat> so I'm saying to you that the first time and every time since through this process, when I've looked at drugs, I saw that I am a hard drug user, given a sufficiently strong reason, was able to walk away from drugs. The real addict doesn't understand me because he tried that a million times and he uses again. But I'm a real alcoholic, powerless over drugs. I'm powerless over where drugs take me. But the drugs themselves I was able to choose away from.
and I'm a real alcoholic. And it surprised me. I thought I was going to find out I was both. If I sit with a real addict, we have one piece missing that I think is necessary for that bond, one alcoholic to another, the basis of our program. Because I talked to him about making up my mind and walking away from heroin, walking away from cocaine, and I lose him. We don't have that connection. I'm not saying I haven't worked with addicts. I have. But I do encourage them to go to the fellowship where they'll have that connection of one addict with another. It's vital. So I found my truth in those three terms. I'm a real alcoholic, powerless over drugs, who was a hard drug user. So on 44, back to 44, they've reviewed these first two points again. When I honestly want to, I can't quit entirely. And when drinking, I have little control over the amount. Yes, I'm an alcoholic. But... Do I believe I'm suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience will conquer? And I had to spend some time with that. Then, am I the type that's hopeless? Now, what's hopeless? I had a view that it's a guy laying in the gutter with an extended liver, drinking a bottle of wine on Skid Row. That's not hopeless. He might have hope even if it's in just the next bottle, even if it's in that he might die. And for a lot of us, there's a lot of hope in that. You did not scare me when I was new to drink is to die. You scared me that I might go on feeling the way I was feeling a lot longer and die an ugly alcoholic death. Dying an alcoholic death is not usually quick. It's usually long and tedious and painful. And it can happen right here in AA without drinking. You don't have to drink to die from alcoholism. But I was told hopeless is a man who wants to quit and can't. When you want to quit, but you can't. That's hopeless condition. Wants to quit, but can't. <clears throat> and do I believe that to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are my only two alternatives? Now, why do they say these two alternatives aren't easy to face? You know why? For me? Because I can't pull off either one. That's why those alternatives are not easy to face, because I can't control them. I was not able to die an alcoholic death. I'm a failure at that, because I'm here. And I have not been able to live on a spiritual basis the way I would like to. If I could self-will my spiritual growth, I wouldn't be here today. You would, wouldn't you think after 22 years, I'd be like, I'd be the Dalai Lama and have my own temple, you'd be coming to see me. So the reason those two alternatives are not easy to face is because they're my only two. And now that I think they're my only two alternatives, I think there's a choice in the matter. But the, the, the reason they're not easy to face is I don't have any choice in either one of them. I couldn't pull off dying an alcoholic death, and I can't pull off self-willing my own spiritual growth. That's why they're not easy to face. Because once they get you down to two alternatives, you go, well, at least I have those two alternatives. You need to see that you're powerless over those two also. <laughs> so what's the real problem? We've looked at once I start drinking. We've looked at now that I've stopped drinking. We've, we're going to look at the spiritual malady. We've looked at do I suffer from an illness that only a spiritual experience will conquer? And am I of the hopeless variety? And do I only have two alternatives that aren't even alternatives? Whether we're looking at any of the points up to this page, the root of the problem is, in the next page, lack of power. That's my problem. I suffer from a disease rooted in lack of power 
because I don't have the power to control the amount once I start. I don't have the power to keep myself stopped now that I've stopped. I, I, I cannot make the only alternative that I have that's going to conquer this disease happen, and I cannot die an alcoholic death successfully or live on a spiritual basis the way I would like to. I'm going to, I'm going to present you with a picture. I still like pictures. My mind is still terribly... Does, my, my mind is still terribly affected. And sometimes pictures help me. And as we go through each of these considerations, I'd like to show you how the first step continues to step nine. And how you and many people that we know get off the first step at many different points. We'll come back to this in a little bit, but just write the first considerations. Can I control the amount once I start? Can I keep myself stopped now that I've stopped? Can I make my spiritual malady go the, away? Can I heal the spiritual malady? And then we will look at agnosticism, and then self-will, and then defects, and then amends. And I'll say to you that the first step goes down, down, down at each of these considerations, and we watch people get off the ladder going down at each step. For example, if the first consideration is, do I lose control once I start? We hear people that never even get to that because they say, hey, I just don't drink no matter what. They've just gotten off the first step. Then we see people who are absolutely convinced about the craving, but they're going to keep the obsession from happening. And they just got off the first step at the second consideration. Then we see people that are absolutely convinced of the craving. They're absolutely convinced they can't keep themselves sober, but now they're going to make their spiritual life go the way they, the way they would like it to, and they just got off the first step at the, at the third consideration, etc., etc., etc. And I'll show you that as we go, because I believe this. The first step can either take you deeper into step one by the time you get to nine and you have a reason to make nine, or it can take you further away from step one. And I've had both experiences. I've had times, the further away I get from step one, the further away I am from step one. It's my contention that if you pray and it goes the way that it should be directed by God, you will be more aware of step one and step nine than you were when you were in step one. I have a mind that says step one's only true when I'm in it. But now that I'm not in step one, it's not true anymore. I think step one should be a deeper because now in step nine, you're seeing your first step face-to-face, -face, other people. In inventory, you're seeing it in black and white. Now we're just looking at the symptoms. All we've looked at so far is the first half of step one. Why I'm powerless? Because of the craving and the obsession. So now let's go to see what's behind lack of power. Why I need to find a power by which I can live. It doesn't say we need to find a power so we don't ever drink again. It says we had to find a power by which we could live, and this power had to be a power greater than ourselves. Is that obvious? And the next logical question would be, then, if lack of power is my dilemma, shouldn't finding some power be the solution? How can any of you sitting here today be more than 10 or 15 years sober, having done some work, and still tell people that you're powerless over alcohol and that your lives are unmanageable? When the truth is, something came between you and alcohol, some sort of power came between you and alcohol a long time ago, and you've been given the power to manage your life for a long time. 
What kind of promise would there be for a newcomer in the room if I said to you, I'm 22 years sober and I'm powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable? It's not true. Something, some power, not of me, some kind of power or grace or whatever you want to call it came between me and booze 22 years ago and from doing the work I've been given the power to have a manageable life. And doesn't it make sense if the problem is being powerless and unmanageable that the solution should be having some power and some manageability which is what 10 and 11 are all about? This power doesn't originate from me but I found it inside of me. It's a strange paradox. They're not going to say, look in somebody else. Look deep down within something out here. They're going to say, search diligently deep down within yourself. <clears throat> if, <clears throat> if lack of power is the problem, shouldn't having some power be the solution? <clears throat> Let's go to page 52. So, I've looked at the first half of step one and I know now why I'm powerless. I know now what it means to be bodily and mentally different. I know now what it means to be physically powerless once I start and mentally powerless once I stop. But now, why is my life unmanageable? Why was my life unmanageable before I ever took a drink? Why did I read this next paragraph on 52 and it fit me, it described me, before I ever took a drink? And why does it describe me now, six months sober, dying of untreated alcoholism? Why does it fit me now? And why does this paragraph fit me from time to time since then? Because the ego rebuilds, and this had never been treated. And this was there. See, I don't need to ask anymore which came first, the craving, the obsession, or the spiritual malady. I was pouring booze on this spiritual malady. I was experiencing this spiritual malady way before I ever took a drink. Feeling alone, different, out of place as a kid dreaming a spaceship was going to land because I felt like it's somebody from another planet. That's what was there before I ever started pouring. Thank God I found something to pour, pour, pour on it. Thank God alcohol treated the spiritual malady. This comes first. This is why we're obsessions of the mind don't just fly around there in outer space and decide who to land on today. The mental obsession comes from an untreated spiritual malady. This is what came first. Because if you really look at this, I bet it describes every one of us before we ever took a drink. And I bet the only thing that ever treated this paragraph was alcohol until God. Only two things have ever treated this, this malady, booze and God. Thank God booze treated this spiritual malady. I would have blown my head off feeling the way I felt at age 12. So what does it say? And this fits the new guy. This fits, be, this fits me before I ever took a drink. And this fits me now, when, when it's time to do the work. What's, what starts to happen? I start to have trouble with personal relationships. Believe it or not, personal relationships do not take place out here between you and I. They take place in here. And they're reflected out here between you and I. I'm having trouble with personal relationships. I can't control my emotions. I'm prey to misery and depression. Depression is a big part of untreated alcoholism. A discussion during the break. Do I need to take medication or do I need to do the work? There's no answer to that. Do the work and then see if you need medication. See if one through nine treats the spiritual malady or if you still need medication after doing step nine. 
because the symptoms of untreated alcoholism and all these other things they say are wrong with us that we need medication for are so similar, but you should at least try the, the treatment for alcoholism, the, un, the spiritual malady, and then see what you need. We're not doctors. I do know the symptoms are very similar. And it says here, even if I'm just an alcoholic, I'm going to suffer from misery and depression. I can't make a living that's really satisfactory to my spirit. Are you doing what you feel passionate about? Do you know how many people we know about nowadays that are existing in miserable relationships and jobs that they hate? I'm glad to say to you it's a step up for me to be in love with someone that I want to be with and, and be doing what I feel passionate about. That's a big step up for me in sobriety. I spent a lot of time with people I didn't want to be with in jobs that I hated, living in places I didn't want to live, making just enough money not to be able to leave where I wanted to get out. <laughs> the feeling of uselessness the saddest thing for an alcoholic every one of us reached that place where you feel like you're of no use to anybody you're not needed or wanted or loved by anyone now that's changed maybe now I can drink or maybe I drank no matter how page 52 was but this is still the stuff that needs to be treated or maybe you've been suffering from this stuff for a long time and you're not drunk and you see how much grace has been involved in your sobriety. But do I believe God can take me past all this stuff? That was the consideration the first time. Where is that? Maybe I can, maybe, maybe, maybe God can take me past all this stuff. That was the consideration the first time and this last time through the word. But how is it really with this stuff? Money? How is it with MasterCard, Visa, American Express? How was it this morning at the kitchen table? Your wife? How is it inside? Depression? Misery? My mind always goes, well, it certainly isn't like it was 22 years ago when I'd take myself off the hook. I stopped the tension. See, the stuff might be a lot more subtle now after 22 years, but subtle doesn't mean less dangerous. I don't live with deep-seated resentment on a daily basis like I used to. I don't live with mental obsessions. But I still have some stuff, and this year's stuff is just as deadly as 22 years ago stuff because it's the stuff, and it's the stuff that's blocking me from God. So you look at page 52, and please, if there's anything you can do in prayer, if you can be shown... Don't let the unmanageability be separate from the drinking. Or you will start to do the work just to take care of this stuff, and it won't have anything to do with drinking again. And you'll be, you'll be making amends to manage your life, not because you're powerless over alcohol. And you'll experience what a woman said one time, put it better than anyone I've ever heard. She said, you can be taken forward through the steps. She said, there's also people that can take you backwards through the steps, and I'll tell you what I mean by that later. But going in either direction, don't get stuck on the dash. And I know what she meant. The dash turns upside down into a wall, and you're no longer doing the work because you're powerless. You're doing the work because your life is unmanageable. What do I mean by that? Amends don't have anything to do with drinking again. They have something to do with just making your life better. If the, if the amends are not connected to the first half of step one, you'll balk. Because you and I are not just going to settle for making things a little bit better. 
But if we have that fire under us, that the amends are about me being powerless over alcohol again because I'm alcoholic and I can't keep myself sober, then you have the pin, the linchpin. I used to see the steps as a straight line. And when I would start them again, I actually thought, I'm going back through the steps. You can't go back. You can't go back through the steps because the steps aren't a straight line. The steps are a circle. You start at one and it goes to 12, you're back to one. It's like a clock. And if 12 doesn't bring you to one, I don't know what will. <laughs> How far away am I from a drunk's puke? How many have I seen die? Do I remember that? Do I know what it was like for me? It's the first half of step one that will move you through the work. But underneath every one of these manifestations on page 52 is a drink. You go to the meeting and talk about the relationship like it was just the relationship you were talking about and that it's not a drink underneath waiting to happen. You go to the meeting talk about selfishness and you think it's just the selfishness you need to get free of, failing to realize there's a drink under that selfishness. You see, when the book says at a certain time there will be no effective mental defense, you know what my mind says? I know what that certain time would look like, and I know what that certain time would feel like, and I'm just going to not feel or get that bad. You know what I fail to remember? My ego doesn't care what the certain time is. It could be feeling good, it could be feeling bad, or it could be that horrible place that alcoholics hate more than bad or good. That place where you're just not feeling much at all and you got to get something going. Rage is better than numb. So circumstance doesn't have anything to do with that certain time, nor does emotional state. So the truth is, I don't know when that certain time might be. Bob Olson, who a lot of you have met, he was the one that always used to say, you better do the work because you don't know when you'll need it. <laughs> So how is it really with 52? And if you make a list of the current unmanageability, it's going to be really interesting to find it's a direct reflection of the current agnosticism. Because now we're moving into step two, and this is all you have to consider. Having seen all of this in step one, do I believe there's a power deep down within myself that can keep that obsession from happening and take me past where I am with all this, all this stuff on 52 to levels of life and freedom and existence that I can't even imagine. Past the troubles I'm having with personal relationships. Past my emotional nature. Past the misery. Past the depression. And I would like to show you where the list of current unmanageability, if you were to make a quick list right now, the list of current unmanageability will become your list of agnosticism, which will become your list of self-will, which will become your first column, which will become your eight-step list. Please, I don't even know where it came from. How do I repeat? The list of current unmanageability, the manifestations of page 52, if listed, will follow you through the work. And if they're connected to booze, the truth about alcohol will follow you through the work. Don't let them be separate. The dash doesn't mean they're two separate things. The unmanageability is my powerlessness over alcohol. So if uh, what I'm saying is this list of current unmanageability will become your list of agnosticism, which will become your list of self-will, which will become your first column, which will become your eight-step list. I love, I have a, because I don't have a lot, I have a life where I don't have a lot of obscure relationships in my life, 
I don't have a boss. I don't have people I know vague. The people I know, I know. I love to watch my daytimer, my file of facts, my address book, go from my Christmas card list to my first column list to my eight-step list in a matter of a few months. They're the people I love. They're the people I hate. And they're the people I owe amends. <laughs> and it's fun to watch that. You look through your daytimer and you see, ooh, there's some tension. <laughs> a few months ago, it was my Christmas card list of the people I love the most in my life. Now it's my first column. <laughs> then my first column magically turns into my amends list, and the people that are going to help me get free are the ones that I'm pissed off at. Ooh. So this list, the current unmanageability, you'll see some are external, some are internal. You got smoking, weight, health, judgment, selfishness, dishonesty. And I start to see the internal manifestations of page 52 bring about the external manifestations of page 52. My agnosticism continues to lead me to believe that I can smoke cigarettes. My agnosticism continues to lead me to believe that I don't have to be concerned about my health until I remember it's a drink. It's not a cigarette. My judgment will take me back to a drink. My beliefs change, my behavior changes with some power. But now we're going to look at where and how are we to find this power. So <clears throat> we're going to look at the second step in two parts. The first part of step two is a simple question. Page 47. We need to ask ourselves but one short question. And this is great for new people, and I'll give you something for those that have been around. And here's the way the book says it. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there is, circle that, that there is a power greater than myself? When I was new, I thought the first part of step two was going to be, do you now believe, or are you even willing to believe in a power greater than yourself? And I was going to go home and come back to you tomorrow with faith. It doesn't even say, do you believe in a power? It doesn't even say, do you have faith in a power? It says, do you now believe, or are you even willing to believe that there is? Just that there is. That there is something with more power than you. And my first step, filled with desperation, and where I come from, they call desperation a gift. The gift of desperation is that if there isn't something greater than me, I'm dead. There was no virtue in my first, second step. Nowadays, I'm a big-time believer, and my second step is all flowery and lofty, but I need to get back to that innocence that if there isn't a power greater than myself, I'm dead. So yes, I was willing because of my desperation. That's the paradox of desperation. Normal people think desperation just feels bad and doesn't do much. We've experienced the kind of desperation that feels bad but it's wonderful. Alkies are the only people that understand a horribly wonderful experience. How can it be both? A really painful, beneficial experience. Normal people don't think like that. My desperation from step one took me to a place where if there isn't something with more power than I have, I'll die. But then I started to see there had always been a power greater than myself. 
that the grace of God didn't begin on my sobriety date. If you hadn't been in the grace of God, how'd you make it to your sobriety date? And the best way to miss seeing the little miracles that are really big and the big miracles that are really little, the way to miss them, just do one thing. Take the credit. Turn your miracles into accomplishments and you'll miss miracle after miracle after miracle. Turn your, turn your miracles into your accomplishments and you won't even realize the grace involved in the next breath. How little I really have to do with anything. How much grace there was in my life before AA. How much grace there's been in my life since AA. So, I was told the first time to work with this question, do you now believe, or are you even willing to believe, that there is a power greater than yourself that I should go through? The logical mind would say, well, to make this consideration, I should go home and write down how much faith I have. I should do some sort of exercise to increase my belief in this power. No. You'll find that this chapter says you should actually go home and see how little you do believe. You should face your agnosticism. Because a lot of us, when faced with, do you believe that there is a power greater than yourself, you'd say, I believe this much, if you could measure it. And then you'll find the chapter says, well, isn't this much of it really about money, worshiping money, or things, or yourself, or your own mind, or others? Or even the beauty of a sunset, the sea or a flower, can be just as distracting as worshiping money or something else. I can get distracted by something out here that I think I have faith in as much as something in here. So what the chapter will do and what I was told to do was go through the entire chapter and mark any word or any statement that helps you face where you don't believe so you can get it down to the right size. Because even new people will say, yeah, I believe that there is a power and I believe this much. And the chapter tears it down. And you say, wow, I, don't, I really only believe this much. And you'll get to your doubt. They talk about honest doubt, worship of other things, um, worshiping the mind as the Alpha and the Omega. How many of us live that way? If I think it, it's true. <laughs> There's nothing I don't know that's not worth knowing. Then they start to ask you questions like, how do you know what you don't know? Or how do you know where you don't believe? Well, this is the exercise that will locate you to step two as well as step one located you to step one, the work you did in step one. But you don't go home and increase your faith and just add delusion to delusion. You go home and you go through the chapter and you mark any word that, st that sticks out to you or any phrase that sticks out to you that would help somebody face where they don't believe to face your current agnosticism. Our group, in my home group, we're allowed to ask questions as part of the format. It's not crosstalk. It's just anybody can ask anybody anything they would like on tonight's topic. There was an old boy there from the valley who said he did the work on a regular basis, one through nine regularly throughout his sobriety. Everybody loved him. And a young girl who didn't know any better, who was in the steps for the first time looking at her agnosticism, raised her hand and said, can you tell us about your current agnosticism, the last time you went through the steps that you discovered after all those years? He said, current agnosticism? Not only do I not know what you're saying, I've never been agnostic since my first time through the steps. Failing to see those little pockets that will be there after all these years. And I'll tell you where you'll find your current agnosticism is in the list of the current unmanageability. 
Because wherever there's current unmanageability, there's doubt about God being able to take you past it. And that's why you're having trouble with it. Because if you had full faith in those areas, they wouldn't be unmanageable. They wouldn't be unmanageable no matter how they were. In the relationship, not in the relationship. Beginning the relationship, ending the relationship. But I'm having trouble with those areas on 52 because of my current agnosticism. So look at the current agnosticism and ask yourself, because here's the way you got to word this now that you've been around for a while. For the new guy, it's enough to say, do you now believe or are you even willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? But what do you say to the new guy that's been proven over and over and over that there is? I mean, the guy that's been around. To the guy that's been around, you've got to add one little thing to this question. It'll make it relevant from now until you die. Do you now believe, or are you even willing to believe, that this power you say, have, say you have so much faith in can take you past the way it is now? That past here, there's more. But to, to consider that, you've got to see how it is now with 52. Do I now believe or am I even willing to believe God can take me past here? Because I'll tell you what, if anyone in this room, myself included, thinks that there's any area of your life where this is all there is, then God is not, is not finite. He's finite. He's not infinite. He's measurable. This is it. Any area of your life you can think of. Emotional stability, peace, freedom, freedom from alcohol, trouble with your... Uh, uh, the, how great your emotional nature is. If this is all there is, then God isn't everything. So if I see clearly the current unmanageability, I will find the current agnosticism, my doubt. And my doubt will be about whether God can take me past this I've just seen in step one. Do I believe that beyond here there's more? There's not. Maybe you have a God where you've gone to the well one too many times. You go to the well with a thimble, you get a thimble. That's about it. It might overflow, but that's only going to hold what a thimble can hold. You go to God with this glass, you're only going to get what this glass can hold. What about dropping the size of your box this time? What about dropping the container and going into God is everything? Because that's what's next. With an unlimited, not a container. Oh, it would only be this much. Go to the well for an unlimited supply that you don't, you can't even dream of. And you get to feel, and it adds to the tension. It connects to the first step. It starts to create this tension that's going to move you through the work and follow you all the way. Or you're going to get further away from it, and nine won't have anything to do with drinking again. And you won't finish your So you go through the chapter, and you mark the stuff that could help somebody face where they don't believe. Then you get to the second half of step two, which is on page 53. And for some people, there's a lot of work between the first part of step two and the second part of step two. The second part of step two, they call a proposition. The first part was a question. This is a proposition that they say if you've really seen step one, not only will you see you've been crushed by a self-imposed crisis that you can't postpone or evade, you need to fearlessly face the proposition that God is either everything or is nothing. He either is or he isn't. What is your choice to be? And I'd like to present you with this idea, whether you're doing it the first time or the hundredth time. If you think there's a choice here, you better go back to step one. 
Because, see, this is a choice you get to make from a place that no choice. And my mind cannot compute that unless I've experienced it. If you think you can make this choice, that there's a choice involved in choosing everything or nothing, you're missing something in your first step. But if you see that you've actually had an experience where you see there's no choice, and from that place of grace, you get to choose God as everything, that's the way to see it. I make this choice from a place of no choice. Most people think, how could you make a, place, a choice from no choice? You only can make a choice when there's a choice. And no, this is another paradox. We get to make this choice because there is no choice. No, 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 no. It's the only way I know to explain it. But I've experienced it. And I get to choose. And if God is everything, the debate is out of it. And don't bring it up again. Don't bring don't tell me God ain't in that what you're calling that squabbling to me about when you're in step 10. Don't tell me God ain't in September 11th. Everything or nothing. My God, who brought more people to God than the devil? A virtue? No. Even the devil got tempted. God works in mysterious ways. Who brought more people in this room to the God than, than alcohol? You're going to hate alcohol? How can you hate alcohol if it brought you to a spiritual awakening? How can you hate alcohol if it eliminated options? Normally, people in church don't even get eliminated to seek God. They don't even need to seek God. They just need to be around people that are seeking God. They don't need a personal relationship. They just need a conception. And they go on their life with power. And I'll also tell you this, coming up with a conception is only going to be a great burden. Getting free of some old ideas about God can be great. It's not Santa Claus. He's not going to punish me. It's not a punishing God. But I'll tell you this, once you get to a conception like everything, drop any other ideas. Because I believe this, any idea about God isn't God. Any idea about God isn't God. And he's as much everything as he is no thing. So even these terms don't do you much good after a while, but it's good to see that you've got a choice here, but you really don't have a choice here. And if that makes sense, then you're in the right place. <laughs> I, accepting that God does everything blocks me from saying he's also no thing. So, but they say you can make They say you can. I chose. God is everything or I'm nothing. Or I'm not. That's my first second. My God either is or I ain't. God is either everything or I'm nothing. That was my choice. Last time I chose, because it does say it's a choice. It, you know what I chose last time after 21 years? He's both. And that choice moved me out. He's as much in everything as he is in nothing. Now, to work with that part of the second step, we were given a great tool. Go back through the whole chapter with another color. And mark every word or every statement that would take you from believing from, or, or that there is to choosing everything. You'll find there are more positive statements. As soon as a man can say he's willing, he's willing, he's willing away. You'll find them. They'll stand out to you. Because you saw the statements that helped you see where you don't believe. Now you're going to look for statements that take you from your willingness to believe to choosing. From bridge to shore. It's sometimes a, it's sometimes a long journey. It's sometimes in the summit. But that space between your head and your heart is a big distance sometimes. But you will find those statements, they'll stand out to you. They're more positive statements. And they make an assumption that you've 
you're at least willing to believe that there is a power. And mark them. And start to look at those statements in prayer. And they will move you to choosing. This is my choice. I get to choose. See the grace in that. The idea that anyone in this room gets to choose this proposition, everything or nothing, is a reflection of how much grace you're already in. And you're only in the second step. Please don't believe these people that tell you there's 12 promises halfway through the nine step and that's it. You're going to find promises at every step. If all there is is 12 promises that are going to amaze me before I'm halfway through amends, right through about it. Because I ain't never getting halfway through amends. You're going to find some promises of what will happen if you don't move on. You're going to find some great promises before the third step prayer, after the fifth step, even in step one, even here. As soon as a man can see his wounds and he's well on his way, it's been repeatedly proven among us that on this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. And it's good to make note of it that first half of step two on 47. But that's your cornerstone. That the cornerstone at this point doesn't make much sense. You don't much know what they're talking about. But you're going to want to know where those stones are out when you return home from a fist step and they ask you, and you the stones and the cement. And the cement you'll find on the first page of there is the solution. And the cement and then your foundation. The foundation is one, two, eight. Three, one, eight. The cement is sharing in a common problem and a common solution. One element of the cement is sharing in a common problem. But if that by itself was by we would have recovered and would have recovered jail. If all we needed was to be around people with the same people. The other part of that cement is sharing with people that have a common solution. Now we've made this foundation in the first three from the first form we're going to put on this arc put on this arc about later is the cornerstone that I'm willing to believe that I use a power than power upon a simple cornerstone a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. I would love, as I'd love earlier, now we're going through the second step and it's lunchtime. We'll move it with her pace for me, two pace for me. I would have loved if I would have loved more time on those chapters. But keep this in mind. mind. We you with 43 numbered pages, pages, 10 in the doctor's opinion, then this doctor's opinion, and a half, and a half, and a half. We have used, we have used 54 pages. One step. Fifty-four out of ninety-nine. The first line. The first line. The first line. Fifty-four out of fifty-four and fifty-four. Look at one step. One step. Part in the first step. Use the chapter to the agnostic. Look at step two. And now, and now, get and how that works. And, and prepare and prepare for the ABC. Once again, it gives you a great review. Like they have said, every other every other stage. Now before the ABC, they tell you the description of the alcoholic is the first step. The chapter to the chastic is my second. Is my my and my personal adventure before and after. What was there? What was that? What do they put in before and after? Before and after, what for now? Now, so that's the way I see it, the way I've experienced it. The work I've done in step five, which is the description of the outcome, like that. The work I've done in step two, with the step 
to at my first adventure before the first drink and after the first drink for drinks made for clearing made for drink that I'm not alcoholic now for sober now I killed my own life thrown sober before or after that probably no human power can relieve my alcoholism drunk or sober and that no human power I'm sorry and that God can and will if I seek it so before and after before and after exactly what we've looked at up to here after the first drink, which is where we started, where before the first drink, which is the next part of step one, and my personal adventures. And see, there's the point I was missing. I knew I was alcoholic when I was drinking, but am I still alcoholic sober? I knew that no human power can relieve what I suffered from drinking, but now do I believe there's a human power that can relieve what I suffered from sober? So the way I see that paragraph now is that the description of the alcoholic, step one, to the agnostic, step two, and my own personal adventures, drunk or sober, has made it clear, has made that drunk or sober, I'm alcoholic and can't manage my own, manage drunk or sober. That no human power can relieve my alcoholism, drunk or sober, and that God could and would, could and would. There was a big point there for me. Because I had to change that to change and would. They're talking about, we talk about. I had no problem believing that God could, but that he can. I know he can. I've seen it in you. But do I believe he will? For me, there was some old ideas. He can for you, but he won't for you. So I sat with C for a while. So once again, do it in prayer. Has the work you've done really convinced you of these three pertinent ideas because the next the next question is going to be are you going to be a so it could be a, it could be a while on the ABC because it, it's summing up all the work you've done up to that stage I got a meeting one night when they were talking about the promises on 84 or whatever page it was and they said how do you get the promises on page 84 and some old Look to me and that it's really simple. Do everything from one to eighty-three. <laughs> it's that simple. That right? right? So it's time to go to lunch. But I would say if anybody in the room is having any sort of experience, and during lunch you can pray for an open mind and a new experience with what's going to go on. It's going to be here till five thirty. You might sit quietly for five minutes. Read that paragraph before the ABCs. Read the ABCs really slowly. Ask yourself, are you convinced? And look at the first requirement. The third step. There is a requirement to the third step. And that is, am I convinced that my life runs on self-will? doesn't work. It's not successful. Because from that word, our, our description of the alcoholic, to the second line in the third paragraph, which is, the first requirement is, I'd be convinced that my life is on self-will, it can hardly be a success. That's everything that's ever and right where we're and right where we're before making the third step. So we'll come back at two.
We're on page 60. I was asked one time that if I was passing someone in an airport and they were getting off the plane and I was getting on a plane and I had like 10 seconds to say to someone who was new in the program the most beneficial thing that I've been given, what would I say? And I had to think about it for a minute and I thought, well, I would hand him a book and I would say, answer every question and follow every direction. So now we're at a point where that shifts. Because all we've really done, this could take, you could spend three months with somebody, three weeks, three hours. Because all we've really done is made some considerations. All we've really done is ask ourselves some questions over a lot of material. You know, from the doctor's opinion, to page 60 is really about 70 pages. 70 pages just to be convinced of the ABCs. And if you're new and you're just beginning this process, uh, I would ask that you consider your, your ideas about the first three steps or even your experience from reading them off the wall or listening to people. What your experience is with one, two, and three before you start this process and your experience with one, two, and three now that you've done then now that you've made all the considerations up to page 60 and for me it was like and here's what I had to compare it to because uh, while I was in treatment in 1982 we had to get a sponsor before we got out and I heard the man that was going to become my sponsor in my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous I heard Don and it scared me because I thought for some reason he had changed himself. I knew he was like me. I knew he was like me as a kid. I knew he went. He did a lot of drugs. I knew he went to the penitentiary. But I also saw that he wasn't like me anymore. He had been changed. And I interpreted that as that he had changed himself. And I was just, I was just fed up with trying to change myself. So it took me six months to ask him. And in the meantime, during those six months, I picked a guy the next week in my second meeting in the treatment center. I picked a guy that was totally, totally opposite from Don. If somebody would, and I didn't even know it, I was so asleep. If somebody would have said to me, pick somebody as, as opposite as you can imagine from the man you heard in your first meeting, that's who I asked to be my sponsor. And he was a great guy. We had a lot of fun. He got me involved in the fellowship and... Harry and um, the way we did the first three steps was uh, in about two hours and he sat there with me and he said are you powerless over alcohol and I said yes but what I was referring to was I was powerless over alcohol because of all the trouble it got me in and where it took me and then I find out it doesn't have anything to do with where it took you or how much trouble you got in and then he said, um, "Do you believe, is your life unmanageable? And I thought he meant out here. And I said, yeah, that's what alcohol did. And then he said, do you believe in God? And I said, yeah. He didn't ask me what kind of God I believed in, that I thought that God was going to strike me down and, get me, and strike me drunk as soon as I was a bad AA member. 
And then he said, now let's go to this book. And we read, a, we read the third step prayer. And I had no basis of any foundation up to the prayer. So we did the prayer and nothing happened. And he gave me a sheet on how to write inventory. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, depending on how I looked at it, it had a four-column inventory. And, and I went home, and I, I can do the first three columns. I've been doing the first three columns my whole life. Every therapist I ever went to, every group I was ever in, all they ever ask you is, who are you mad at? And why are you mad? And how does it affect you? And I can do that all day long. But unfortunately, or fortunately, it had a fourth column where I was supposed to look at my part in each resentment. Uh, there was absolutely no way I could do it physically, mentally, emotionally. I couldn't do it. And I started to lie. And I would see Harry, and he said, are you writing? Oh, yeah. yeah. Or yeah, I'd see him, how's the inventory going? Oh, great, great. And I stopped at a part I didn't have the power to do. And then I hit this place at six months. And the only thing I can say about that is that I knew it was inside of me. It wasn't out here. Everything was better out here. I saw the unmanageability was an internal condition. And uh, all of a sudden, it was just in my face. All this stuff I'd been pouring booze on for 18 years. And I called Don, and he said, uh, he, had this, he still has this chuckle. It drives me crazy. And uh, he chuckled, and he said, I wondered how long it was going to take. Come on over. And, you know, all we did was start on the title page and we went through everything we've gone through up to this page. And that's all I can attribute it to because I really didn't do anything else. And I got to the fourth column and it just came, just started coming. So what I know is this. If you're thorough with everything up to page 60, you'll be given the power to do what's on page 61. If you do everything to page 64, you'll be able to do everything on page 65 that it's that powerful of a process. You see, I believe there's a miracle at each step for each of us, whatever that might be. But I believe the miracle of each step is when you're in the action of the next. Now, what do I mean by that? Do you want to know when you're done with step three, if you're still questioning? I'll tell you how you'll know when you're done with step three, when you got a piece of paper and a pen and you're making a list. You want to know when you're done with step seven? When you're making a list in the eighth step. You want to know when you're willing to make amends? It's one of my favorite jokes, but you'll know when you're willing to make amends when you start to hear some really strange noises. Noises that you haven't heard before. Like, that's one of the strange noises you'll hear. Yourself knocking on other people's doors. You'll hear strange noises coming out of your mouth like, I'm here to talk to you about the harm I caused you. Or statements you've never made in your life, like, what can I do to make this right? You know, that's when you know when you're done with step eight. You know, the willingness, the willingness to make amends is an, is an unmistakable sound. You can't miss it. And you'll hear those sounds. Sometimes it's a busy signal. Sometimes it's a, it's a phone. Sometimes it's knocking on someone's door you never thought you'd be able to see again or wanted to. It's a little easier then, you know.
But if we've been thorough up to this point, and they ask me after the ABCs, am I convinced if you turn this statement in? Being convinced. So I turn that into a question. Am I? Being convinced of what? That I'm alcoholic and I can't manage my own life. Being convinced that no, that, that no human power can relieve my alcoholism. And being convinced that I'm willing to believe that God not only can, but that he will relieve my alcoholism if I seek him. So how am I going to seek him? That would be the next question. But before you can begin to seek God, you have to make a decision about God. But before you make a decision about God, there's a requirement. So we're going to look at the third step in four parts. Part one is, am I convinced of the ABCs? Part two is the first requirement of the third step. The first requirement of the third step is that I be convinced that my life run on self-will doesn't work. And if you're not, you'll find they give you a page and a half. They give you a lot of information and a lot of questions all the way to the bottom of 62, but not the last paragraph. And this is where it goes into the actor, who's almost always in collision with something or someone. This is where they talk about you want to run the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players. Actually, we're actors who want to be directors who end up being producers. That works a little better in L.A., but you can, under, you can get the feel for it. Um, it goes into ideas that I had never looked at, even when your motives are good. You can be a producer of confusion rather than harmony. That's not, I only wanted the best for you. That's thinking you know better than God. What's best for somebody else just because it was the best for you? Or even when trying to be kind, it talks about. So I'm starting to look at self-will. The connection I would like to refer to again for those of you that can see it is that your list of current unmanageability, which are the manifestations of page 52, became your agnosticism in the first part of step two. One is a reflection of the other. Now, those two lists, which are really one, which are the unmanageability and the agnosticism, will now become where your self-will lies which will soon become the first column. So watch that the next time you do the work, or if you're in the work, and see if the current manifestations of the unmanageability aren't a reflection of the current manifestations of the current agnosticism, and see if that isn't a reflection of where you're having self-will, and see if that list just puts names on it, you make it into your first column. And if, it's, and if that first list, if the unmanageability is connected to a drink, then your first column will be a drink, not just names. There'll be a drink of booze behind each of those names, whether it's a person, an institution, or a principal. And those lists will become one with alcohol. But now it's asking me to look at my self-will, which comes from my doubt about God, which comes from my unmanageability, which comes from a drink of alcohol. And they give you the next page, page, page 61. 
all of page 62. And then they give you what I think is the greatest statement of hope so far in the big book, in the middle of page 62. And this is a great statement of hope. Some people take this statement, they beat themselves up in the fourth column. And that statement is, my troubles are of my own making. I would say before you start inventory, you should try to see the positive side to that statement. You see, because uh, we're no longer victims, and I got free of a lot of that in the first two steps. And thank God my troubles are of my own making. Because if my troubles now are of anybody else's making, they're going to have to do something for me to get free. Daddy's dead. If my troubles are of my father's making, he's going to have to come back from the grave and forgive me or teach me right. You will never get the love you needed then now. You got a lot of people in therapy seeking love that they needed when they were a child, now that they're an adult, and you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. Not, not what you needed then. You'll find the love you need now. But you'll find that deep down within, and you'll bring that to your relationships. That's what changed for me. I don't think anyone in this room does not know the skills to have a healthy relationship. I do think we suffer from not enough, we suffer from lack of power, and we need some power to bring what we already know to a relationship. But the mistake I always made was I was looking for something, kind of like with meetings, I was looking for something from the relationship to make me whole, and together we'll work this thing out, rather than becoming a whole person who could bring something to a relationship where they're both bringing to it rather than taking from it. Kind of like meetings we were talking earlier. The first time that everyone in this room gets free that meetings aren't what keeps you sober, my mind says, well, then why go to meetings? If meetings don't keep me sober, why should I keep going? Well, maybe I can keep going, but I need to find another motivation. Maybe I can start to go to give rather than get. Oh, I didn't get what I wanted from that meeting. So what? What did you bring to it? Well, she didn't give me what I needed in this relationship. You're looking for a human to give you what God can only give you. One of the biggest pieces in my last inventory was that I want humans to be God. And I want God to be a human. And I'm looking for God what I can get from you. And I'm looking for you what I need to get from God. And it was a big piece in my inventory. Why don't these people live up to my expectations? My God, I've got expectations like they should be God's. Not human. And I tell you, I've been all over the world and I've met some enlightened human beings. I've met some awake beings. I've met some spiritual beings. We all have. But you know what the term is they always leave out when they use these terms? Spiritual being, enlightened being, awake being. They always leave out the word human. That's what I don't like. And it was a long time before I had any compassion for myself to just be human. And I think there comes a time on this path, not necessarily at this point, but for every one of us, I think there'll come a time on your path where you're going to have to stop perpetuating violence on yourself by always trying to change that part of yourself that will always be just human. It's these people that go from one self-help thing to the next and they're always working on something. When do you come to some sort of love for yourself that's healthy? You know, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. And it's that kind of self-esteem that will set up a life where you won't be let down by people. 
But we'll get to that. This is this describes when I'm not at one. This describes when I'm running my life on my will. And here's the point I would like to make. Why would anybody in this room decide to turn their life run on their will over to God if they still thought their life run on their will could be successful? That's why this requirement comes before the decision. Because no one in this room would want to decide to turn their will and their life over if they, st- if they still thought their life run on their will could be successful. That's why I want to decide to turn my will and my life over because my life run on my will hasn't worked. So that's where they start after you're convinced of these ABCs. So you sit with that requirement and you just sit with it and you read those pages and you read those pages and you read those pages until you can just say to yourself, I'm convinced. I am absolutely convinced that my life run on my will sober. Not just They're not talking about just drunk in the ABCs. They're talking about drunk or sober. And I'm convinced that my life run on my will sober doesn't work. Even when my motives are good, even when trying to be kind, I'm always after something. And, I, and there's a state of consciousness that the first three steps can bring you to that my sponsor talks about being brought to in the Colorado State Penitentiary. And that state of consciousness is this. Anything God has in mind for me is better than anything I will or ever will have in mind for me. It's a place of surrender. Whatever God has for me is better than what I have for me. Bill Wilson talks in the 12 and 12, one of the few lines that I do relate to is that my, my best can be an enemy of the best that God has for me. Even my very best. At my very best. There's another third step consideration they gave me, which goes like this. Are you willing to live life on terms other than your own? There was another third step consideration that just hammered me, and that was, if you had something to do with your own creation, wouldn't you have done a little better job than God's? <laughs> That'll bring you to where you play God, right? So we've looked at two parts. We've looked at, am I convinced of the ABCs, and am I convinced of the first requirement? Now, here's some of the misconceptions I've heard to step three and that I've had myself. A lot of people think the third step is turning your will and your life over to the care of God. It's not. It's deciding to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. A lot of people think the third step, then, then, then the logical question was, okay, step three is not turning my will and my life over to the care of God. It's, it's just deciding to. So what's the decision? And a lot of people will say the third step decision is the prayer. The third step decision comes way before the prayer. The third step decision is at the bottom of 62. I would also like to refer to, this is where the paragraph starts, this is the how and the why of it. The how and the why of what? The how and the why of deciding to turn your will and your life over. So first they're going to tell you why, and then they're going to tell you how. So why do I need to make this decision? Why? Well, they answer their own question. Because playing God doesn't work. That's why I need to make this decision. Me playing God doesn't work. Me running my life on self-will doesn't work. 
So that's why. So how do I make this decision? Well, it's pretty simple. It says, we decided, this is the third step decision. We decided that from hereafter in this life, God would be my director, my principal. I would be his agent. He would be my father and I would be his child. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept is the keystone, mark that because we're going to review these stones in a little while, the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. So now we have a spiritual structure that consists of a foundation, which is in, some people say it's the first step. The foundation is your first step. That has to be strong. The first stone put on that foundation was at step two. Do you now believe or are you even willing, your willingness to believe? That's the corner, that's the cornerstone. Now you've put some more stones in place. You're at the top of this arch and you're going to put the keystone in, which balances the whole thing. And they say here that the keystone is this decision. Then you're going to put some more and at the 12th step there'll be a foundation, another foundation stone. So they're saying here that this decision is, is quite important. It's going to be the, the balance of this new and triumphant arch or to my freedom. So there's the decision. So I was told, I was told after being convinced of the ABCs, after being convinced of the first requirement that my life run on self-will doesn't work, that now I should take these terms, director, principal, and father, and put next to them their, their opposites, the actor, the agent, and the child, and ask myself what those terms mean to me. I had some stuff I had to get through to look at God being a father. I didn't like my father. I didn't like my father till he was on his deathbed, and I didn't really gain much respect for him until he was dead. How am I going to work with that? I've been told you can choose one of those that works for you. You can look at all three of them, what they mean together. But what does a director really do? He says, move over here, directs your, directs your speech, directs your actions, just like in a movie. What would a principal do? You mean I get to be an agent of God? You mean a big part of, of me being here today is part of my third step decision? that I made this decision, I would like to be an agent of God. Stand up in, a, stand up in an AA meeting sometime and say, I'm here today as an agent of God. <laughs> mm. It's hard enough to stand up in your home group and say you're a recovered alcoholic. They'll think you mean cured or that you're crazy or that that's not a promise. So you, you look at those, you look at those conceptions and you, and you make a decision. From hereafter in my life, this is what I would like. I would like to stop being a director and I'd like to just be an actor. I always see the star in the scene. I never see the little guy that's running around in the corner doing all the footwork. The agent. I always see Don Quixote. Or the principal. What does that mean? What would it mean for me to be a child of God? And my sponsor, and he laid this on me the first time in the work, so it wasn't so esoteric. He said that if the idea that I am a child of God could go from my head to my heart one day, I would never have a problem with self-esteem ever again. That if it could go from my head to my heart, 
that I am a child of God, there would never be anything you would be able to do, accomplish, acquire, or succeed at that would ever do, ever do anything more for your for healthy self-esteem than to realize that you're a child of God. You know? And you decide. Then they give you some promises based on the on the decision. Why did they put the promises before the prayer? And I think it was really tricky that after the prayer, if you look at the end of the third step prayer, why did they put we thought well before taking this step, making sure that we were ready? Because <laughs> they knew who they were writing this book for. And if we thought too much before taking this step, we would talk ourselves out of it. So right after the prayer, they put, we thought well before taking this step. You should look at that before you do the prayer. Have I? Am I, am I really ready? Ready to what? To abandon myself utterly to God. Am I really ready to do that? And my question would be, how are you going to abandon yourself to God? And it was the same answer I got to, then how do I turn my will and my life over if this was but a decision? And the answer was, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Acts against the will, contrary to the way you've lived your life. That's how we turn our will and our life over. That's how you're going to decide to abandon yourself utterly, is steps four through nine. And they give you some promises. And my sponsor never used the promises like carrots. Oh, maybe these will happen for you one day, sometimes quickly. People who want to stay sick love to hide behind, sometimes slowly. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. They never claim spiritual progress. They just know they're not perfect. You see, there's a lot of lines in this book that you've heard people use to stay sick. And, you've, and there's a lot of lines in this book you could use to get well. So what are some of these promises? When we sincerely take such a position, all sorts of remarkable things follow. We have a new employer being all-powerful. He'll provide what you need if you keep close to him and perform his work well. I think, to me, that meant... He will show me what he'll give me the power to write inventory if I keep close to him and continue on with this work. The best thing I can do for God at this point is four through nine. Not all this stuff out here. I think it's pretty important to have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps before you carry the message to other alcoholics. That doesn't mean you can't be of service. But I think the term 12-step work has been so perverted that it that it would be as beneficial to be making coffee as it would to be taking somebody through the 12-step work. 12-step work is work with the 12 steps. (laughs) As far away from that as we've gotten. Or it can be pitching a new drunk, but that's 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 work in the 12 steps, helping someone see their first step. But I'm the kind of alcoholic that wants to have a spiritual awakening as a result of something I haven't done yet. But I do know that at this point, the first time I took the third step, I started to find a quiet place inside. I was told to practice, to try to see a picture of a place where I'd been at peace sometime in my life, in my mind, and I would always see this crater lake in Boulder, Colorado, where I was when I was a hippie. And then I was, I was, I was encouraged to try to see that place other than in my head, deep down within. 
And I was, I was, I was encouraged to bring my conception of God into that place with me. And at the time it was just light. And I would see myself at this lake with this light. And I would practice sitting there with God. And that began to happen when I took the third step. Established on such a footing, I began to be less and less interested in myself, my little plans and design. And more and more, I became interested in seeing what I can contribute to life. And what I could contribute to life at that time was to, was to move on with four through nine. Was to have experience with four, not just theories about it. Was to write inventory and share about my experience with one, two, and three. You'll begin to feel new power flow in. You'll begin to enjoy peace of mind. As you discover you can face life successfully, you'll become conscious of God's presence. When that starts to happen, you'll lose your fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. You'll be reborn. You see, my sponsor told me that the word restore in step two wouldn't work for me. Because I'd never been in a place of sanity to be restored to. He, he said I probably, we would assume I went insane about three or four seconds after I was born and that I did not to be, I did not need to be restored to anything. I needed a new mind. I needed a new mind. A lot of people say AA gave them their life back. I never had a life to get back. Some of you had it going on and that's all you want back is what you already had. I didn't have it going on to get back. I needed a new mind and a new life. I was reborn. I am not the same person that took the third step when I was six months sober. I'm not the same person that took the third step a year ago when I started the work this time. It's good to look at the prayer before you say it and really see what it is you're saying here. And then you and then you do it in a meaningful way to you and your sponsor or whoever you're doing it with, however they want you to do it. And it says, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Anybody ever wonder why there's no amen at the end of the third step prayer? But there is at the end of the seventh step prayer? Was it a typo? Was it a mistake? Did he mean to put an amen there, but they didn't? I was told it's not by mistake. And I was told that there's no amen at the end of the third step prayer because everything you do from the third step prayer until the seventh step prayer is all part of the prayer. And that in that prayer I would be safe and protected. And that that prayer would end at the end of the seventh step. And then there's an amen. And it proved to be true. Because I went into a place I decided to never go into again. And that's where I found God, in the middle of that garbage I thought I was never going to look at again, because I, I knew I couldn't fix it. It says, next we launch out on a course of vigorous action. This is the first step of action. So, this is where the book is going to shift, and we're no longer just going to make considerations and answer questions. We are not going to go past one direction until we've done it. And I'll show you what I mean by that when we get to the first direction. But it does say here, this is the first step of action, vigorous action, which many of us never attempted. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, this third step decision could, remember, they're reminding you again it was but a decision. It could have little permanent effect unless it once followed by a strenuous effort, and here's what inventory is. 
Inventory is a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. That's what inventory is. But before that, it says our decision has, was a vital and crucial step, but it could have little permanent effect unless it once followed by a strenuous effort, which leads me to believe if this third step is followed by a strenuous effort, I could have a permanent effect. Because if it tells me what I don't do, I won't have a permanent effect, and if I do do this, I will. And i got to tell you, I've never been the same since the day I took the third step the first time. But I have to tell you, I know it's necessary that I follow it with four through nine. It's not a place to stop. Liquor is just a symptom. So now we're going to get down to the cause, which we'll find in column two, and the condition of our alcoholism in column three. Therefore, you'll start on a personal inventory. And here's why you do the work on a regular basis. Because a business that takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. That's one of the reasons for continued work with four through nine. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding, searching, and a fact-facing, fearless process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One object is to disclose damaged and unsaleable goods and to get rid of them promptly without regret. If I'm to be successful, I can't fool myself about values. What is it worth? So we're, we're going into inventory to look for truth. God is truth. If you're finding big chunks of truth, you're finding big chunks of God. We're going to do the exact same thing with our lives. We're going to search out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure, being convinced, remember, I'm con I, I said I was convinced, that self-manifested in various ways is what has defeated me. Now I'm going to consider the common manifestations of self. What are the common manifestations of self? Resentment, dishonesty, selfishness, and fear that I bring into relationships. They start with resentment. This is the number one offender. And from now on, it's also important in each paragraph to know what it is in the paragraph. So let me read it the way I see it. Resentment is the number one offender. Resentment destroys more alcoholics than anything else. Really. Resentment destroys more alcoholics than alcohol. It says, than anything else. From resentment stems all forms of spiritual disease. For we have not only been mentally and physically ill, body and mind, we have been spiritually sick. There's the three parts to the first step. Mentally, physically, and spiritually. When the spiritual malady, the manifestations of page 52, are overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Which means to me, if I take the spiritual treatment for being shut off to, to, get, to get unblocked from my own spirit, I will never get the mental obsession, which means I'll never get the physical craving. But here's where they describe the three-part disease. We're not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. And this, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed people, institution, or principles with whom we were angry. Stop. Don't go any further. That's the first instruction of action. And you stay on the list until the list is done. And this is where you're making your first column. 
And I was told you'll know when the list is done when you know the list is done. And you know what? When, I, when the list was done, I knew it was done. But I also keep myself open. From the time I start my resentment list, my first column, until the day that I fist step, if another name comes or another entry that belongs in my inventory comes, I put it down and I take it across to where I am. So from the day you start your list until the day you do your fist step, keep it current. More will be revealed. Sometimes you're in the middle of the fourth column and three other names come. Keep it current. It shouldn't just be an inventory from the, from the day you start your list backwards. It should be a list from the day you start your list until you fist step. It's obvious people are people. And I believe what comes is what needs to come. If you say a prayer and you say, God, help me face and be rid of the things in myself which are blocking me from you, from others, and from myself, if the name comes, put it down. Don't analyze it. The first column is not the time to analyze it. Don't question it. Just put it down. Institutions are a little more vague. It could be hospitals. It could be IRS. It could be I include groups of people. I think if the name comes, if an entry comes, don't even question what category it is. Just put it down. Groups of people that you've resented. Principles. Principles are values and belief. I was either pushed on as a kid that I don't like or sometimes AA principles. Write inventory on the principle. Just don't drink no matter what. And see what comes in the fourth column. Any of this stuff that's been pushed on you that, that comes when you pray, put it down. Stay on the list. Groups of people. Start with your earliest memory and come forward to today. Start with today and go back. Now, I'll give you a clue for those that have been around for a while. Because a lot of you that have been around for a while, you don't live with deep-seated resentment like you did 10, 15 years ago. You don't live like that. So to work with the word resentment doesn't generate much of a list nowadays. Work with some other words. Who's let me down? Look through your address book. See where you feel tension. Who am I jealous of? Who am I discouraged with? Who have I been betrayed by? You'll find this, the more subtle forms of self in there. But all you're really trying to do is to say a prayer and go with what comes that's in your consciousness. But don't think it has to be a huge resentment that you're holding on to to make a list now after being around for many years. I look at the people I sponsor. I look at page 52. I look at what I don't like about myself and others. Because of what we're leading up to here, I would say do not put yourself or God on this first list. Not yet. So when you know the list is done, you know the list is done, you come to the next instruction. We asked ourselves why we were angry, let down, jealous, disturbed. And that's where you do column two. Now, if I have a name, and I'm still working with blank pieces of paper, I'm not working with a notebook yet, and all I have so far is a list, all I have so far is my first column. I take the first name off my list, I put it on a piece of paper, and I let the second columns come. A, B, C, she did this, this, didn't do that, didn't do that. Now I just do that until I'm done with every name. But I'm not still working with my notebook yet. I'm just putting the person's name 
and the resentments or whatever comes for the second column. Now let's say I do that on everybody and I've and I, and I followed that instruction. I've asked myself, why am I angry? I take the first name and I take the first resentment. For example, if I got Charlie and I got ten resentments toward Charlie, I'm going to use ten pieces of paper. Paper's not expensive. You don't have to cram ten resentments on one page so your ego wins and you don't ever see anything because you got ten set third columns crammed in there. You're trying to fit the fourth column in there. If you got five resentments toward the guy, use five pieces of paper. So I've done this first two columns on these pages over here. I've got my first two columns done. And I take a name off my list and the first resentment, and I like to number them and letter them. So, for example, the first name off my list, I would number it. Let's say his name's Charlie. And I got five resentments toward Charlie, so I'm going to do 1A. And then I'm going to do the second one on another page, and the third one on another page, and a fourth one on another page. One page per second column. Bill gives you a few examples here. But what he found here was that in most cases, after he listed why he was angry, in most cases we're going to look at seven areas. So let's say I've got number one from my list, and his name is Charlie, and A was uh, didn't pay me back. I'm going to look for seven areas of self. It's a little confusing because they repeat themselves in these next two paragraphs, but the first one is that we will find that our self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, sex relations, were either hurt or threatened. So I was angry. I was burned up. On this list, we said opposite each name our injuries. Was it self-esteem? We already have. Security, they're giving me a new one. Ambition I already have, personal relations I already have, sex relations I already have, and then all the way at the bottom he uses another one, number seven, which is pride. So I find there's seven words here they're going to work with in the third column. So I say to myself very simply, when I resented, and you might have something where you put the name down, but you come to it now and you go to write the second column, but you don't feel that way anymore. But you got to go back to when he when he didn't pay you back, when you were angry. You're looking at what's stuck in there from when you were angry. So I asked myself, when I resented Charlie for not paying me back, did it affect my self-esteem? Yes. Pocketbook? Yes. Ambition? Yes. Personal relations? Yes. Sex relations? Could have. Because if I would have had that money from Charlie, I could have looked better with this girl over here. Sometimes it's not always uh, pocketbook and it's not always sex. Security, definitely. Pride, absolutely. <coughs> he gives you a couple choices of how to do this. With Mr. Brown, he has three resentments and three third columns. One was attention to my wife, told my wife about my mistress, might get my job at the office, and he uses the third column next to each one of them. In the next example with Mrs. Jones, he puts a bunch of sentiments in one paragraph. And in the, in the third one, he with the employer, he does employer. With the fourth one, he puts one, 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 one,
Tired, doesn't see your cousin's weaver, 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 doesn't see your cousin's wea
Second column is why you're angry. 
upset or jealous or let down by if you've been around for a while. Third column is what areas of self were hurt, threatened, or interfered with. Seven areas. Self-esteem, pride, ambition, personal relationships, sex relationships, security, and pocketbook. We've looked at the fourth column, where was I selfish, with an explanation. Checkmark doesn't work. And I'm going to share with you how important the fourth column is. Five steps come from the fourth column. Now, what do I mean by that? Everything you need for step five, everything you need for step six, everything you need for step seven, everything you need for step eight, and everything you need to sit in front of somebody to make amends comes from a clear fourth column. The exact nature of your wrongs, your defects, your shortcomings, the nature of the harm, and the clarity to make amends comes from the fourth column. That's how important the fourth column is. Checkmark ain't going to do it. But if you get clear on where you were selfish, where you were self-seeking, where you were dishonest, how you were dishonest, any behavior that comes, if a behavior that you did with that person comes, you don't know what heading it goes under, just put it in there. Shunned, screamed at, yelled at, punched. You want to get down to the exact nature of the harm. Then it says, what about fear? that you mark the word fear next to the third column. Well, you're going to find fears throughout the third column, but they should all be correlated down at the bottom of the fourth column. So all you have to do to make your fear list is go to column four, get a blank piece of paper, and list the fears that are shown to you from the, from the four-column inventory. But if I've been thorough with the four-column inventory, all the fears are listed under afraid, the bottom of the fourth column. I make that list, I cross off the repeats. This short word somehow touches every aspect of our lives. Fear is an E, and it's important to know what it is again in this, in this section. Fear is an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of my existence is shot through with fear. Fear sets in motion trains of circumstances which brought my misfortune I feel I didn't deserve. But didn't, didn't I myself set the ball rolling? We think fear ought to be classed with stealing. Fear seems to cause more trouble than stealing. How do they, how do they, how do they fit fear with stealing? Well, they're not writing a book to kleptomaniacs who are powerless over stealing. They're writing a book to alcoholics who know damn well when they're stealing. Stealing is a conscious decision. So is fear. Fear is a conscious decision that I have made to rely on myself. And the next paragraph says, where, is it, where, where does it say, fear is because self-reliance failed? Ah, yes. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. That means I take them from the fourth column. I put them on paper. Some I might have, I pray a little bit. Some I might have that I don't even have resentment in connection with. So pray. You might not have snakes or spiders or being, you'll probably have being alone. But some of these funny fears, add those to your list. Some you might not have found in your resentment inventory. Column two of the fear inventory is we're going to ask ourselves why we're afraid. 
And then it says, isn't fear because self-reliance fails? Which leads me to believe that if I'm in fear, it's because I'm in self-reliance. This is one of the trickiest ones to see, but you can see it by doing this, this fear inventory. And this is the idea. Fear is because of self-reliance. That's hard to see. You would think that self-reliance would remove my fears and make them weaker. Self-reliance actually increases my fears. And fear is a conscious decision to rely on self rather than God with my fears. And if you want to do an interesting exercise the next time you have a fear list before you start to write the rest of it, look at the idea about self-reliance underneath each fear. So here's what I'd like to share with you. If resentment is a mask to hide fear, and all emotion are just masks to hide something. What is fear a mask to hide? Fear is a mask to hide self-reliance. So it's like an onion. We started with who we're mad out here. We look at how it affects us in here. We look at our behavior that set the whole thing going. And now we're looking at what's underneath resentment is fear. We're going to a deeper level of the onion. Under every resentment is fear. You've seen that in the four-column resentment inventory. Every, every resentment led you to your fears. Now we're taking that next layer of fears, and we're going to go deeper, and we're going to see that fear is a mask to hide my agnosticism and my reliance on self. What I do, all it really says in the book, all it really says in the book is to... Um, On page 68, all it really says is to list your fears and ask you why you have them. Ask yourself why you have them. So in the beginning, we used to just do two-column fear inventory. I would take this big list of fears. I would call, cross off the repeats. I would end up with about 20 fears. But then you should start to think of the fear inventory like a playoff chart. You know, like in the basketball playoffs when they start with 64 teams and they get down to two? So what I do is if I have a big fear list, I do the second column, which is asking myself why I'm afraid of it. So let's say you have being alone. Why am I afraid of being alone? You know, if being alone was a pleasurable experience, I wouldn't be afraid of it. I'm afraid of being alone because it's painful. I'm afraid of rejection because it's painful. I'm afraid of drinking again because I'll die. I'm afraid of not drinking again because I'll have to be responsible. I'm afraid of being honest because it hurts me. I'm afraid of being dishonest because it hurts others. And I just start to break it down. And you'll find out, let's say you start with a list of 60 fears from your resentment inventory. You'll find out that it's really only about 10 or 20. You do two columns on those fears, and you'll find out there's really only about 10. And when you get down to 10 negative fears, rejection, being alone, looking bad, pain, drinking, dying, not having any power. When you get your list down by this two-column process to 10 fears, take those 10 fears and their direct opposites, because believe it or not, you're as, as afraid of living as you are dying. You're afraid of pleasure as you are pain. You're afraid of being with someone as you are of being rejected. Take your 10 negative fears and their opposites, so you got like a list of 20, and do four columns on those 20. 
And the only thing that's really different with the four-column fear inventory, when you get it broken down, is that the only thing that sounds different if you're doing the extended third column is that self-esteem with fear is not about I am. It's about I can. So how might that sound? Let's say you've, you've, so here's how it might go. You've got a huge resentment inventory. You've got fears at the bottom of each fourth column. You've taken all those fears and you've put them on a list on a new pad. You've crossed off all the repeats. You've gotten down to 60 fears. You do two columns on those. By that I mean column two would be why. You see that you're really not afraid of 60 things. You're really only afraid of about 15. You break those down. You get to about 10 negative fears. Take their opposites, and there's your new list. Ten negative and ten positive fears. Living, dying. Being with someone, being rejected. Pain, pleasure. Living, dying. Having power, not having power. Take those 20 fears and start with the first one. So it would be column one. I'm afraid of pain. Why? Column two. I'll drink. Affects my self-esteem. Pride, ambition, security, personal relations. I'm afraid of pain because it will take me back to a drink. Self-esteem. I can control pain. Ambition. I mean pride. No one should see me in pain or that I can't control it. Ambition. I want to be able to play God and control pain. Uh, security. I need to be free of pain to be okay. I have a mind that tells me you cannot be at peace and in pain at the same time. Yes, you can. All over AA, they say you can't be in fear and faith. They've just told you the only time you need faith, you can't be in it because you're in fear. You better believe you can be in fear and there's faith. That's when I need it. That's like the parking lot, God. God loves me today because there was a parking place outside the meeting just for me. That's a great tool the ego is using to set you up for the day there's no parking place. And the day you pull up and there's no parking space, God, your ego says, God doesn't love you today, there's no parking place. Huh? Or, God loves me today because I'm comfortable most of the time. That's a great setup the ego is using to set you up for a day when you're not comfortable and your ego goes, ah, God don't love you today, but I know what will love you down there at the store. God can be in the middle of the pain, and believe it or not, and I've experienced this, you don't need to get out of the pain before you can be at peace. Because then all you've done is turn AA into a drug that just takes, it's just a pain management class. And believe it or not, some of you young people won't want to believe this, but every one of us is going to have physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual pain. And if all you do is learn how to do 10 and 11 to get out of pain, whether it's physical, mental, or emotional, You'll never get free. You can get free in the middle of pain without having to get free of the pain before you're back to peace. You might be in pain for a long time, physically. You might have chronic back pain the rest of your life. Can God be there in the middle of that? Can you find peace in the middle of pain? Because, see, that's the pattern of addiction I brought to the program. And the belief system was, if I'm in pain, any kind of pain, if I'm in pain, I have to do something to get out of the pain before I'll be back to peace. That's addiction. And I was always doing something to avoid pain. It's not very healthy. So I end up with these ten negative fears and these ten positive fears. And I write four columns. 
When I'm afraid of pain because it will take me back to a drink and I have these beliefs my ego are telling me in the third column, when I'm in that pain, what do I do? Column four, selfish. Avoid it, deny it, it's dishonest, I don't talk about it, I try to get out of it using this and this or sex or money or food. Where am I selfish with this fear? What do I do when I'm in that fear that's selfish? What do I do when I'm in that fear that's self-seeking? What do I do? I use people, I use things. Where am I dishonest about the fear? I think I can control it, I think I can fix it, I think I can make it go away. And what's the real fear? The real fear under my pain of the real fear under my fear of pain of drinking again is that I might not drink again. And then the, the fear inventory starts to turn into a circle. And you'll see that you're just afraid of having power as you are of remaining powerless, if not more. That great Nelson Mandela poem, we're more afraid of the light than we are the truth. We're more afraid of having power than we are remaining powerless. See, wouldn't it be easy for, the, for all of us in this room to just spend the rest of our sobriety saying to people, oh, I'm, what do you expect from me? I'm powerless. And my life is unmanageable. We expect a special clause on the IRS form, the alcoholic clause, <laughs> why I shouldn't have to pay. You, know. you tell your wife, what do you expect from me? I wanted to choke my boss today. I'm just an alcoholic. When do you stand up and claim spiritual progress? When do you claim the power of God in your life? When do you stand up and say, I've got enough power to manage my life with God? When do you stand up and start to experience the 10th and 11th step promises about proper use of the will, about exercising your willpower along certain lines? Why have so many of us in this room been to so many meetings on the 9th step promises? Because a lot of people get halfway through the 9th step. But how many of us have ever been in meetings on the 10th and 11th step promises? Because people don't get through amends. They don't enter the world of the Spirit. They don't know what it's like having power. And a lot of us don't know that at some point... This book addresses people who suffer from lack of power, and then it shifts and it, start to, it starts to address a person that's been given some power. We see the futility of our fears and we begin to outgrow. I am not dominated by fear anymore. And I'm not dominated by a belief system that says i got to get out of the pain before I can be at peace. Because then you're just avoiding pain. So I do four-column fear inventory. Then it says to make a list of relationships. I don't believe the sex inventory is just about people you've had sex with, but that just might be a cop-out because of my age and that I've been celibate for a while until last year. I put the most important... I think the inventory says that we subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? You want a challenge? A woman came up to me at the at Scary Frank's meeting in Denver, and she said to me, what's the most important relationship in your life? And I had the audacity to say, my relationship with God. And you know what she said? Have you ever answered the nine questions in the sex inventory about your relationship with God that you say is the most important relationship in your life? And I put God as a heading, and I answered the nine questions from the sex inventory. It hammered me. I have people now that are in monogamous relationships with one person. They write about their relationship with their wife. 
They write about their relationship with fantasy. They write about their relationship with masturbation. They write about their relationships with themselves. And they write about their relationship with God and answer those nine questions. The first one, it's good enough if you can get to a, a list of your major relationships. Sometimes they'll just be a memory. You won't even have a name. You know, the girl in Saigon. Right? <laughs> I was never in Saigon, but that's... Uh, you might not have a name to put down with it. Put it down if it comes. Put all the major relationships you've been in. And in paragraph form, this is what I ask people to do. Review the relationship. How it started, how it went, where it ended, or where it is now. Oh, when I first met her, it was only about this, and I only cared about this, and I wanted this, and we got together, and we lived together, and we got engaged, and then it went like this, and then she left, and that's where it is now. And uh, that's just in paragraph form. And then go to the book, and in paragraph form, it doesn't have to be in columns, answer the nine questions. So what are the nine questions? Page six. Isn't that interesting? <coughs> I got confused once, and I, Joe and Charlie tell this. I thought the instructions for the sex inventory were on 96 rather than 69. So I went to 96, and it said, don't be discouraged if your prospect doesn't respond at once. Search out another woman and try again. You're sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to chase a man or a woman who cannot or will not work with you. Then I was told, no, it's on page 69. I thought, oh, that's an appropriate number. It says, you review your conduct over the years past. I make my list. I write the hist and then I take the first name off my list. I put it on a piece of paper and I write about the history of that relationship. I turn the page over usually or another page and then I answer these questions. Where was I selfish? With an explanation. That's one. Two, where was I dishonest? Three, where was I inconsiderate? Four, who else was hurt? Look around the relationship. She might not have been the only one hurt. Her mom and dad were hurt. Kids. Her other husband, ooh. Where did you arouse jealousy? Number one, two, three, four. Number five. Number six, where did you arouse suspicion? Number seven, where did you arouse bitterness? Number eight, where were you at fault? Sums up the whole thing. And number nine, what should you have done instead? Circle the word should. Keep in mind it doesn't say could. You probably couldn't have done anything better with what power you had, but there's probably some things you should have done. One was selfish, two was dishonest, three was inconsiderate, four was who was hurt, five was jealousy, six was suspicion, seven was bitterness, eight was where was I at fault, and number nine was what should I have done instead. It doesn't say could, it says should. From question number nine, you're going to find your ideal for the future. This ideal is overlooked. Some people mention three inventories, but they overlook the ideal for the future. My book tells me that in writing this, I'm trying to shape a sane and sound ideal for the future. It tells me how to find that ideal. It tells me I choose it. It tells me I can ask God to help mold it. It tells me what will happen if I don't live up to it. It tells me what will happen if my conduct continues to hurt others. It will also tell me what will happen if I'm sorry and I, and I ask for forgiveness. But it will also tell me what will happen if I don't live up to this chosen ideal. 
I'm quite sure to drink. So we pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each situation, for sanity, and for the strength to do the right thing. It's funny that the only part of this process up to this point that my sponsor warned me about was writing an ideal for the future. And he said, because of what the book says, the last line on page 69, not God alone can judge our sex situation. The line before that, um, in other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. We ask in meditation what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. It also talks about letting God take you to better things. That blew my mind. You mean in, the, in my sex life, God could take me to better things than I could? God has a better idea for my sex life than I do? God is interested in my sex life? God can take me to something better than I can? But the only part of this process that Don ever warned me about was to not write out the ideal if I didn't want to see that area in my life change. I can also tell you this, don't write an ideal for a saint. Don't write an ideal to please your sponsor. Write an honest ideal from your own heart. Hey, you want to be single and have fun, non-harmful, non-selfish? That should be your ideal. Write an ideal that you can live up to with God. And it should sound like from, and look back to, 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 to shape a sane and sound ideal for the future. Use question number nine as a guide. And it should be in paragraph form. It's the only piece of inventory that I keep after my amends cards are filled out. I keep my ideal and I look at it once in a while to see if it's what I still want to live up to. I finally wrote one after 20 years that I have the power to live up to. And that's to be with someone that I love. And I am. But that's the only part of this work so far that he warned me about. He said, if you do not want that area of your life to change, don't choose an ideal for the future. Uh, two other things that I haven't mentioned that are worth mentioning about inventory is that you watch for two things. If during any of the inventory, usually happens in the fourth column, usually happens where you're looking at your part, be very careful you don't fall into beating yourself up. Oh, what a rotten, terrible, look at all this that I've done. And you're beating yourself up because the ego has won. The ego wins if it convinces you you're no good, and it wins if it convinces you the best. It wins either way. I'm the greatest boyfriend in the world is ego. I'm the worst boyfriend in the world is the same ego. So if you start to beat yourself up when you're discovering truth, go back to the statement before inventory. Our troubles are of our own making. Stay with it for a couple days until you can get back to that hopeful statement the good side to that statement, thank God my troubles with her of my own making, because if they're of her making, she's going to have to do something for me to get free. Get back in that positive side to that statement, and then go back into the fourth column. The other thing you have to watch out for, which is even, even just as dangerous, is that when you're discovering truth, your ego will start to play a different game. And that's the, so now I'll just become and you start to create yourself in your own image. You know, you, you write an inventory and you go, my God, I've been such a whore. And then you, you wake up the next morning, you're going to be a nun. Yeah. <laughs> or I've been, such a, I've been so aggressive, so I think next week I'll go take a course on being gentle. 
That's just creating yourself in your own image, a whole new third column belief system. And it has nothing to do with what God might want. Maybe God wants you to remain a whore, right? How do I know? He was great friends with Mary Magdalene, right? I don't know what God wants. So be careful. Be careful not to begin to, to play the so now I'll game. Because then, if you can, and we do this thing, Mark and I, I wish we had time today, but we don't. Mark and I do this thing that was shared with us called Theater of the Lie. But I can paint the picture for you. If we would have brought a guy up here and sat him right here and had him put on the board a resentment, I'm resentful at Sally for leaving me, we could have brought the committee that's involved in that one-act play and stood them all around him. What would that have looked like? So you ask Mark, you ask him, who were you mad at? No, I'm sorry. Who was mad when she left you? He goes, what do you mean who was mad? Who was mad when she left? I don't know what you mean, who was mad. Who was mad? Then a little anger will come out and they'll go, well, you know I am a CEO of a company. Oh, let's bring up Mr. CEO. Well, you know I do have a reputation in the, oh, Mr. AA. Well, you know I am kind of a Romeo. But let's bring up, and by the time you're done, you got about ten people standing around him that we call the committee. Mr. AA, the CEO, the, the unworthy son, Rambo, Romeo. <laughs> and then you bring her up. You bring her up, the girl that left him because he cheated. You bring her up and you say, who was, who was affected when he cheated on you? Who do you mean who was affected? I was. Who? Well, you know I am a pretty important businesswoman with a five-year plan, and I am a progressive woman of the new millennium. You bring the businesswoman up, and Juliet, and the whore, and the sex kitten, and Miss AA, and the, the unworthy daughter. And by the time you're done, you got about ten people standing around her. And then you say, now I'm going to show you why you're having trouble with personal relationships. <laughs> and remember, this is when you're not at one. She's mad because he cheated, and he's mad because she left. And you ask each one of them. And you say, here's why you're having trouble with personal relationships. If the businesswoman wakes up to the to Romeo, there's a big problem because he wants to make love. She's got a nine o'clock appointment. <laughs> now, if Juliet wakes up to the businessman, they got a problem because he's got a nine o'clock appointment and she wants to make love. And the only time you have a good day when you're not at one is when the two right personalities wake up at the same time. <laughs> Romeo has to wake up to Juliet, and it gets funnier and funnier and funnier. And then you ask, how did Rambo feel when she left? I wanted to kill her. How did Mr. AA feel? Live and let live. How did? <laughs> and not only, not only do they each have different turns at chairing the committee at different mornings, they each have different beliefs about how they felt when she left. And that's why I'm having trouble with personal relations. And then you go, and you start to discover truth. And then Romeo goes, oh, my God, I've been such a, a wuss. I'm going to become like Rambo. And you show how they just get up and change seats. They never get smashed. You know, Rambo needs to become a little more passive. Mr. AA Mr. needs to become a little more aggressive. Rambo, become, you know, and they all just get up and change seats. They never get smashed. And then Frank would tell us this story about a man that he watched go through this on his deathbed. And this was a man that became victim of a belief that I think is really dangerous that a lot of us have just accepted. And you know what the belief is? Never say no to an AA request. That kills people. That precludes your wife, your children, your job, prayer, God, meditation, intuition. And this guy became an AA speaker. Didn't do much work with the steps, but he became the speaker in Denver. 
And he couldn't say no to an AA request. And the doctor told him one day, you better be at the hospital tomorrow at 4 o'clock because we've got to take your appendix out quick. And he couldn't show up because he had to speak at a meeting. And his appendix burst at the podium. And he's in the, in the hospital dying of peritonitis that they couldn't do anything about back then. And Frank went to see him each day. And he said for 17 days it took this man to die. And each day when he was lucid a little bit, another personality would come out and he would say things like, you know, I wasn't the greatest husband in the world but I wasn't the worst either, and another one would die. And I wasn't the greatest father in the world, but you know I wasn't the worst, and another one of these personalities would die. And Frank would say, we get to do that right here. And he had to do it on his deathbed. And that's what you face, these personalities that will just drive you into the ground. The reason I'm not at one. And you end the theater of the lie with, um, if this is when we're not at one, how do you get to oneness? You get to one by atoning, and that's what amends are about. So you start to admit the truth in five, six, seven, eight, nine. These personalities get smashed. They will reassert themselves. But in that state, when these personalities are repressed, there's no such thing as relationships. And everybody in the room that's been working on their relationship goes into shock because they said, if this is what we do when we're not at one, when we are at one, there's nothing but equanimity, love, compassion, and understanding for everyone. Some people you know better than others, but there's no such thing as individual relationships when you're at one. And he said, have you ever been at a party or at home with your parents when you're in the same room with your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, and your lover? And you're usually a really outgoing guy, but you can't say a word because you've got a different belief system and a different role with each relationship. And you, and you can't say a word. These personalities begin to get smashed in five through nine. And that's how deadly it is. The resentment inventory is important. It will take you to nothing but lies until you start to see the fourth column. Believe it or not, nothing in the first three columns are true. And that's people tend to miss to miss to miss. Um, to miss how powerful inventory is because it's such a simple format. The idea that I can go home and put somebody's name, what they did, how it affects me, and how I played a part. And here's how powerful inventory is. It can take stuff you've thought were true your entire life and turn it into a lie. And it can take the lie that you didn't have anything to do with it and turn it into the truth. You want to know when the fourth column has worked? When it turns the first column into a lie. Now, how does that sound? If you would have asked me for a week, a month, or a year, were you hurt when she left you? I would say, of course I was. Well, why were you mad? Because she left me. Is that the truth? Yeah. Is that the truth? Yeah. Is that the truth? Yeah. Are you willing to bet your life on it? Yes. I'm mad because she left me. And then you write the third column, and then you start to move into the truth. And you're writing the fourth column, and you're writing the fourth column, and they're writing your fourth column. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, my God, I'm not mad at her for leaving me. I'm mad at myself for driving her away. I did everything I could. I might as well have opened the back door, packed her bags, and kicked her ass out. That's the freedom. That's the power of inventory. And I would have sworn my whole life, I would have given up my whole life, believing that I was mad at her for leaving me. The first two columns aren't even true. You're going to find if the fourth column really works, 
and this is what I've been doing lately, stay in the fourth column until it turns the first two columns into a lie. Rewrite the first two columns, and you'll find every one of them is toward yourself or God. Take those. You'll have about five or ten toward yourself. You'll have about five or ten toward God. Do four columns on those. I dare you. That's, that is an inventory that will kick your ass. I, had, I was telling Dave at lunch, I had a 35-page resentment inventory in India about two, three years ago. Started with three people. They all pooped out when we got to inventory. There I am by myself. And it's not like here. I didn't have anybody to go to. I had nothing but drunk people trying to get sober in treatment. I didn't have people been doing the work or even AA members. So here I am with this inventory. I had 35 pages of resentment inventory, and it was one of these where it was not touching me. Some of you know what's that like. The writing doesn't touch you, but when you read it, it smashes you, or vice versa. It hammers you while you're writing it. By the time you read it, you could be reading a comic book to your sponsor. Sometimes it happens in both writing and reading. Well, I had 35 pages of resentment inventory, and I used other words to get to the list. Jealous, let down by, discouraged with. I don't live with deep-seated resentment. But I had 35 pages of inventory. The fourth column was clear, and it wasn't touching me at all. I was just like, who am I writing about here? Whose story is this? And I heard this voice from the past, Scary Frank, once again, in my mind. And he would say, the first three columns are all a lie. Well, I've seen the lies in the third column. They were obvious. I'm this, I'm that, I need this. She should be. I saw the lies, but I didn't see the lies in the first two columns. Because I, I still thought some of them were who I was mad at and why I was mad. I hear this voice. I had this memory of some like, she left me, but I really saw she didn't. I drove her away. But then I did it for every one of them. And what I did was, it's a very simple process. If you get it, do it on your next inventory. Stay in the fourth column until it turns the first two columns into a lie. Rewrite the first two columns at the bottom. Every one of them will be toward you or God. Take those, cross off the repeats. You'll end up with a five or ten toward yourself, five or ten toward God. Take those as a new first and second column and do four columns on those resentments toward yourself and God. That'll be an inventory that brought me to the core of what was going on. When I read it to Mark Houston, he said I didn't even need to read the first 35 pages, that that would help me with my amends, but that the last 12 pages, the ones toward myself and God, was an inventory like he never heard. And I've seen several people do it now. Um, and they, they had an inventory like they never experienced. I think it's just another level. And I think the magic of the fourth column is that it turns the first three columns into nothing but lies that, that I base my life on. Yeah. <clears throat> so let's take a break till 4.15. And We've covered everything from the title page to into action. We're convinced of the ABCs. And this is something I wanted to mention. The next time you're in inventory, try this. Every time you sit down to write, and every time you get up from writing, review the first three steps quietly. 
You can do that by when you sit down to write, you read from the ABCs up to wherever you are in inventory. And then you'll find you're much more centered because you're reminded of why you're writing inventory. What I lose sight of sometimes is that I'm writing inventory because I'm powerless over alcohol. And I get lost in that I'm writing inventory to manage my life or my emotions or my circumstance. You get in a bunch of trouble, write inventory, you're going to make it go away. You're using inventory as a self-help tool. I need to remind myself that I'm alcoholic, that my life is unmanageable, that no human power can relieve my alcoholism, and that God can and will if he is sought. I need to remind myself of the first requirement of the third step, and I mostly need to re- re- remind myself that I des- what I decided, my third step decision. That's what I go back on sometimes. I remember when I was new sitting in a meeting at the, where these, these men cared more about whether you lived or died than how you might feel about what they have to say. And I was saying something about I turned it over and I took it back. And I turned it over and I took it back. Like I got that kind of power. I don't have the power to turn it over or take it back. And this old boy said, why don't you shut up and sit down? Because if you're still thinking you can turn it over and take it back, you haven't turned it over. So then I asked the great question, how do you turn it over? Go around AA if you, go around AA and ask people that. And they'll say, oh, just let go. Well, how do you let go? Oh, just turn it over. Oh, shut up. Take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. Because right? they don't know how to tell you how to turn it over. But this guy said, the way you turn it over is like a chicken and a pig. Because there's a difference between a decision and a commitment. There's a decision at the third step. The commitment is in four through nine. I asked the great question, what do you mean? He said, well, it's like a chicken and a pig walking down the road. And they come to a sign on a church that says, help feed the poor. And the, and the, the chicken is all pumped up with virtue. And he says to the pig, we ought to feed those poor people. The pig says, well, how could we, what could we feed those poor people? And the chicken says, ham and eggs. The pig says, for you, that's just a simple decision to lay some eggs. But for me, that's one hell of a commitment. It took me about a week to figure out what the guy was talking about. And then I knew the way you turn it over is in four through nine. So it says here... And I know this, four through nine are directly against my will and contrary to the way I've lived my life. So that's how you turn it over. You turn your will and your life over to the care of God by realizing, one, your life run on your will doesn't work. Number two, by taking direct actions against your will and contrary to the way you've lived your life. And I'll tell you, four through nine are against my will and contrary to the way I'm living my life or I wouldn't need to be doing four through nine. It says here, having made your personal inventory, what are you going to do about it? You've been writing, you've been doing this to get a new attitude and a new relationship with your creator and to discover the obstacles in your path. You've admitted certain defects. You've ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. You've put your finger on some of the weak items in stock. Now these are about to be cast out. This requires action on your part which when completed will mean that you have admitted to God, to yourselves, 
and to another human being the exact nature of your defects. This brings us to the fifth step in the program of recovery mentioned in the preceding chapter. Talks about this might be difficult. Talks about finding the right person. It talks about what will happen if you skip this vital step. Time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts. Invariably, they got drunk. Well, that's as true for newcomers as it is for old-timers. Time after time, old-timers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts they couldn't admit to their sponsor and their home group because they're elevated in their own mind to such a position that they couldn't admit that stuff to their sponsor or in their home group, and it kills them. Um, these sprees they talk about can be drunk or sober. Self-will sprees. Talks about being entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long or happily in this world. Do I believe that? Now it says something I missed for many years. Rightly, in, on page 74, rightly and naturally we think well before we choose the person. It's the top three lines. We think well before we choose the person or persons <coughs> with whom to take this intimate and confidential step. And that's the line that Paul Martin's group in Chicago took along with what Harry Tebolt and this other psychiatrist shared with them, and they started doing multiple fist steps. And it's a very simple, it's a very simple principle. The more, you, the, more open you be, the more people you become open with, the more open you become. And they fist step with more than one person. So I saw my grand sponsor after I knew him for 10 years, and he was 26 years sober, and his name's Gary, Gary Brown from Indianapolis, and he was different. He was just on fire. He was different than I'd ever known him. And he'd been doing the work for a long time. And I said, Gary, what, what's going on with you? He said, well, I've had a pretty amazing experience after 26 years of sobriety. I took an inventory up to Paul. I fist-stepped with several people. And I, went, I saw some stuff with some financial amends that I wasn't clear on. I went home and I spoke to my wife, and we sold the house. They had a huge, beautiful house, and they moved into a trailer. And he, he paid off some financial stuff, and he was, he was on fire. And I thought, my God, the willingness of somebody with that much time to do that. So being a good alcoholic, I had to take an inventory to Paul Martin in Chicago. And I was going to see my family in Michigan. And I called Paul, and he said, come on a Thursday and stay till Sunday afternoon. So I saw my family in Battle Creek, and I drove to Chicago. I arrived on Thursday. They took me to their home group. It was a wonderful meeting. They do a step a week, and they were on the 10th step, and they took me back to the hotel, and Paul hands me a mimeograph sheet, and it said Friday, 9 o'clock Charlie, 1 o'clock Sam, 4 o'clock Harry, Saturday, 9 o'clock Frank, 1 o'clock Charlie, 4 o'clock, Tom, Sunday, one, 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock, and I did nine fist steps with nine different people, the same inventory. And every time I read mine, they read theirs. And they asked for feedback, and then I asked for feedback. And I saw when I looked at this sheet of paper, I saw, man, this is going to be like a three-day retreat. And I called the front desk and I said, turn off my phone and come get the television. And I did an hour meditation before and after each 
fifth step. So in three days, I did nine fifth steps and 18 one-hour meditations, and I came out of that room changed. I read to people from, it was like one of those movies where they're interviewing babysitters, and every one of them was different, and it would go to the next one. I think halfway through Saturday, I wanted to just start screaming, and I just wanted to call somebody, and I sat through it, and I sat through it. Now, I don't do nine fist steps every time now, but since then, I've always done more than one. I know couples. The people I live with right now, Jaime and Shelley, wonderful couple, they've they've read their inventories together. I know couples that do the work together. They don't keep their programs separate. There's a philosophy I don't understand. I'm going to take the most important thing in my life, which is AA, my relationship with God. I'm going to take the most important person in my life, the person I claim to love, and we're going to keep our programs separate. I think it's fine if you have different meetings you like, but the program should be shared with your family. Meditation, even a fist step. So each time now, I've always fist stepped with a woman. It gives you a different perspective. This last one... I fist stepped with the guy taking me through the work, which was which is Mark Houston, because he was there in New York when I was done. We were both in New York together. I read to him. I read to a guy in New York I've sponsored for 14 years. I read to a woman I sponsor in New York that I'd only known for six months. She's 17 years sober that I was working on. And I fist stepped with three guys in Los Angeles that I was in a group with um, where we were learning about being accountable. Six of us. I read to three of them. And uh, every one is, is, takes you a little deeper. And it does come from this line. We think well before we choose the right person or persons with whom to take this intimate and confidential step. It talks about a closed mouth, understanding friend. I can't reiterate that enough. And I'll tell, I'll tell you this. Be friends with your friends, but know who your friends are. Or you'll find yourself blindsided by people that aren't. Mark, in my last inventory, Mark Houston kept saying to me, he said, you keep referring to these people as friends. And they're really not. And you find out. And then you're upset. These betrayal bonds. Betrayal bonds. Going back to people that repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly betray you, expecting a different result. Be friends with your friends, but know who your friends are. And don't go to someone who's not a friend. And if you hear a fist step, honor that. Let the person know you're honored with their confidence. There's as much to hearing a fist step as there is to reading your own. I like to swap fist steps now. You read me yours, I'll read you mine. It's a powerful experience. It can be just as powerful hearing one as it is reading one. I have a guy, and I never had heard this. I never had thought it. It was total intuition. We were at a retreat center in Arizona, and he had been there for a few weeks finishing an inventory, and I arrived for a week. And during that week, we were going to do his fifth step, and I was reminded when we sat down, he has trouble reading. And when he's reading, he's always thinking, and he's here in his mind when he's reading, trying to figure out the next word. You know what I did that came to me out of the blue? I read his inventory to him. He heard his fist step read to him. And he said it was the most powerful fist step he ever had. And he's been doing the work for a long time. Trust your intuition. 
I blew someone's mind the other day with something that came to me out of the blue. It's a past relationship, someone I was engaged to, and now she's sober again, and she's on fire, and she's making amends, and she came down to L.A. from Seattle, and we spent uh, two weeks. We went to my home group every Tuesday, and my other, the other meeting I go to on Saturday, and for two weeks we talk, I let her talk about her amends. And when she was done, she had two pages of notes, and she had two three-by-five cards, and she wanted to go through those and make sure she didn't miss anything. And we took the two pages and the, and the two uh, cards, and I put them in an ashtray, and I lit them on fire, and we smudged with her amends cards. <laughs> it was strange, but it was very healing. We burned them, and we did it like sage with her amends. It was very healing, and I never thought of that before. You know, and I think at this point that we're coming up to, which is after a fist step, and and remember, there's a very important thing that's part of the fist step. It's not step six, it's not step four, it's part of your fist step, and that's at the bottom of page 75 when you return home. And this is that page where you haven't been, if you haven't been clear about the cement put into the foundation, on the first page of there is a solution. And you haven't been clear on the cornerstone at the at the second step, your willingness to believe. And you haven't been clear on the keystone at the third step, your decision. Think about what this paragraph would mean to you if you hadn't been thorough. Imagine if your sponsor didn't use the book, but after the fifth step, he referred you, he or she referred you to the bottom paragraph, and you returned home, and you found a place where you can be quiet. Remember, that's not just a physical place. Find a place where, within yourself where you can be quiet. I know guys that will set a timer for an hour and literally put their book up on a shelf so they can take it down from the shelf. I bet Dave does that. I just have an idea that Dave probably does that. And, and uh, my other friend says, find a place where you can be quiet. Carefully review what you have done. Look through the inventory. Now, this is confusing if you don't know what inventory is about. How can I thank God from the bottom of my heart that I know him better if all I've been doing is looking at self for 10 hours? Why? Because I've seen a lot of truth in the inventory, and if I've seen truth, I've seen God. That's how I know God better, because I've seen truth. God is truth. That's how I thank God that I know him better. Take the book down. Turn to the page which contains the 12 steps and how it works. Read the first five proposals and ask if you've omitted anything. For you're building an arch through which you'll walk a free man at last. Is your work solid so far? Now, those questions aren't confusing, but what about the next three questions? Are the stones properly in place? What are they talking about? If you haven't been thorough. They're talking about the cornerstone at the second step. They're talking about the keystone at the third step. Are they in place? Have you skimped on the cement? How could you skimp on the cement in the foundation? That's having found a common problem but not a common solution, or just a common solution without the common problem. It's that description of the cement on page 17. Review that cement. Is my foundation strong? Have I found a fellowship where I share in the common problem? And have I found a fellowship where I share in the common solution? Or is it out of balance? Have you tried to make mortar without sand? Have you tried to create fellowship without recovery? Have you tried to get recovery without fellowship? 
The two parts to the cement are recovery and the common problem. Review the stones. Review what you've done. Review the first five proposals. And I believe between page 75 and the top of page 76, they make a dramatic shift. Now, how do I say that? If you think of everything that we've covered from the, from the title page to page 76, it's all kind of been, I don't want to say negative, but it's all kind of been negative about you, your mind, lack of power, selfishness, even when your motives are good, looking at your part, lack of power, lack of power, lack of power. After the fifth step and after returning home, they make a major assumption they start to go by on 76, and that is now you've got some power. Now you can begin to trust this power because the next question after 75 is, have I answered to my own satisfaction? You start to trust. Wasn't there something in there that we didn't get to read? You may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now you begin to have a spiritual experience. That's step five. Because from 76 on, they're going to start to make an assumption that you should make, that you've got some power, that you've got some faith, you've done some work, because now they're going to start to ask you some questions like you should be able to trust. When you've answered to your own satisfaction, so I encourage people to do returning home as many times and as many days as they need to until they've answered to their own satisfaction. They're asking you to start to trust yourself with God. When you've answered those questions in returning home to your own satisfaction, let's look at step six. And my mind always goes like this, because there's a lot in this paragraph that you don't see. We've emphasized willingness as being indispensable. And my mind always says, of course I'm willing. Why are they making such a big deal of willingness after all this work? Well, they're going to show you why. And they start with the first question. Are you now ready to let God remove from you all the things you have admitted are objectionable? Yes or no? Usually after a thorough fist step or a few fist steps, there is nothing I'm not willing to let go. But then they ask you another question. Can he now take them all, every one? I don't know. I know that he can, so I add to that. Whenever they ask, can he? I ask another question there. Will he? For me, with all this mud on my face that I've just admitted, not only can he take them all, I usually don't have any doubt about that. Of course he can, but I need to think about will he for me. Then they ask, am I still clinging to anything that I'm not willing to let go? How do you know that if you don't look back through and make a list of anything you're still clinging to? So it's my, my, my advice is to go back through the inventory and look for any behavior, beliefs, defects, anything. And just write down the ones that you're not willing to let go of. And be honest. And stay in that place for a few days. Admit your unwillingness. Admit that there's a few things you're not willing to let go. And then you'll see why they mean by the first statement. That willingness is important here. Yes, I am willing to let it all go. Some people confuse with clinging to something. And I love they use that term, clinging, because that's where all my suffering comes from, which comes from ignorance. Then I start to grasp for things. Then I get them, and then I cling to them. 
If I'm if I'm still clinging to something that I'm not willing to let go, I ask God to help me be willing. A lot of people interpret that, that if they go home and write down a few things they're not willing to let go of, that it means they need to quit doing it by tomorrow. It doesn't say, are there still some things that you can stop doing by tomorrow? It says, are there still th- some things that you're clinging to that you're not willing to give to God? I write them down. I sit with my unwillingness. And then I go, yes, I am willing. And then I see what they mean by the first statement. Willingness is indispensable. When I first asked it, before I asked the other questions, it didn't seem important. But when I asked the other questions, can he, will he, am I still clinging to something, and I get honest, yeah, there's a couple things here I'm not willing, or I'm willing. Then you see what, what they mean by the first sentence. Then they ask you to assume and trust once again, because now they make another statement that you should be able to trust. When ready. Last week, because I, I guess it, not last week, last month, last, actually in July, because my group, one of our formats each month is a step a month. So the seventh month, we were on the seventh step. And I said, I think the greatest thing to consider with the seventh step, because there's only one paragraph, is when is ready. What do they mean when they say when ready? We say something like this. When is ready? Write that question down there. Is ready when everything's straightened out and you're feeling better? Is ready when you know you can work on all these defects you've just seen? No. So when is ready? Is it based on circumstance? You've waited for all your ducks to be in a row before you go on to step seven? No. You're waiting until your emotional state is all straightened out until you go on to step seven? No. When is ready? Ready is when there's nothing left that I still want to cling to, that I'm not willing to give to God. Then you should look at what you're going to say in the prayer before you say it, and then in your own way, however you're guided to do it, you should go somewhere and do the seven-step prayer. It's usually a very personal and a very private experience between you and God, because that's all you're down to. Why do they say the good and the bad? Because I don't know by step seven. What I thought was good is killing me. What I thought was bad is saving my life. My assets have turned into my liabilities. My liabilities have turned into my assets. So I just got to be willing to give it all. And that's what it says. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and the bad. I don't know the difference. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of my character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. And what's God's bidding after step seven? Eight. How do you know when you've completed seven? When you're sitting down with a pen and a piece of paper and you're making an eight-step list. And that's the next action. Without which we find that faith without works is dead. And I always thought that without my work, God will have no faith in me. No. Without this work, I won't have any faith in him. It's not about how he feels about me. He's been there from the beginning. No one in this room is any closer to God than anybody else in this room. Some of you in this room think you're closer to God than some other people in this room. You're not. No one in this room is any closer to God than the last time they took a drink. The only thing that changes here is our perception of something that's always there. That's the only thing that changes. His love doesn't change. His presence doesn't change. 
only our perception of that which has always been there. So I go through my inventory. It says I have a list. I made it when I took inventory. I make my list. I've got people to make amends to. I've got institutions I've harmed. I've got principles to look at. How do you make amends to principles? Ah, good question. I pray and I pray. Are there any other amends I'm not aware of that belong on this list? And I keep that prayer going until I'm done with every one of them. Show me any amends I'm not aware of. Every day. And show me the next amends I should make. Some people just set out and make their own agenda for making amends. Some people set out thinking they got to have all the money before they can go back to somebody. That's just ego. It's a lot harder to go back and say, this is the best deal I can do. I can pay you five bucks a week. Agree on the best deal. I think i got to have all 25 grand to go to him. That's just ego. So you have a list. And you keep praying. And you keep praying. And then you begin to experience something that I would hope nobody in this room misses because it's absolutely the most incredible experience I've ever had in my life every time I've ever been in a men's. There's probably stories in this room, and I could go on until tomorrow, about amazing stories and amends that I thought could never be healed, nor that I could ever find them. Everyone probably, everyone that's ever been in amends, I know you have stories about how somebody showed up, or you had someone you never had seen in 20 years, you pull up to a stoplight and there they are next to you. I could go on and on about stories. I mean, it's, it's like the whole universe opens up for you. I've known 10, 15, 20 years spiritual Dharma students you sit with and you mention not even like you would with another alcoholic. Could that be selfish? Or might you owe an apology there? And they look at you like you're just out of your mind because they have no basis for examining themselves and they just get lost in their own world of spiritual make-believe. But we get a system here that to this day is as life-altering as anything else I've ever been exposed to along with something else we'll get to in a minute. But step nine is really where it started to happen. Step nine is where a lot of people lose the obsession that they've lived with in sobriety, that God has kept them from drinking. It starts to be removed. Some of us had the obsession removed the day we walked in or the day we took the third step or somewhere in inventory. But don't become one of these guys that thinks because you haven't thought about alcohol for a long time that you couldn't drink again. Because you might be the guy that doesn't think at all and finds himself in a bar having not even thought about it. Thinking about drinking doesn't have much to do with whether the obsession is going to come or not. The obsession is going to come from falling into an unfit spiritual condition by resting on your laurels, by not taking 10 and 11 serious, by not being concerned about working with others or practicing principles in your life. And then one day, there you are. You thought it was just unmanageability. It turned into a drink. There you are. You've come full circle back again. I had people in Denver where they do the work tell me you can't go back to someone who's dead and make amends. i got to tell you, my two most powerful amends were at the grave of my father and the grave of this man who died in my arms, who I was closer to than my father. My dad, I went to his grave in Battle Creek, Michigan, and I had had four visits to Battle Creek before I got to amends. And every visit, because Battle Creek's a small town, I was like this. looking over my shoulder wherever I went that I might run into somebody that I hurt or that was after me. 
And I would always visit this one guy who was in AA that I grew up with. I later became his sponsor. And we would always go to a meeting, and then we would always go to this nightclub to steal some vicarious pleasure. And I would dread going in there, but he would always want to that I might see somebody. And in four visits, maybe I saw one or two people from the past. When I got to amends, and I went to Battle Creek, and I started making amends to my family, I went to a meeting one night with my friend, and we went to this nightclub. Twelve people walked in that club that I could make appointments with to see to make amends. I made those amends in my hometown, and of course I make the biggest one last. And just as I was going back to the airport to fly back to Denver, I went to my dad's grave, and I sat at his grave, and I talked to him about what I had done that I thought hurt him, and I'd asked him what I could do to make it right, and I sat there, and I left that grave, I left that graveyard different than I'd ever been in my life. I was guided not to go to the airport, but to take a drive from where I was born to where I grew up, to the bars and the dope houses. And I drove around that city, and there wasn't one hook. There wasn't one hook anymore. And I was no longer looking over my shoulder in the town where I grew up, and I was free. But I couldn't go to this man's grave in Las Vegas who died in my arms of drugs that I paid for. Made amends to him through a letter, read it to my sponsor, made amends to his mother, made amends to his father, made amends to his sister. I made amends to his brother. He put a gun at my head and said, tell me the truth about how my brother died. <laughs> got free. He got free. Second year, I couldn't go to his grave. I was three years sober, and it was my AA birthday. And I had been in Las Vegas probably seven, eight times in those three years, and I couldn't get myself to his grave. On my third AA birthday... I wake up at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, and my thought was, today you're going to his grave. It's your third AA birthday. The power's there. No resistance. Got a driver. Drove to Henderson, Nevada. Three friends were with me. I walked up to the grave like I knew right where it was. I got down on my knees. I said what I needed to say, and I looked down, and I was there on the anniversary of his death, and it was my sobriety day, just different years. I can't plan stuff like that. I ended up there on the anniversary of his death, and the anniversary of his death turned out to be my sobriety day. How do you make amends to a mother you talk to through a plate glass window on a phone in the Michigan State Penitentiary? And when she died two years ago, she and I were free and clear. She was so clear, she said to me, this will be the last time we see each other. And it was. It wasn't with drama, it was with clarity. She said goodbye to me. Ten minutes before I was leaving for the airport, I went in the bathroom. I'd been there a week. I went in the bathroom and I thought, why didn't she tell me this on Monday rather than Sunday? And I got on my knees and I said, is there anything I need to say to my mother? And the answer was, no, you're clear. And why don't you let her do it the way she wants to for once in your life? If this is the day she wants to say goodbye, ten minutes before you're leaving for the airport, let that be okay. And it was the last time I saw her, and we were clear for a long time. You can make amends to people that are dead. You can make amends to people you can't find. And you'll find most any situation you have is described in these pages. The practical instructions I was given for my eight-step list was to take each name off my eight-step list, put it on a three-by-five card, and fill out the card. Name, 
address, phone number, or just the word find, and I know that's one I need to find, the harm that I'm clear on, and in the upper right-hand corner, plus or minus, willing or not. And stay in the eighth step till you're willing to make amends to them all. Don't miss that. My sponsor got sober in the Colorado State Penitentiary. He got to step eight. He didn't get, they didn't let him out because he was on step nine in AA. <laughs> he had to stay a few more years or a year and a half or something. He told me that he got free in the eighth step from his willingness to make amends to them all. And that getting out, it was just like a formality to go to all these people because he was already free. He got free in prison. And then he went out and started making them. And about 20 years later, he was made the director of the Department of Corrections for the state he was locked up in. And you can't get there from, 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 there to, from here to there on your own power. Year and a half sober, I'm halfway through amends. I'm made the director of a program for the National Council on Alcoholism, training kids to work with kids, peer counseling. A year and a half earlier, you wouldn't have let me near your children. And they were trusting me to work with kids. And my own mother said I wasn't even the same. And the whole universe opened up for me. I'll tell you about two guys, because they're so different, but they're so similar. I sponsored a black guy who never left South Central L.A. for 30 years. He had never been to the beach. He'd never seen the ocean. And South Central is about 10 miles from the beach. He lived in a 20-mile radius, and he had 350 amends. 200 of them were breaking and entering. 150 were friends and family. He made amends to his friends and family and got so much power from each of those amends, he started making cold calls on neighborhoods where he knew he broke into houses. He used to pray at the top of neighborhoods, Dear God, please show me the homes I broke into. He's got stories you wouldn't believe. He's got stories about families saying, it's nice that you're here, but we need your help because our son's in trouble. Or will you get on your knees and pray with us? Or, And he got free, and he's free to this day. The other kid that was around the same time lived in many different countries in his life. And we got to amends, and he had 350, and we had to put him in piles of continent. North America, South America, England, France, and Asia. He came over to my house and with his eight-step cards done. We put him in piles of continent. And he said to me, you know what I'm going to do? I said, what? He said, I'm going to make all these amends and prove to you the program of Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work. Out of spite, I'm going to make these amends. He was half joking, but half not. He started in North America. He went to South America. He went back to England. He went to France. He went to Asia where his mom and dad were. And two weeks after his last amends, his father passed away. He inherited $10 million cash and a multi-million dollar corporation that he's been running to this day successfully. And this kid could not have done that one month earlier. That's the kind of stuff that starts to happen in amends. My first fiance, when she moved back to California from Denver, I called her up from Los Angeles. I told her I had five other amends in L.A. and I hadn't even been there for years. <laughs> I can cause harm long distance without even going there. Right? And I called her up and I said, can I make amends? And she's in the program. And she said, I don't know if I even want to see you. You really hurt me. I slept with a woman that she was sponsoring when she went on vacation because we had a little fight on the phone. That can't be healed by me. And I call her and she says, I don't know if I can see you, but let me pray about it. 
call me tomorrow. I called her the next day and she said, well, I called your sponsor. And she called her sponsor and they decided that, they, that she would see me on her terms and on her turf and I should be at her mother's house at 6 o'clock the next day. Then I had another one. And I was speaking at a CA meeting that night that I never would have gone to on my own at a rib joint at 11.30 at night in, in South Central Los Angeles. And I had one more that I couldn't find. And then the one to the X the next day. And I told my story at the CA meeting. A woman walks up to me and she said, You got sober in Denver? I said, Yeah. She said, Did you know Cindy so-and-so? I said, Yeah. She's one of my amends I can't find. She said, Here's her phone number and her address. Give her a call. That night that I put a question mark by her name and prayed about it. Found her. Went to my ex the next day. Or called my ex the next day and said that she would prayed about it and spoke to her sponsor and my sponsor that I could come over. Went to her mom's the next day. And I walked in and you could feel it. You could feel it was thick. The blame, the shame, the guilt, the pain. And I started. This is why I'm here. So this is the format I was given once I go to somebody. I explained to them that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is why I'm here. That's really great with exes, so they don't get any misunderstanding of why you're there, that you're not there to get back together. This is why I'm here. I explained that to her. She's in the program. She knew why I was there. But I let her know that it was a lot more important to me than just not drinking again. That's pretty selfish. I told her that this relationship was still important to me. And I meant it. And I don't say that when I don't mean that. And then I go to the harm that I'm aware of. And then I ask the first question. Do you need to tell me anything else that I ever did that hurt you? It was 6.30. At 9.45, she took her next breath. She was done telling me the other things I had done that hurt her. And it was still thick. And then I asked the next question. All, when all the harm is out on the table, I ask, do you need to tell me how any of that hurt you? Because I might know exactly what I did, but I'm so insensitive I might not have any idea how that hurt you. I had some I thought were big deals. The guy didn't even remember me. I had some I thought were no big deal at all, and they said, you know, you really hurt me. So I ask. So I tell them why I'm there, the harm that I'm clear on. Is there any other harm I'm not aware of? How did that hurt you? Do you need to tell me? And this healing started to come in the room. And you could feel it. And it was shifting. And, when she, and it was 12 o'clock midnight when she got done telling me how it hurt her. And then I asked the magic question. Is there anything I could do to, is there anything I could ever do to make this right? And she said, yeah, take me on your vacation next week to San Francisco and be in L.A. twice a month to go to therapy. And we'll see if we can work this out or at least end it in a healthy way. And all I could say was, I'll find a way to do that. And the next day, before we went on vacation as friends, an apartment was put in my lap for $450 a month on the beach in Santa Monica by someone that didn't even know why I was there. And the way to follow through on those amends was put right in my lap. So I don't know what they're going to ask. I don't know what kind of healing is going on. I have a sense that I'm going for them to get free as much as me to get free. And I watch amazing things happen. So don't go into men's thinking you know what they're going to ask. Oh, they're going to ask me to pay back the money. They might not. They might ask you to give it somewhere else. They might throw you out of their office. But it does say that nine times out of ten, you're going to be amazed. And very, I can't even remember the, if there had been any where I was rejected.
I remember my brother wouldn't hear my amends three times I asked him. But the third time he heard me speak at a meeting in Battle Creek and he said, I'm ready to hear your amends. You don't know how they're going to go. You don't know how they're going to get made. You're not going to know how they're going to be found. <clears throat> but it will remind you. It'll take you back to booze again. It'll remind you. Remember, you've agreed to go to any length for victory over alcohol. You don't sacrifice yourself. You might have to seek counsel. There might be crimes. Don't let your sponsor edit your amends list. Everyone they take off, they're just saying, they might as well give you a razor blade. Because they're saying, here's another piece of freedom you're not going to have. Here's another piece of freedom you're not going to have. I've heard sponsors in New York tell their, tell their uh, sponsees, don't go back to the women you were in relationships with. What's that about? My sponsor told me they're some of the most important amends in your life. I've heard people say you can't go back to drug dealers. How do you know that? I went back to the drug dealer I ripped off in Key West who was a major drug dealer, and I got down there to make amends to him, and I found him, and he was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous that wanted to hear about the work. My sponsor had a truck route when he got out of the Colorado State Penitentiary, and there was one amends that he had to drive by every single day, and every single day he drove by that house, he couldn't go in there. And one day he drove by the house and it was like whatever resistance was was gone. He went up to that house. He knocked on the door. He spoke to this guy's mother and father. And they said, it couldn't be a more perfect day. Our son's in trouble. We need your help. And that was the right day. You don't know. You do not know. A friend of mine went to make amends to Woolworths. He found their main office in the city. He went to their office. He went to the accounting division. They couldn't see him. He's frustrated. He goes into the cafeteria to have a cup of coffee. He sees a guy sitting by himself working on some books, walks up to the guy. He said, I'm the head accountant. I'd love to hear your amends and finished his amends. And the guy said, I'm in, I have a drinking problem. Will you help me? You do not know the power that comes into your life when you're open up to make amends. Don't miss it. And don't let anybody tell you you can't finish every one of them. And by finish, I don't mean you've followed through totally. When someone in our group says they've finished amends, it means they've made all their approaches, even the ones you can't find. The book says to write an honest letter, and you read it to somebody. And you hold yourself ready that if you were ever to see that person, you would make them. Because we have some that you might be, you might have some financial ones you're paying off for years, but you've made the approach, you've, you've made the best deal you can, the follow-through is not finished, but the, the approach is, is finished. You might have some in your life you know will be ongoing the rest of your life, to a mother, a father, an ex-wife, current wife. But you've made the approach. Now you follow through. But when you've made all the approaches that you possibly can and found all the ones you possibly can, your life's, you're not even going to be the same. I remember being in a meeting with my friend Mark Houston, and this old boy in Texas said, the idea that you can finish amends is like thinking you could take a feather pillow to the top of the Empire State Building, let all them feathers go, and then go find every one of them. And Mark didn't even think. He said, what if you had a personal relationship with the creator of those feathers? Could he take you back to each one? Hmm. It's not me coming up with a plan. You hear this all the time, and I don't believe it. I'm working the steps to the best of my ability. And my friend says to me, 
I thought the best of your ability was to be glued to a bar stool down the street. What do you mean you're working the steps to the best of your ability? You work the steps based on the power you get from God to move on to the next step, the next amends, the next amends. Help me find this one. Do a search. I know people that have gotten private investigators to find amends. Remember, it was agreed. And my friend Mark always says, with the amends that you're questioning, how free do you want to be? How free do you want to be? I've heard Paul Martin, 60, almost 60 years sober, brought in by Dr. Bob, talk about realizing an amends he'd never thought of for 20 years or something for a pair of tennis shoes that he stole from a sporting goods store, and he doesn't think it has any connection to today. He goes and makes amends at that store when he's in that town for the shoes he stole, and some financial stuff in his life totally straightens out. Because you and I usually think that things aren't connected. You and I are the kind of people that think, what does writing inventory about 20 years ago have to do with how I'm feeling at work today? It does. It does. And my, my sponsor would say, I'd call him with all these problems at work, and he'd say, write inventory. And I'd say, what does writing inventory about 20 years ago have to do with being centered today? He says, it does. Everything's connected. You're wondering why you're having trouble with sex? Look at the unfinished amends in that area. You're wondering why you're having trouble with financial stuff? This long sober? Look at some financial unfinished amends. It's all connected. It's all connected. And that's when the promise of the circle starts to come true. That's when the committee starts to get smashed. That's when the personalities begin to die. That's when you begin to become at one. That's the definition to atone. To amend is to atone. To atone is to become at one. This is when you start to enter the world of the Spirit. And you're not dealing with different belief systems for every relationship. You're not, different, you're not behaving different with every person in your life. It's just about equanimity. Find out about equanimity. What does that mean? I've ha I have and have had people in my life that don't, they don't treat a leper any different than they would if the president was visiting them. You watch how they treat their sister is the same way they treat a beggar. You watch people that have that oneness. And once in a while, I've gotten to touch that. I've gotten to experience. What do they mean when they say we've entered the world of the Spirit? Because that's the next thing they're going to go into. They're going to go through different situations with sex, infidelity, debts, crimes. And you just make amends. You just make amends. You make, you make amends your, pra your practice. Whatever you do, it does say to begin 10 and 11 as you clean up the past. 10 and 11 will, will help you to be centered, but you should focus everything you do with 10 and 11 on show me any amends I'm not aware of, show me what my next amend should be, and show me how to find the ones I'm looking for. Make that the focus of 10 and 11. Make that the focus of Upon Awakening. Make that the focus of your evening review. Make that the focus of your 10 step and try to stay current the best you can with step 10 throughout the day so you're not creating more amends than you're making. But I will tell you this. When you reach a day where from your head to your heart, you realize you've made amends to everyone you've ever hurt that you're consciously aware of. There will be more in the future. There will be more that's revealed. But you're going to reach a place one day where all the approaches are done and 10 and 11 are going to take on another life. It's going to be like night and day. 
It's going to be like night and day when you. I've known guys that have gotten down to their last amends, and I'm talking. When I say last amends, I mean you can only go with the ones you're aware of. You can't make amends to people you're not aware of. I heard a guy one time. He said, "I never did volunteer work in a blackout," <laughs> and that he was praying to God to be shown amends that he that he might have made while he was in blackouts, and he was asking God to show him. And he was being taken to some amazing places. One that came to mind just now that I was with a guy not too long ago. This was watching somebody make amends. I was uh, I was in New York, and we were going to a party in Brooklyn, and I was going to ride with this one guy, but this other guy, you're going to start hearing him. He's a he's a new circuit speaker. Oh, I've been teasing him mercifully. His name's Peter Peter M from Brooklyn. And he said, "Will you ride with me? Because I'd like to go to the corner where I watched my mother killed. I've made amends to her at her grave, but I haven't gone back to this corner." And he tells me the story on our way to Brooklyn from Staten Island. And he says, when he was seven years old, he lived upstairs in this brownstone apartment in Red Hook, and that he uh, was out on the corner with his little brother, and he watched his mother beat to death on this corner. And he said, "Will you go there with me?" I said, yeah. We went to this corner. I sat in the car. He got out. It was a scary neighborhood, but it was so scary there wasn't even anybody around. It wasn't scary because of the people. It was just scary. And he gets out of the car and he starts making amends, and I can feel it's not happening. He gets back in the car. I said, "You're not done, are you?" He said, "No." I said, "Go back." He went back outside the car. He gets in his knees on this corner in Red Hook, in Brooklyn, and I could feel it in the car. And I could feel when it was done, and I stepped out of the car, and I looked on this red brick wall, and somebody had drawn a little cute picture with white chalk, field and flowers, and I said, "Look at that, Peter." He said, "Wow, that's amazing." And then I looked down on the cement, and I thought I saw his name written, Peter, but it was really Petro. And he looked down. He goes, "Man, if that would have been my name in the cement on this corner, it would have just blown my mind. I couldn't take it." We took three steps toward the car, and there's his name, his brother's name, heart, heart, mom, and it just blew his mind. In the cement, and he had been there with the brother, whose name was there in the cement too. And you just get to watch amazing things when you, because you're living from a different place, you're living from a fourth dimension. And when the big book says we've uh, we've been rocketed into a fourth dimension. Not only is it not outside of you, not only is it inside of you, but it just simply means you're not dominated by your body, your mind, or your emotions anymore. That's all I had my whole life until amends were done. I'm either dragged around by the cravings of my body, the obsessions in my mind, or my sickened emotions, or all three at the same time. We get to enter a place deep down within ourselves because now the stuff is blocking us. From the world of the spirit, from the great reality, from whatever you want to call it, that's deep down within, that stuff has, be, has been removed, and I've entered the world of my own spirit. It's not some esoteric, ooh, we've entered the world of the spirit. It just means you've touched a part of your being that you were never in touch with. Sometimes the right amount of alcohol and the right amount of drugs got me to that place, but it wasn't. It felt real. I got power from alcohol. It did for me what I couldn't do for its for for myself, but it quit working. 
if alcohol was still still taking me to that, you know, there, I think there's a phrase that Sigmund, that Freud had, or or Carl Jung, spiritus e spiritum. It's that means something about there's a fine line between spirits and spirit, or that spirits can bring you to spirit. Hmm. There's only one letter difference, you know. But now I've entered the world of the spirit, rather than living in the world of spirits. <coughs> alcohol, right? Then 10 and 11 and 12 will take on a whole new life. A lot of people think step 10 is about writing inventory and making amends. But we've already seen how much more to each step there is beyond the short form. We've seen how much more to step one there is than to just uh, admit you're powerless and that your life is unmanageable. Fully conceding to your innermost self is much different than saying that you're powerless in your life. We've seen there's much more to step two than just coming to believe. Much more to three, much more to four. But people will sell step ten short and think, because what he wrote in the twelve and twelve is so confusing. But what he wrote here is so clear. And they're not maintenance steps. And anybody that tells you that 10, 11, and 12 is just repeating 1 through 9, they're selling it short. And they're not, why, why do I say they're not maintenance steps? Because my book says that our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Who wants to stay in the place they're in at the end of step 9? Nor could you if you wanted to. Because of the resurgence of ego and because of the power of God. This is something that should continue for a lifetime. There's infinity in step 10, 11, and 12. Not maintaining something that you already got. It's about growing and understanding and effectiveness. This is how I see step 10 today. Step 11 gives you something to do in the morning and something to do at night and a couple things to do throughout the day, like pause when agitated or doubtful. I see the 10th step as this. The tenth step is a moving meditation that you are in from the time you get up from your morning meditation until you sit down in your evening meditation. It's putting one foot in front of the other. It's continuing to watch. But keep in mind the, the key word there is continue. It doesn't say wait till you get home. It doesn't say uh, you got to write another inventory. It doesn't say you've got to go through all this stuff to get back to some amends if you've caused harm today. It says, as you go out in the day and you put one foot in front of the other, continue to watch for these things and that they will crop up. Keep in mind, here's one that I got stuck on. Step 10 starts in the middle of page 84. It says that we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any, any mistakes. But here's the key. As... We go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. You can do whatever you can with 10 and 11 and 12 as you're making amends, but it won't be the same as when you're done with amends. Everything will blow wide open. You finish amends until your next time through the work, except the daily things that are revealed to you. It's time to start having some fun. It's time to go out there and experiment. Have some fun. <laughs> We've entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow, not stay where we are, not maintain, grow in understanding and effectiveness. You see, you've got to have both. This is one of those like knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. One without the other is futile. You could have all the knowledge in the world of God's will, but no power to carry it out. Just like this, understanding without effectiveness is worthless. 
and effectiveness without understanding is empty. This is not an overnight matter. You see how many times they say continue in this one paragraph? Because that's what it commenced as we go along. We've entered the world, our next function. This is a moving, active meditation that takes place between your morning and your evening. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. It doesn't say if they crop up. It says they're going <laughs> to. When they crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. I thought it said, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God to remove them at once. No. You're not telling God when to remove it. It's telling you when to ask Him. You see the difference between asking God to remove them? I'm sorry. We ask God at once to remove them, then we ask God to remove them at once. It's two different things. You don't tell him when to remove them, but it tells you when to ask him to at once. Discuss it with someone. Now, do I always have to do that? How do I know when I need to do all three of those things? Absolutely not. You're sitting at your desk. You get distracted by some resentment from the guy next to you. If you can, if you can ask God to remove it and turn your thoughts back to where you were, you don't need to take Rob from your boss and call somebody to take 20 minutes. The barometer as to how many of these things you have to do is in your ability to turn back to where you work, who you can help. And you know who you can help when you're sitting at your desk working for your boss? You can help your boss by turning back to your work. Do I always have to do all four of these things? No. Sometimes I ask God at sometimes I ask God at once to remove it. See if I've caused any harm and turn my thoughts back to someone I can help. Sometimes you'll have to do all four. Sometimes it'll still be there at night. Sometimes you're going to have to clean it up the next day. It'll become a corrective measure. But what my friends have been talking to me about lately is preemptive 10-step work. What do they mean by that? If we start to see by continuing work with step 10 how we can decide out of these feelings, how we can turn out of resentment, how we can turn away from fear, what to do when these things crop up, and we see that we have the power to decide out of them, don't you think we made some decisions to decide into them? So I've been asking myself lately, Show me the decisions I make which lead to my fears cropping up. Show me the decisions I make that lead to my resentments cropping up so I can do the work at the front end in the morning. So I don't have to wait for it to crop up where I might have been asleep and caused harm and have to go make amends. And it's very simple. You're now going to start to learn to work with power. They're going to talk to you about proper use of the will. Now there's some promises. How many of us have been to meetings on these promises? <coughs> have you really ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol? You're going to catch yourself when you fight. It's going to show up in your evening review or your next inventory. Has sanity returned? Imagine that at a topic at the next meeting you go to. 
You'll seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, you'll recoil from a hot flame. You'll react sanely and normally, and you'll find this has happened automatically. You will see that your new attitude toward liquor has been given you without any thought or effort on your part. What do you mean, any thought or effort? I've put all this effort into it. No, you haven't. Not on your attitude toward liquor. We haven't talked about liquor since the first step. It just comes. It comes from looking at self, defects, harm, and making amends. How many meetings have we been to where this is, this is discussed? We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding it. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. The problem has been removed. In that state, there's no more choice to drink than there was to not drink. That's the state I was describing to you. And if in this state, you couldn't drink even if you wanted to. The choice is removed on the other end rather than you had to drink. There's no more choice in a fit spiritual condition there than there was to not drink in an unfit spiritual condition. This is our experience. This is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. But I've also hit bottom with that. I can't keep myself in fit spiritual condition. I can't self-will that or I'd be doing a lot better. That's another gift. It takes effort. It's easy to let up on the program of action. And you've got by now a lot of laurels to rest on. The laurels are all those amends you've made. You're headed for trouble if you rest on whatever power you've been given. For alcohol is a subtle foe. You're not cured of alcoholism, but you can live in a recovered state. Cured and recovered are two different things. What we really have is a daily reprieve, contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when you must carry the vision of God's will into all your activities. How can you best serve God? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. Why isn't this ever a topic at meetings? We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish it is the proper use of the will. And I've been to lots of meetings on this part of the 10th step when you're in a group where they finish amends. Because when you're finished amends and you're in a fit spiritual condition, then your willpower is aligned with God's. You're not given your will back. You're given a new will. You gave your will up in 4 through 9. You take the third step, your life is no longer any of your business. But now it says you're going to have a willpower that you can begin to use. What is the line of the will? The line of the will is when you're living in front of the will rather than being dragged around by it. Where you're deciding. Where you set your intent. Where you decide what you want to do. Where you make your plans for the day. You're living in front of the will rather than behind it. What is the proper use of the will? Find out. Have fun. It says you're going to make mistakes. It says the idea that you're going to be inspired at all times is ridiculous and you're going to pay for that presumption with all sorts of incredible ideas and actions. Then the 11th step will give you what to do in the morning and at night. It tells you exactly what to do in the evening review, but make sure it's constructive. Make sure it's fun. If your evening review isn't fun, you won't do it because now you're free. Make your evening practice something you enjoy. Answer these questions. I write down any corrective measures for tomorrow, and it becomes part of my plans for tomorrow. Now, why does it say upon awakening? It's funny that they always say the third thing. For, they, should, they always say the first thing third. On awakening, think about the 24 hours ahead. Consider your plans for the day 
And now the third sentence says, but before you begin, ask God to direct your thinking. Asking especially that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonors, or self-seeking motives. That's like after the third step prayer, they say, we thought well before we took it. <laughs> so they're asking you to ask God to direct your thinking first. And then a man asked me once, do you think they're repeating themselves when they ask you to think about the 24 hours ahead and consider your plans for the day? Because if I'm thinking about the 24 hours ahead, aren't I considering my plans? He said, no, they're two different things. In thinking about the 24 hours ahead, think about what you would like to be. And in considering your plans for the day, think about what you need to do. They're two different things, being and doing. Being, what you would like to be today, you'll get a great guide from your evening review from last night. Yesterday I was intolerant. I was short. I wasn't clear at the business meeting. See, what you're working here now is not with different personalities. You're working with attitude, proper attitude, proper use. What should be an attitude for a business meeting is not the same attitude for a fun time dinner with friends. Fun time dinner with friends, you don't go with the same attitude that you would into an executive meeting or an AA meeting. You're working with attitudes. So I look at my evening review from last night and I saw I was short with her. I wasn't clear at the business meeting. So today what I would like to be is, and what I need to do is, and if I have any corrective measures from the paragraph above from the evening review, I write them in my plans for tomorrow at night. See, because to consider your plans for the day, you've got to have some. <laughs> and know that that can change and you've got power in your life now where plans can change and you can be flexible. And you're going to begin to use your intuition. i got two things that have come up at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Which one am I supposed to do? Doubt, indecision, it tells me exactly what to do. Ask for the right thought or action when I'm agitated or doubtful. So it gives me something to do at night. It gives me something to do in the morning. It tells me what to do if I'm facing indecision. It tells me when I'm asking for an answer to relax and take it easy. That's not my nature. My nature when I'm confused or I have indecision is to go into my head and figure it out. Do you know that this book promises you in sixth sense? How many meetings have you been at where they talk about promises where they brought up that one? And that's a pretty big one, wouldn't you think? That the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, <laughs> the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous promises you another sense besides the five you're used to? A new sixth sense. That's a big deal. You ever been involved in a process that gave you another sense beyond sight, touch, feel, or smell, or taste? This one promises you a new sense. What is that sense? It's intuition. You know, I can honestly say to you that some of the time, more and more all the time, I trust intuition more than logic and reason. And I was a guy that depended on my own mind my whole life. It's all I thought I had. I never thought there was anything beyond mind. There is so much beyond mind. And that's what I said I was going to talk about in a minute, a few minutes ago, in this. One through nine has been the most revolutionary process I've ever been exposed to. And I continue to do one through nine. But I'll tell you this, discipline, meditation, and a commitment to it, and fidelity to meditation has changed my life as much as one through nine ever did.
It's like another world beyond the world you're taken to from finishing amends. Just to just decide. Let's say you decide for one year, I'm going to do a practice that I choose along with upon awakening and along with the evening review and I'm going to do it every morning and I'm going to do it every night and I'm going to stick to this practice and I'm going to see where it takes me. And you start to experience where a commitment to meditation will take you. And then you become interested in prayer. And then you start to find out about prayer, the power of prayer, mantra, repetitive prayer. I used to hear these Tibetan prayers. I had absolutely no idea what they meant. The first assignment my teacher that I have now gave me was to say some mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum. Now who in the world is going to go home and say that? I don't even know the words. I don't even know what it means. And then I asked some idiot. Of course, I didn't ask my teacher what it means. I'm not going to tell him I don't know what it means. But I'm going to go home and say that some words I don't even know 30,000 times before I come back to see him? No. So I asked some idiot, what does the prayer mean? He said, jewel in the lotus. And I thought to myself, why in the world would anybody want to sit there repeating jewel in the lotus, jewel in the lotus? And I got so frustrated I had to tell my teacher. And he said, who told you that that's what it means? I said, I don't know. It doesn't matter. What does it mean? He said, if anybody understands the word om, it's the universal sound of meditation, which means I bow to the sound of the silence in the diamond of the lotus of my heart. And then I understood a prayer that I could get to. It's so non-denominational. That I can sit and do, because that's what I want. I want to be able to honor the sound of the silence that's deep in the center of the lotus of the diamond in my heart. That I can understand. And then I, I just thought people were sitting in a room repeating sounds. The power of prayer, the power of meditation, the power of mantra. And then you'll become interested in how this power connects to this power and that there's no separation between them and how to bring that out into the world. And that's all that step 12 is about. But please don't expect a spiritual awakening as a result of sitting in meetings and not drinking. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we had the power to carry this message and we had the power to practice these principles. Always remember, the steps are the principles. And from those steps there will come principles other than just the spiritual exercises in the 12 steps. Don't sell the 12 steps short. They're not meeting some other principles when they say and practice these principles. They've just given you the principles. It's a hard enough practice. Just trying to practice 10 and 11 on a daily basis is not easy. It takes work. It takes practice. <coughs> but a lot more than me, people will guarantee you that you'll have an amazing life. How does a guy like me go from where I was to actually caring about other people? How does a guy like me go from where I was to falling in love with working with others and taking people through the work and watching them catch on fire? It's going to become not only the bright spot, it's going to become the brightness of your life. Thanks so much for letting me come. <clears throat> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. 
Thank you very much.